Welcome to something to wrestle with, Bruce Richard. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Get fellas up. Now, what y'all wanna do? Wanna be ballers, shot callers, ballers who be dipping in the bands with the spoilers on the low from the Jake in the Taurus, trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace. Yeah, living the raw deal, three course meals, spaghetti, fettuccine, and veal. But still, everybody's real in the field. In Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Lawnmowers in the background. Bruce Pritchard, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, man, I got. I feel like I'm surrounded by landscapers right now with all the blowers and the mowers and everything else going on around here. You know, uh, I think you had a different name for them in the 80s. Did you always call them blowers? I feel like they used to be called ring rats. Well, you know, it depends on uh, some. It depends on the amount of actual blowing or going. Oh, okay. Some so, some were coming, some were going, and some were blowing. Let's move along, Tony Schiavone. Hey, we want to let everybody know we're doing something fun here. It's Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle, and every single day at six a.m. Eastern, what are we treating everybody with, Bruce? the morning deuce with bruce that would be me by god and just uh hey the thoughts of the day and picking a couple of topics and quick few words you get to see my happy ass at six o'clock in the morning which uh should brighten anybody's day well i don't know about all that but we have addressed uh, the craziness of the past week over on facebook you'll hear about puff daddy tmz the ted dibiase movie rick flair's 30 for 30 We'll even talk some current stuff. Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, AJ Styles, something new every single day. Go like us right now on facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And don't forget, we're getting very close to a bonus episode about SummerSlam 91. All you've got to do is go like us on Facebook right now. And you're going to get that new content every single day. The morning deuce with Bruce. And we're one step closer to that bonus show at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And we should go ahead and give a happy belated birthday to Tony Schiavone. Did you see the uh, hilarious video that Chris McDonald put together for Tony's 60th birthday this week, Bruce? Well, I'm going to give big kudos over to Chris McDonald because that was absolutely excellent. But, uh, you know, what? I'm, I'm, I'm done wishing Tony a happy birthday. I called him on his birthday. I tried to wish him a happy birthday personally, but yet he, he can't never accept any of my calls or call me back. Well, he will call you if you pick up a shirt, but uh, we'd like for you to see this video. It's on facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Chris McDonald put together what I think is the funniest video you're going to see this entire month. 
uh, here in November. We also want to remind you that uh, Josh Reddick is going to be joining us next weekend in Houston before Survivor Series. We've got another live show coming up, and it feels like we're cranking these out pretty fast. There's one place to pick up your tickets. It's boxofgimmicks.com. Houston, we're coming to see you. Houston, we don't have a problem because we're bringing Brother Love, the real Brother Love, and Josh Reddick. So jump on over to boxofgimmicks.com, and we'll see you at Survivor Series. And, of course, Boston, we haven't forgot about you. Just before the pay-per-view in December, you know you're getting it. Come see us that afternoon. We'd love to see you. Boxagimmicks.com is where you can see Bruce and I, and we're going to talk all things wrestling in Boston, but on the other side, we're going to talk all things Bret Hart. It's one of my most anticipated episodes. Stay tuned. All right, Bruce, it's time for one of our most requested topics, maybe the most analyzed two-year run in the history of wrestling, and it's our turn now to overanalyze things because that's what we do. What happened when... Bret Hart had his last two years in the World Wrestling Federation as an active performer, and uh, we're going to take you through those two years today. And I know people are really hyped to talk about the Montreal Screwjob, or maybe you're just sick to death of it. But we're right upon the 20-year anniversary, so we're going to get there. But first, let's lay the groundwork for how we got there. Uh, Survivor Series 1995 is where we see Bret Hart become the World Wrestling Federation champion again. He beats Diesel here for the belt. And Meltzer thought it was a pretty good match. I think maybe one of Diesel's best matches in the WWF. Dave gave it three and a half stars, and it's famous for one of the very first announcer table spots. Is this the first one you remember, Bruce? It was the first one I remember in the WWF, obviously, and it was Brett's idea. It was something that Brett had wanted to do, and he had seen Sabu do it, but he felt that Sabu just did it for the sake of breaking a table, and Brett wanted it to be a part of a match and, and just have a little bit more logic to it, having somebody put him through a table type thing. The next month, in December of 95, Brett's on top, defending his title against the British Bulldog at In Your House, and man, it's a bloodbath. Meltzer gives it four and a half stars. And in spite of these great matches, Bruce, Brett has said he felt no matter how hard he worked, all of the attention was on Sean during this time, even going so far as to say he felt like a transitional champion. Uh, He wrote in his book, I'd given Vince a five-star match with Diesel, but it was so quickly passed over that it was soon forgotten. Even the buildup to my in-your-house match against Davey was non-existent, with all the attention being lavished on the ex-champion and apparently seriously injured Sean. Of course, the injury that Brett is referencing is the Marine incident, which we'll cover on an upcoming Shawn Michaels episode, but let's examine this a little bit. When did Bruce or when did Vince decide that WrestleMania 12 would be the moment and the show to make Shawn Michaels a superstar? Wow. You know, I, I think that we had pretty much, we had set it up. That's kind of where we were going. Um, and, but we had hiccups along the way. Like you talk about the situation with Sean and the Marines along the way, you have that stumbling block that you wonder, oh, God damn, are we going to get there? Can we just get there? Can we get everybody healthy? Can we get to this point now? You know, fighting this the whole time, you, you have to go back to Vince McMahon making the statement several years before that Sean Michaels will never be WWF champion. And now we've got him on board to make Shawn Michaels the WWF champion. And you're getting every time you turn around, you're getting kicked in the gut. So it was 
probably going back to to Survivor Series in that time frame, you know, we had planned it. That's where we wanted to go. Okay, so you think it's accurate that Brett really was positioned here to be a transitional champion? Yeah, but I but again, I see transitional champion. What what the hell does that mean? He's the champion. He's the champion that Sean's well, going to beat for it. He, he's yeah, the champion it, because you're trying to make the next guy. Much like sure, you know, every so, champion's making the next guy. So Bret Hart is Iron Sheik here. No, Bret Hart's Bret Hart. Uh, if Diesel's on the way out anyway. Why not have him drop it to Sean at WrestleMania? They're buddies. One's a heel. By doing it that way, you avoid the whole face versus face deal, which was a disaster six years prior with Warrior Hogan. And you know those two guys can work well with each other. Was Diesel Sean ever considered for the main event of WrestleMania 12? No, it Why? wasn't. And and one of the reasons being was <coughs> Pat Patterson kind of had a vision. And Pat wasn't even really technically in, in the company full time, but the, the vision was trying some, trying to do something different, building Sean as a baby face, not a traditional baby face and having a great wrestling match with two of the greatest workers ever in the company We'll get there. and being able to crown Sean with, with Brett. This takes us to the Royal rumble, uh, which took place on January 21st, 1996. We're in Fresno, California. And here Brett would defend the world title against the undertaker. Uh, this is a pretty rare baby face versus baby face match with two of the top guys. And it sort of happens cold. Uh, why were they put together here? Just because it's your two biggest names and you want to pop a buy rate. It doesn't feel like there was a lot of forethought put into the storyline. You got to start somewhere. And again, it's, it's just a starting point. And sometimes you just got to put two guys together and see what you've got. Uh, in the match, Undertaker would hit the tombstone on Brett. And when the ref was counting, Diesel comes down and pulls the ref out, causing the DQ at about 28 and a half minutes. Meltzer gave the match two and three quarter stars. And Brett has been critical of the finish here, saying he felt like it did very little to build him for mania. What do you remember about the match and Brett's feelings at the time? Was he vocal about stuff like this at the time? Yeah. Brett was always vocal about stuff like that. And Brett was vocal, you know, going back to, uh, diesel being vocal about the, the small package finish at the survivor series, but Brett wanted to beat undertaker. And he, he felt that he should have defeated undertaker in the middle of the ring to build him. We were building undertaker and the, the diesel feud for the WrestleMania blow off there. So we're trying to tell a couple of different stories. And, and, and like I said, you got to start somewhere. And sometimes you just have to make a match to make other things work around it. But Brett was not happy about having uh, diesel involved in the match. You know, the other thing, and I think this is it that a lot of people don't really remember. This was the first time anybody, you know, used the bird on TV too. Because Kevin Nash turned back around Undertaker and flipped him off after that finish. Kevin Nash will remind you in a hurry that he was dragging his belt to the ring like Stone Cold and flipping people off long before Stone Cold was Stone Cold. Uh, the next night on Raw, Brett would wrestle the new Intercontinental Champion, Goldust, who had just won the title uh, the night before at the Royal Rumble from Razor Ramon. Uh, Brett won the rematch by submission, uh, and he said he worked the match with a sprained knee, and Dustin really looked after him in the match. Uh, later that night, uh, in the dark match, Brett would wrestle the undertaker to a no contest. Razor had a problem working with Goldust, but we've never really talked about how Brett felt about the character. I don't know that 
I don't know that Brett was necessarily keen about working with the character Goldust. He liked working with Dustin, didn't have a problem with that, and they had great matches, frankly. But um, I don't. I, the best of my recollection, yeah, Brett wasn't didn't want to do. Yeah, don't do any of that gold stuff, gold dust stuff on me, type of thing. And during this time, Brett was just very touchy about. I, I just need to beat everybody. Brett's working uh, Diesel and Goldust a lot on the house shows, including working with Diesel in a cage at Madison Square Garden on January 26th. And he wrote in his book on the 27th, he had a conversation with Sean. Apparently there were rumors earlier that day that Diesel and Razor might jump to WCW. And Sean told Brett that he hoped they would stay so he could work with them after he won the title from Brett at WrestleMania. Brett allegedly suggested to Sean that he could work with new guys like Steve Austin and Vader. And Sean said he'd rather work with Hunter and do a little program with the one, two, three kid for years. This whole conversation rubbed Brett the wrong way. Uh, he still talks about it to this day. Uh, he felt like Sean was just angling to work with his buddies. Do you remember hearing that and any sort of blowback from Brett th- thinking that that wasn't the best thing for business in, in hindsight, I think that, you know, every conversation that Brett had with Sean, that, that they didn't agree on things. Uh, kind of rub Brett the wrong way. And I do think that Sean wanted to work with his buddies, but also Sean, Sean did want to work with Steve Austin. Um, that would, that was a guy that was on his list. Uh, Brett wrote that without consulting him on the decision, Sean and Pat Patterson had decided that WrestleMania would be a one hour Ironman match in the main event with Brett and Sean, and that Sean was going to beat, beat Brett with the super kick. And, uh, Brett said he could tell when they were all talking it over that Sean was ready for him to balk at the thought of putting him over, but Brett said he had no problem doing it clean in the middle. And this leads to Sean thanking him profusely. And for years and years, we've heard that Pat was the person to really champion the Iron Man match concept at WrestleMania and that Vince maybe wasn't so keen on it at first, but eventually Vince sort of gave in and agreed to let him do the match. Was Pat the guy to push for the Iron Man, and, and what was Vince's hesitation? Vince's hesitation were, was several fold. The babyface match, he was hesitant. The Iron Man match, we'd never done on pay per view, much less a, a WrestleMania with two babyfaces now. And Pat was adamant. Like I said, Pat wasn't working with us full time at that time, but Pat was coming in. He was going to be there at WrestleMania. Um, I was getting married. So he's like, I'm going to come to WrestleMania for your wedding and and I'll be there. And I was like, great. And you can agent the match. But we went to both, uh, Brett and Sean, we went to both of those guys. Both of those guys were involved in the decision-making as to whether or not it would be an Ironman match. And Brett was on board. So both of them felt good about the idea. Yeah, I think that both of them saw an opportunity to to highlight what they do best, and that's their in-ring work. And Brett never had a problem at all dropping the title to Sean and uh, and doing it clean in the middle. And you guys made that decision in January, to the best of your understanding. That's when your main, main event was kind of set, that it was not only these two guys, but in this format? Pretty much, yeah, because that's when we had to commit and get the advertising out. It was that same day that Brett told Vince that after WrestleMania, he'd be taking six months off to do a full season of Lonesome Dove, the television series. Vince told Brett that he really needed him to work the foreign tours, which Brett said, no problem. Do you remember Brett asking for time off? And 
Do you think that that would have hurt house show business and Vince would have had a problem with it? Or is Vince actually okay with it? If you're trying to establish Sean as the top baby face, then you need the old guard to sort of take a back seat for a little bit. Yeah, we were okay with it because Brett needed a rest. Brett needed a rest and a break from the road. And you know, he had been on top for a while there and it also, if you got a baby face champion, you don't want the old baby face champion hanging around competing right at, at the top of that. You know what I mean? In early February, uh, they take a tour of India and on February 3rd, I believe they're in Bangalore, which sounds like a place Tony Schiavone's been and Brett beats the Tonka and on the show, allegedly there's like 30,000 fans in outdoor cricket pitches. Do you remember this? Is that right? 30,000 fans? Yeah. India. I mean, it's, they, they've got those huge, huge stadiums and, uh, but yes, it was, uh, did, it was uh, good times. Did you guys pay the fans $50 a day to show up? No, we didn't. They actually paid us. Okay. Uh, Brett said on the sixth day of this India tour, diesel had told him that he and razor were really going to WCW for $750,000 a year. Brett said, this is more than even he was making at the time as champion. Uh, how did this news affect the locker room and when did Vince in the office find out? Is it while they're over here in India? I don't remember the exact timing of when we found out. Cause we'd all heard the rumblings and we had all heard, you know, uh, just different things about razors going. And that was the big one, you know, razors going razors gone. He's out of here. And then it was like, wait a minute, Nash is going with him. And so the scramble begins. Okay. You know, what's going on here? Both guys denied it at first, but yet they were telling people on the road, allegedly. And when confronted, they denied it. Um, so much, you know, as, as far as Kevin Nash saying he would get in front of the entire locker room and say, I'm not going anywhere. But then when they said, okay, do it, he, he refused to do it. But yeah, uh, it was in this time that those rumblings were running rampant. On February 17th in Memphis, Brett beat Jerry Lawler in a cage to retain. And, uh, this was a USWA show, of course. And this show drew the all time record gate for the city. It broke any previous mark from the world wrestling federation, NWA, WCW, or any of the Jarrett promotions. Uh, we've talked about Memphis a lot here on the show, but we don't know how did Brett like working in Memphis? It was fine. And I think that he enjoyed kind of working with the King too. Cause King was an old school guy and it was just, a um, if you can't have a match with Jerry Lawler, you can't have a match. This takes us to in your house, six rage in the cage. It goes down February 18th, 1996 from the Louisville gardens. And in the main event, we see Brett defending his title inside a salad steel cage against diesel. Uh, this is the cage match where diesel is about to go through the door when the undertaker pops up through the ring, uh, and he's after diesel. So that allows Brett to escape over the top for the win. And I think this is the first time this ever happened in the WWF, right? Bruce, whose idea was this? <laughs> it was, and uh, it was combination. It was kind of a combination of me and Cornette along with taker. And then Nash got on board. But I think that one of the, the greatest, um, suggestions that I ever Kevin Nash have mm -hmm. that I wish we would have done that Vince thought was hokey as hell at the time, but just visually, I wish we could have done it is that once Kevin went in underneath the ring. And that smoke came out when Kevin finally came out from underneath the ring, his hair would be gray or he'd have a gray streak throughout his hair. 
And I just thought, oh my, that would be so cool that he was scared so much underneath the ring when he got pulled underneath the ring that by the time he got out, his hair had turned white. I like it. Vince uh, hated it. What, what just, did God th- damn, that's hokey bullshit. Did the Undertaker think this was hokey? What did the boys think about it? Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. No, Taker loved it. It was, again, that Undertaker character, you you have the leeway and the artistic liberty to do a lot of things you can't do with other characters. So it was a chance to do something different. Oh, it was cool as hell. Nash tells the story that Brett didn't like the idea of taking a jackknife and then Taker saving him as a finish because he felt like it made him look like he was about to get beat when the Undertaker said something like, motherfucker, everything isn't about you. Uh, Nash has told this in a dozen shoot interviews. Do you remember a discussion like this about the finish? I heard about that discussion and yes, I mean, I, I pretty much heard the same thing. Brett said of the match being saved by interference at two pay-per-views in a row did nothing to keep a baby face champion like me strong. Was this the nature of your conversations with Brett at the time? He's just very hands-on with how he's looked at every turn. Yes. And, and I think. I think a bit of paranoia was setting in as well. Uh, no doubt, especially in, in his writings. You can see that Brett said later this same day, he called the lonesome dove offices and the producer of the show, Steve North informed him that the series had unfortunately been canceled. And, uh, Brett said this news broke his heart. Did you ever talk to Brett about this? It becomes apparent to me that Brett thought the next step for him was going to be acting. And this feels like a big break. And now suddenly it's just taken away. Well, I used to have conversations with Brett in general about being able to, you know, Brett thought he could leave wrestling and do Lonesome Dove and that Lonesome Dove would lead him to uh, other things in Hollywood and doing other acting gigs. And I, I, I would try to explain to him, it's, it's actually the reverse, Brett. You really need to be on our TV so that they want you. Coming off of our TV and not, coming back and being a part of it, you're going to have less opportunities for those acting roles. Yeah. Uh, even though the show was canceled, Brett decides to stick with his original plans of taking six months after uh, off after WrestleMania. Uh, and the next night on raw, he says he's happily surprised to see Roddy Piper at the Cincinnati gardens for raw. Uh, Piper's going to become the new president of the WWF. And, uh, Brett said that Vince got him, Roddy and Sean together, and they carefully rehearsed what their live interview was going to look like that night. And, uh, Brett said that Sean was scripted to outwit him all the way through it. And then of course, everything that Sean actually said that night had much more impact than what he thought he had been told to say. 
And Brett said that Vince was right there to make sure that Sean was humble and lovable and not too what he called Sean ish. But of course, during the interview, Sean can't help himself brags about how well conditioned he is, shows off his abs. And then Brett compares himself to the pink, um, energizer bunny and those old energizer battery commercials in that he just keeps going and going and going. And they're doing this to explain the rules for the Iron Man match. And, um, Brett is even a little annoyed at this interview because he feels like Sean is putting way too much impact on his words and is too Seanish. And he writes something like, uh, while he was overworking in India, sick with the shits, Sean had been at home training like a lunatic. Damned if he wasn't in incredible shape. Is this just sour grapes? The way Brett wrote some of this in his book, or was Brett this sort of on edge even at the time? No, Brett was on edge and, and I think it's a combination of both. And I think that Brett was always looking at it no matter what they did. And yes, we were positioning Sean as the next guy. We also knew Brett's going away for six months. So we're going to use Brett to get Sean over as strong as we possibly can. And that's what you do. So, uh, if it had been the, the shoe on the other foot, I think Brett would have been fine with it, but because he was the guy that was going away for six months, it was kind of, woe was me on February 25th. These guys are still working double shots. They did a day show in Pittsburgh where Brett beat the undertaker by count out, uh, same finish that night in Cleveland on February 25th. And sometime around here in late February, the WWF sends a camera crew to Calgary to film Brett training for the Ironman match. They'd already filmed Sean in San Antonio. And there we would see Sean running stadium steps, doing the upside down sit-ups, sparring with his mentor, Jose. Uh, and Brett, of course, is um, positioned in a different way. Uh, he's the wily veteran from the dungeon. And um, Brett wrote in his book that February is the coldest time of the year in Calgary. And they have him jogging along Scotsman's Hill so they can get a panoramic view of the city with the Rockies in the background. And he wrote, quote, I don't think JR and the camera crew were trying to be funny, but I couldn't help but see the humor in the footage they shot. It was so icy that I had to run carefully and it came across on film. Like I was running about one mile an hour. Another magic moment taped for the world to see is when they asked me to swim laps in my pool, but the topper was when they filmed Stu stretching me in the dungeon and an 80 year old man tying me up in knots with me eagerly tapping out. This feels like something that Brett could have an issue with, but yet it still happens. Uh, you usually were involved in shooting some of these vignettes. What do you remember about these? And in hindsight, were they a miss? No, they weren't a miss. It was showing. I shot Sean's Jr. shot Brett's, um, Vince, actually Vince and I both shot Sean because we were, we were down there for, uh, some other stuff in San Antonio. We were in the area. So we went, we shot vignettes of him training down on the river walk running. And I thought that they were both comparable. I thought that they were both really good packages. Um, God, you know, again, any other time if if Brett would want to show his dad in a, in a good light and you're telling the story, you're telling two different stories of two guys, roughly the same age and going about how they are training for the same match. And it's, it's different. Um, yeah, Brett's Sean's in San Antonio. Brett's in Calgary. How different are you going to get? Right. Brett said he trained as hard for this match as he has anything he'd ever done in his life. He wrote, Sean was eight years younger than me and I wasn't going to let him outshine me. Like me and Davey at Wembley, I wanted the fans to remember the loser. 
So I think a lot of people assume, and Brett even wrote, I saw a rematch up ahead with me taking the, the title back, which would build up for yet one more match where I'd be more than happy to put Sean over talking about a trilogy of matches here to once and for all thrust the torch into his hand done right. Sean and I could draw money for years with a big rivalry, just taking turns, putting each other over. Didn't everybody sort of assume that was the plan at this point in February and March of 96? Yes, that was the plan. March 3rd, they're working uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. We would see here. And then later in the show, Brett would get a win over Sean in a lumberjack match. They compete that lumberjack routine for the next few nights. Uh, And then by the middle of the month, Brett and Undertaker are working tags against Sean and Diesel. The next night in Landover, I believe, is the first triple threat match in WWF history. There's a little bit of useless trivia for you. Uh, Brett and uh, Undertaker and Diesel are the three combatants. Do you remember, you know, why or when you guys started doing these triple threat matches? Is this the first one? No, I think the, I think the first one was actually in Philadelphia and, and I think it involved razor. Um, and I forget who I know razor because everybody was trying to figure out how the hell do we work this thing? And Pat, and that was another one where, Pat wasn't even working there full time, but it was like, Patrick, how the hell do we do this? And I'm thinking, this isn't rocket science. And I'm, I'm showing them, you know, the stuff from ECW and Cornette's trying to help out with it. And Vince in his mind just couldn't see it. It was like Vince could never see a damn bull rope match or a strap match the way that we it's worked everywhere else in the damn world. Um, he just didn't see it. Uh, Madison square garden on March 17th is a, is a notable match here. It's Brett and undertaker taking on Sean and diesel. Uh, but the real rub is it's the first sellout at Madison square garden for a non-pay-per-view event in so many years that nobody can remember the last one. Uh, that's a direct quote from the observer, but that's pretty cool. How big of a deal is this to Vince? You know, after a couple of down years, 94 was not great. 95 is not great. And now here, as we sort of round out the first quarter of the year on our way to WrestleMania, Vince is able to sell out Madison square garden again. And on top of it, uh, it's, uh, it's a non-pay-per-view deal. So it's just a house show. That's kind of a big deal, right? Well, he sure it is. And Vince, you know, that's his barometer of everything else is what the garden's doing. How's New York. I feel like we should mention here, the company has a lot of momentum and you guys are promoting this main event much differently than you have main events for WrestleMania in the past. This is being presented as the greatest athletic match in history. And I think maybe in hindsight, some of that marketing may have actually set unrealistic expectations that almost certainly lead to disappointment. Uh, we should mention here the last time that someone attempted an Ironman match like this, a 60 minute match on a big scale clash of the champions from April 89 with flair steamboat. Brett had done this a few times in 93 against flair, but not in a featured spot like this on pay-per-view. Uh, he did it a few times in 94 with Owen as well, but here at WrestleMania 12, he's going to be 38. Sean's 30 and Sean's had long matches as a tag team guy with the rockers, but never anything like this as a single. Was there ever any consideration that, Hey, what if these guys can't do it? I mean, were people nervous or concerned about that? No, actually not. There, there was the only concern was not to do, um, not to do the typical slow, methodical, 
Iron Man match and they wanted to have it, um, just a little bit more faster paced, a little more action packed in it. But there was, I don't think there was any concern that Sean and Brett couldn't pull it off. Let me just say, uh, we differ here. I don't think it was faster paced or action packed. I don't understand all the hype that this match gets. I know it's universally praised. Send your hate tweets to, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. I think both of these guys have had two dozen matches that were better than this one. I loved it. I thought it was great. Told a great story and really built for it. And, and all the way to the end, having, uh, you know, equal falls and going into the overtime, I, I thought it was a great story. And I thought that the match was absolutely excellent. We'll get there the week before the match, Brett went on the Chet Copic sports talk show and said, if he lost, he would consider retiring. When did Vince decide to add that wrinkle to the promotion of the event? And why did Vince seemingly love to tease the retirement of the big baby face at mania? He did this just four years prior with Hogan. And he starts to tease that a little bit here with Brett as well. Well, a lot of that was Brett's idea. It was Brett's idea to, to tease that he was going to retire. And then at the end of it to shoot him all the way back and, and him not to talk to anybody and even half-ass, you know, work the boys. So a lot of that was Brett's doing and Brett's own idea that Vince was cool with. There's a lot of debate uh, in the sheets at the time as to the decision to go with Sean and was it right for business? Uh, Meltzer freestyled that one of the reasons Vince may have favored Sean so much here is because of Bill Watts. We've often heard that someone can pitch Vince on a guy too much and it just turns Vince off to the person. Well, supposedly Bill Watts was pushing for Brett to be a long-term champion. And now Watts has just had a fallout with Vince and it's primarily about this Brett and Sean disagreement. Uh, what really happened here, Bruce was bill really championing Brett. And there was a little bit of an impasse between Watts and McMahon. I don't think so. I, it, that's not it at all. It was, uh, you know, the culmination of so many years, um, really of, of Pat and I just kind of constantly, you know, Sean, Sean's a guy and Vince God, for whatever reason. And it's funny how, how things change. Vince was dead set. It's never going to be Sean Michaels guys so much. So that the man that says never say never said, never make that suggestion again. I, I don't want to hear it again. Um, so it was a change in heart just because you can't deny talent. The cream always rises. Um, and Sean was there and Sean was that guy that was getting all the attention with his work. Now, yes, Bill, but Bill liked both guys, but yeah, Bill was, Bill was a big Brett supporter, but he was also a big Sean supporter. Meltzer wrote that the WWF's business was as strong as it had been in years. And there's a theory that you don't change champions when business is making a turnaround. Meltzer would report. There are a lot of people in the company who are pointing to when business was on top or when business was, was trending up, it's when Brett was on top, not Michaels. And that Brett was in the drawing position. Supporters of Michaels, on the other hand, were saying you could see a significant increase in attendance and buy rates as a result of the Royal rumble, which is when Sean returned from his career ending injury angle. And then of course won the match, um, with Michaels gone, the buy rate for the December pay-per-view was was amongst the lowest in the history of the promotion. So it feels like the way Meltzer is framing it here, that there is a little bit of divide amongst people in the company as to who they should go with here. Um, who was for Sean and who was against him here? 
I, I don't think that anybody was against him at this time. I, I think that, look, you, you got to understand, Brett was working the boys, and we knew Brett was going away, and Brett wanted to get away from the business, be just away from everything and everybody, not talk to anybody, not do anything, go do his Lonesome Dove or his Sinbad and, and all the outside projects that he had. And he felt that he could sell that. He felt that he would be able to convince people that maybe he had retired and maybe there was this, this true animosity between Brett and Sean. So all, all that was, was things that, that Brett was creating with Sean and they knew it. So again, I, I, we all knew we were all, man, there was no, there wasn't a division. We were going with Sean. The Iron Man match, in a sense, would show a little bit of a 180-degree change in the way the company had been booking WrestleMania. Uh, it had always been, you know, their superstar against a big guy. And this is the first time we have two smaller guys who were really probably the best performers as far as in-ring performers in the company at the time. Was Vince nervous about there not being a monster in there? I think Vince was just more nervous about, I don't know if Vince really believed in the attraction. He was, he knew that it was an ends to a means. He needed to do it to get to where he wanted to be with Sean as the champion. So yeah, I think Vince was nervous. I really do. Brett did Regis and Kathy Lee on March 26th. Of course, he's there to promote WrestleMania. We've talked about all these appearances before with like ravishing Rick Rude and the ultimate warrior. How did Brett do? in this role as WWF brand ambassador on TV. I'll tell you when it, if Brett had a, uh, female audience, man, Brett was great because he, he could come across as a kind of shy, aw shucks, you know, the, the girls loved him. He's a good looking guy and he could come across very humble and they loved him when it was a little bit different than that. Like a, um, a regular talk show or something like that. He didn't always do that. Well, he could, he could kind of stumble and fumble his way through, but for a Kathy Lee, that kind of environment, I think he was good. Uh, Brett and Sean were good friends uh, a few years prior to this. Sean had even gone to Brett's house, but going into WrestleMania, they're still friends, but maybe not as much as before. Brett has written that he felt like it was because they were in direct competition for the top babyface spot. How did you see that relationship start to change around this time? So I didn't see it to me. Um, I didn't see it going into WrestleMania. Now I definitely saw it upon Brett's return. Everybody saw it. Um, but going in knowing, you know, I keep saying about how we knew where we were going to go and that Brett was going away and Brett telling us, he goes, I'm, I'm going to kayfabe the boys. I'm, I'm going to stir my own, tell my own little subplot here. So anything that we heard, we're hearing, okay, man, it's working because the boys are believing Brett shit. Let me ask you, you know, isn't it a little weird considering what we're going to talk about a little later that Brett was okay, more than okay. It was his idea to work the boys. Isn't that a little ironic? It is. Let's go to WrestleMania 12. It's March 31st, Anaheim, California. Brett said earlier in that same day. He found Sean somewhere around lunchtime and they sit down and plan out the match. He let Sean piece out the first 25 minutes and then Brett did the rest. They sat here for about three hours planning out everything. 
And I assume they did this with Pat, right, Bruce? Yes, definitely. Pat was involved. Brett said something like, I expect we'll be working a rematch when I come back in six months. And, uh, he said in order to feed the supposed heat between them, he wouldn't be shaking Sean's hand after the match. He'd just storm out of the ring. And Brett said that Sean spent almost the entire morning planning this big special entrance. We all know about from WrestleMania 12 and Brett commented, I was impressed by how focused he was as WrestleMania went on. A lot of the boys came over and with tears in their eyes, thanked Brett, which was, he says, a customary deal that you would do whenever somebody dropped the belt. Um, is this really the tradition? I don't remember hearing about this before. I think it's cool if it was, but is this the last time it ever happened where the boys came over and thanked the guy for dropping the belt? Well, after the match, yeah, you always go and, and congratulate the guy who passed the torch. Um, in, in this instance, that didn't happen. And I don't know about it beforehand. I've never heard that beforehand. Uh, maybe some guys did came over and thanked him for his run and just thanked him for his contribution because there were rumblings. Brett was going away. Um, but after, you know, like I said, after the match, we, we followed him out and he left. I got to tell you, I didn't, um, love the way this match was booked. I would have liked to have seen some falls. I thought it was kind of boring because there weren't any falls. But a lot of people love it. You thought it was better with no falls like this? Yeah, I thought it was great. Of course, what we're talking about, if you haven't seen it, uh, and it is on the network, uh, they run out of time. They go 60 minutes, zero to zero. It looks like the match is about to be over, but time expires. They demand an overtime, and um, Gorilla Monsoon restarts the match. Uh, so at this point, Meltzer would write, the pop for that announcement was shockingly tepid. In the overtime, Michaels immediately hit two super kicks and got the pin in a minute 52 and celebrated in the ring for several minutes afterwards, nearly choking up in the celebration. Michaels did a Ken Shamrock by kissing Helen Hart and hugging Brett's son blade Meltzer would rate the match. Do you want to guess what he gave it? 18 stars. I gave it four and a quarter stars. Brett wrote in his Man. book with five minutes remaining. I hoisted him up like a sack of cement and snapped him across my knee. Uh, I smiled at the time clock and I told Sean the last five minutes were all his and we were right on schedule. So I leaped off the second rope only to be jolted by a vicious stiff boot to the jaw from Sean. And then one potato after another, he took every Liberty he could stiffing me on drop kicks and elbow smashes. Even so we both knew the match was a masterpiece. It had been a beautiful movie to watch, especially since the crowd loved us both by the end of it. It was probably the greatest match I had ever had or close anyway. I squeezed Sean's wrist to give him the cue that we were going home in this ending. The better man would lose after the match was over. Brett said, I couldn't believe my ears. When I heard Sean angrily tell Earl, tell him to get the fuck out of the ring. This is my moment. I had firmly placed the torch in that little monster's hand, but I also knew that no one was going to forget about me with my head held high. I walked to my waiting Lincoln and burned rubber up the ramp as the credits rolled. What do you think of this report that Brett says that Sean took some liberties here? I'd never heard that before until I read the book. Again, I think, I think that's just, you know, Brett being Brett and, uh, you know, I don't know if Sean did or he didn't. I thought that the match was excellent and you know, the, the rest of that stuff is probably him writing in his book, trying to, to continue 
But we, again, we, we all knew, we all knew that's what we wanted everyone to believe that there was real animosity there. And, um, you know, again, you, you have to understand from Sean Earl and everybody else's standpoint, they're getting cues. And at that time we didn't have the earpieces, but I had a timekeeper out there and we're counting down. I've only got so much time left on pay-per-view. Okay. If you go over on pay-per-view and you lose your window, they don't see the finish of the match. So we've got to get off the air and we wanted Sean's celebration. So, um, Sean probably did say that. I'm sure he did. Um, but it's to, he had to get a celebration in. We knew how much time we had and we needed to go. We didn't have time to milk that. What do you make of the comment about getting out of my ring? Heat of the moment. And he's, you know, he's, he's got to do his stuff. He knows he has to get a celebration in. He's being yelled at by production people, probably the handheld cameraman and Mark Eaton at ringside and like, you know, celebrate, celebrate, get to your thing. And Brett's still in the ring. So I I could see Sean doing that absolutely in the heat of the moment. Do you think the match lived up to the hype? Yes. What did, uh, what did Pat and Vince think of the match? Loved it. Pat was crying. Oh my God. Pat was out of That's a beautiful. I love you both so much. Brett said the next day at raw Owen called him from the building and told Brett that everyone thinks there's so much heat between you and Sean, because you wouldn't shake his hand. And Brett said something like that's the best thing in the world. Keep everyone thinking that I still think it's so weird that Brett is all for working the boys here. Uh, do you remember any of the boys say anything to you about this alleged heat? Yes. You know, in, in the, the feeling was that, you know, Brett was, was boo-boo face and poor sport. And, you know, I can't believe that he, you know, he didn't wait till afterwards and talk to Sean after the match and, and so on and so forth. Um, Brett was of the feeling that you tell this story and if you can get the boys to believe you can get everybody else to believe. That's, that's what he did. And it, 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 everybody believed it. Everybody believed there was animosity there and there wasn't. After the Germany tour ends, which is April 22nd, uh, with the possible exception of a week in may and bookings in Kuwait, Hart is expected to go on hiatus until at least the end of the summer. There's already been a lot of talk of a Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart rematch at SummerSlam, perhaps in a ladder match. Uh, so this is all in the wrestling observer and. Dave even mentions that there's been a lot of talk that he may not return quickly or even at all. So even Meltzer isn't really sure what's going on. April 7th in Dortmund, Germany, we would see Brett work with Steve Austin. And I believe this is their first match ever. Uh, he would spend the rest of this tour in Germany, working Owen Hunter, Austin bulldog and Owen again. Uh, and then they start bouncing around a little bit. Helmsley, Austin bulldog. Uh, through Kuwait City's working tags with the Undertaker against Owen and Bulldog. And somewhere in here, he beat Leaf Cassidy in a tournament for the Kuwaiti uh, tournament that Ahmed Johnson would win, which is kind of fun. Uh, Owen beat uh, Brett clean at some point in that tournament. And I think that match might be on the network. Uh, on April 15th, while he's in the middle of this tour through April and May, uh, Brett does an interview from Germany that largely is done just to sort of quell the rumors. He's going to WCW. Uh, he says that, uh, he feels like going to WCW would be a step down and that a lot of the guys who've left, 
left because they're greedy. Uh, was there ever any real concern right after WrestleMania? We're going to fast forward, of course, to the talk in the fall, but in April, was there a real concern that Brett may follow diesel and razor or not so much? No, not at all. In early June 96, while Brett's at home, he gets a call from a film director named Paul J who's pitching him on making a movie about him and his life. Uh, and he drives and meets him at a film festival. And of course we know this is going to become wrestling with shadows. When did you first hear about the movie, Bruce? Oh boy. I, I don't remember exactly when, but the first time that we heard about it was through Carl DeMarco, who was, uh, promoting our Canadian shows president, the president of Canada, Carl DeMarco. Uh, I feel like you don't like Carl DeMarco. Every time you bring him up, you have a shit. I love, no, no, I absolutely love Carl DeMarco. Jim Cornette coined the phrase of Carl DeMarco calling goddamn bison head motherfucker. Cause Carl had an extremely large head. No, Carl, uh, <laughs> Carl's a good guy. Nothing wrong with Carl. We just always had fun with Carl because he was very sensitive and he, he was, he was fun to, to rib. Uh, Brett said he went to Vince's house and told him that he saw himself coming back eventually and would like to have a chip on his shoulder after losing to Sean. Brett suggests they work a rematch that Brett narrowly wins to regain the title in another epic babyface contest. This of course sets up a third match, the rubber match where Brett would put Sean over clean. Then he'd shake his hand and endorse him. Allegedly both Jr. and Vince like this. They're both there when he makes this pitch at Vince's house. Do you remember this meeting or hearing about it? I remember the meeting. I wasn't there. I, I remember them having the meeting, Brett coming in and, you know, talking about coming back. I think that in, well, which we'll get to, but, uh, Vince just felt that that was rushing it a lot for Brett to come back and just win the title. And we were doing well with Sean at the time and he liked where everything was going. So it was, you know, we had different plans. You weren't doing well, but maybe, yeah, we were doing well. We were doing well with Sean. We we're doing as well as we were doing with Brett before. Well, that's actually not true. Yeah, it is. No, the business does not support that. Ratings no. went to shit. Buy rates went to shit. Attendance is down. This is, you got to remember June of 96 is when the end. And now Brett couldn't have competed with that either. I don't believe that Brett could have competed either, but he does have the Sean does have the unfortunate circumstance of being champion head to head with the NWO. That's true. And, but at the same time, you, you have to look at, do you, do you abandon this and go back to old, if you will, uh, w with Brett and we had Steve Austin coming up at the time and there was, you know, Vince was looking at Brett. God, if he comes back, just right back to Sean, we, we kind of had built that for a long time the year before, and it just was too soon. Now, logically speaking, and, and that's the predictable thing, what everybody thought, uh, in the meantime, here comes this guy, Steve Austin, coming up, and people are really kind of getting behind Steve and is a heel. Uh, thinking, well, damn, Brett could sure as hell elevate this guy. Let's talk about this meeting at Vincent's house. When Vince is walking Brett to the limo, Vince says something like you're much smarter than people give you credit for. Uh, and Brett said, after having worked with him for like 12 years, he didn't know what to make of that. Have you ever heard of that? And does Vince say stuff like this often that just sort of catches people off guard? You're much smarter but, than people give you credit for. 
Yeah, I have no idea what he means by that. Vince always hits you with some weird shit. Brent said on the plane ride home, he's seated right next to Sean, and uh, they kind of discuss that it's best that everyone continues to believe that they hate each other, including the boys, and not to acknowledge that they were even talking. Uh, and he makes some sort of remarks about, hey, I'm going to start talking about your in-ring character just so we can build up WrestleMania 13 when I get my return match and win the belt back. And Brett said, I saw the color drain from his face. Clearly he didn't like the sound of any of this. And then Brett explained, well, in the third match, I'm going to put you over and endorse you. And he says, I wanted him to know I understood better than anyone that Vince needed him to be the WWF's next big star and that he could trust me in the end. Nobody could make him like I could. Do you remember hearing this sort of timeline and thinking, Hey, that makes sense. We're all for it. Or was this all just what Brett kind of wanted to do the return at 13 and then a rubber match another time? No, that was, that was in Brett's head and that's what Brett wanted to do. And Vince obviously had different ideas. The July 1st observer would report that WCW was out looking for their mystery man for the bash at the beach, the third man in the NWO. And everyone agreed that Bret Hart would be the best guy for the spot. Even the hotline was teasing it, but supposedly Bret had turned down every single offer. Uh, and then that same summer, I guess a week later in the observer, it was reported that the ultimate warrior stuff had come to a head and they needed a last minute replacement. So Vince calls Bret and asks him to make a couple of shots from Detroit and Pittsburgh to make up for the warrior, not being there as a make good to the fans. And Brett just flatly says no. So they make a call to Sid Udy, who's been out of action for months. Of course, Sid Vicious, Psycho Sid, whatever you prefer. What was Vince's reaction to being told no? It doesn't feel like he hears no a lot. And Brett said no here. Disappointed. We, we needed somebody and we needed somebody on short notice. The idea behind having... Bruce, take your uh, pills. Already did. Uh... The idea behind having someone the magnitude of the warrior no show, you always want to have a substitution that is better than what you had originally advertised. And since Brett had been gone, to be able to put a Bret Hart in that situation would have been off the charts. And it wasn't like we were asking him to come back and you know, we'll come back and we're gonna put you on TV and so on and so forth. And I think Vince was just more disappointed than anything. Brett's 13-year-old nephew, Matt, passed away on July 13th, uh, two days after he had been wrestling uh, inside a ring uh, at the Hart House. And he died from a disease that apparently just goes viral through your system. Uh, Streptococcus, I believe is how you pronounce it. And Brett believed that maybe this got into his body through a small cut on his thumb that maybe he picked up from an unwashed ring pretty awful thing to have to think about, but did you ever hear this dirty ring canvas theory? Oh yeah. And it was, it was terrible. It was, uh, you know, Ted Annis and, and, and Georgia, uh, was his mom. And it, it just was so sad, absolutely sad to lose a child that young age. Um, but unfortunately that's a case where you've had a lot of people getting staff and just horrible injuries and infections from dirty rings. It's just an unfortunate deal. It is. 
Of course, uh, in July, Hulk Hogan would join the NWO at Bash at the Beach. And two weeks later, on July 23rd, Vince chartered a plane to go to Calgary to meet with Vince or to meet with Brett. And he says something like, whatever you want. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get Brett under contract. He sees the NWO as a real threat now and doesn't want him leaving for WCW. And he tells him that Undertaker and Sean are both making about $700,000 a year but that he'll give you whatever you want. Uh, Brett didn't sign and, um, he gave Vince his word that he would return in the fall. Do you remember this whole meeting where there's a, whatever you want speech and Brett's still not signing? I think Brett may have heard whatever you want. Um, there was, as we were trying to do our budgets for the, the following year and we're up against WCW who's offering guaranteed money, you know, guaranteed contracts. And we're still looking at our contracts and our contracts offer opportunity, no dollar sum other than you get paid $25 for TV in the contract. So we had to change the way that we did business and we came up with the downside guarantees and trying to do those. So it was, you know, Brett, we had to get him under contract. We didn't God, it would have been just horrible for us in, in business at the time. If, you know, after this whole thing, Brett, former WWF champion and his next major appearance is with the competitors. In September, he worked a couple of shows in South Africa, beating the bulldog and then tagging with Mark Merrow against Owen and bulldog. So the September 9th edition of the observer would report that the plan is going to be come back for a match at survivor series against Austin, and then do a couple of shots at the pay-per-views in December and January, and then be back full-time on the road sometime in January to start building for WrestleMania. Let me just pick up from the observer here. What he's saying, the apparent sketchy plan would be the shooter angle at the Royal rumble to lead to the Hart Michaels return match for next year's WrestleMania. It would make sense that the title switch would take place at that show for several reasons. First off, Hart made it clear he wouldn't return unless the belt was in the cards and he was unhappy enough at having to put Shawn Michaels over last year. It's doubtful he'd agree to come back if it meant putting him over a second time. Second, Michaels had apparently made it clear that he would pot, he would put Hart over in a title match provided he was promised to get the belt back at a specific time in the future. Hart had told business friends that he was offered substantially more money by WCW. Some people saying three times as much, but felt that going to that company would be a step down. Set the record straight here, Bruce by September and October of 1996. Do you believe Brett was promised a win over Sean for the belt at WrestleMania 13? No. See, and, and that's, and that's where, you know, narrative comes in. I can hear the conversation right now because I've heard it a million times with, you know, Brett and Vince and Vince saying to him, you know, God damn power come back and, and we, we can do a little something. We'll bring you back. Maybe program you with Austin and have a, have something here eventually down the line. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do something with you and Sean and the championship and then maybe, you know, get another one out of that. And, and, uh, who knows where the hell we can go. All the talent hears, I'm getting the belt, and then they want me to drop it back to him at some point. Well, I sh that should happen at WrestleMania. That should happen at WrestleMania, and then I'll drop it back to him. They fill in the blanks with what they want to hear and what they think they heard. But, you know, knowing Vince for all those years, he was Vince didn't get that specific. And if he did get that specific, then usually that's what you did. 
But I, you know, I, I can hear him, you know, right now being very vague and saying, you know, talking in broad strokes, what could, what could happen? And he all, and he would always preface it with this could happen, not a guarantee it's going to happen. I found it interesting that Brian Pillman starts to promote. He's going to interview Brett at the mind games pay-per-view. Uh, but instead Brett's actually in South Africa at that time, filming an episode of Sinbad television. Who's to blame in a situation like this, where you guys advertise something for a pay-per-view, but you can't deliver it. And no one's even checked with the talent. Well, I think the whole idea was that Brian Pillman was a liar. So just lie to sell the pay-per-view. No, yeah, it Hart was, fan. nobody was tuning in to see the Bret Hart interview. So you're saying Brett wasn't a draw. I'm saying that a Bret Hart interview with Brian Pillman wasn't, we made it clear that this is Brian Pillman promising it, not the WWF. Around the same time, they start to build on TV, the eventual Brent Hart and Steve Austin match. Austin starts to make these comments about Brett. Uh, he's doing interviews and saying something like, if you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you have my exact opinion of Brent Hart. Uh, he's also on live wire cutting promos about him saying he's going to beat the hell out of him. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, did Brent handpick Austin as a return opponent or how did that come together? Is that Vince pitching it? That was something that that we had pitched and we thought that, uh, Brett coming back and Steve, their styles match, Brett liked working with Steve. Steve wanted to work with Brett. It was a natural. So the idea behind it was we did all these vignettes, which were produced by David Sahadi, um, you know, with the dogs barking and Steve just walking and talking and cutting promos on Brett. I thought it was some of the best buildup for a match without two guys having to, to cut an, uh, an angle, shoot an angle that had ever been done. Brett says on September 25th, he's in Los Angeles to do a guest appearance on the Simpsons. And when his lawyer, Barry Bloom tells him that Eric Bischoff wants to meet with him, uh, whenever he gets to Los Angeles. So when Brett lands, and gets to the hotel, Eric's already on his way to his room. And Eric says something like, what's it going to take to bring you to WCW? And Brett says, I want the exact same contract as Hulk Hogan plus one penny. Of course, Bischoff says he can't do anything like that right now. And, uh, Brett says, I'm not really looking to go anywhere. I'm happy where I'm at. And Eric persists. Come on, at least give me something I can go back to my people with. And Brett says, I'd think about coming to work for you guys for $3 million a year in a lighter schedule. And Eric actually says, well, at least I have a number now. Let me take it back to the Turner people in Atlanta. Two days later, on September 27th, Bischoff calls and offers Brett a contract for $2.8 million a year for three years to go to WCW, and Brett says he'd think about it. Well, of course, rumors get out because of Carl DeMarco. Carl DeMarco calls and tells Vince what's up, and then Vince calls and says, hey, I'm hearing rumors that you've already signed. And uh, he says, no, I haven't signed, and I won't do anything until we talk. So they talked that weekend. And Brett's asking for $3 million for three years for 180 days a year. And he wants Vince to match it. Vince says he can't match it. So he gives him the best offer he can. Um, and he promises to make this offer in person. And he does so on October 9th, he flies up to Calgary and does it in person. And during the meeting, Brett would tell Vince about the wrestling with shadows documentary. And Vince said he had no problem giving Paul access to the matches in the backstage area. Before we continue about the contract, do you think if Brett wouldn't have brought 
where he's trying to resign him. There's any fucking chance wrestling with shadows gets made. Probably not. And, and see, you know, there's another big part that, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever really shared. Well, I have in, in some different things, but, um, you know, the, the big part that's missing there was during this same time frame that Hulk Hogan's contract with WCW was coming up. I've actually got that in my notes here and that's, that's how Vince helps close the deal. Right. And well, no, not really. I mean, it it was, we, (laughs) we had many a late night, uh, at the office kind of going over, you know, figures and, and who's it going to be. Do we invest X amount in trying to get Hulk or do we invest X amount in keeping Brett? Uh, is it a big enough get for the WWF to bring Hogan back or, and, and let them take Brett or do we keep Brett and focus on him? Meltzer wrote one of the interesting keys to the story is that, and I think everybody listening to this knows that Brett had still been pissed off since 1993 when Hogan left without putting Brett over, he feels like that wasn't done the right way. The whole WrestleMania deal, what was maybe going to happen at SummerSlam. He feels like he's kind of been jilted by Hulk Hulk Hogan. So you would think that would be a negative. You don't want to go to WCW and have to work with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, who you've had problems with, but somewhere in these negotiations, Vince says something like Hogan and Randy Savage's WCW contracts are both coming due between now and the end of the year. And he suggested it was possible or even more than possible that one or both of them might actually wind up back in the WWF in 97, which of course makes you think that Brett might see this as an opportunity to finally get this return win and get this win over Hulk Hogan. I feel like this is a pretty masterful thing for Vince to drip out here, because if you know that it's a hot button of Brett's that he really, really wants to be Hulk Hogan. Because he takes his character very seriously. Maybe that's pretty smart. No, that wasn't what he pitched. And and it was never the, that was never even considered because it was an either or situation. But Brett, Brett probably didn't know it was an either or. I, I, I believe that there were probably in Brett's mind and people, you know, on the outside going, Hey, Hogan's contract's coming up. I hear he's talking to Vince and Brett thinking, Oh, I can get this done in his mind, but truly from, and I was a hundred percent a part of all of that. Um, that was never the case. It was an either or situation. Um, and we had to pick them and we picked Brett. I'm not suggesting it wasn't either or I'm just saying Brett may not have known it. And it may have been something that Vince could just float out there. What if, and it would be attractive. Ultimately Vince offers Brett a 20 year deal. For ten and a half million, it's one and a half million dollars a year for three years as a wrestler, five hundred thousand dollars for the next seven as one of his senior advisors, and then two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year after for the next ten years, which uh, I guess makes him like the Babe Ruth of the company. And then Vince said something like, "I'll never give you a reason to ever want to leave." And Brett said WCW was offering almost that same amount for three years, but he just couldn't leave Vince. So he accepted the offer and they shook hands. Meltzer would write after a bidding war, the likes of which have never been seen in this profession. Brent Hart appears to be likely choosing the world wrestling federation for a deal 
that may pay him more over four years than any wrestler in history with the exception of Hulk Hogan has made in a career. Was there instant regret about offering Brett such a deal? It feels like everybody feels like this was a bad deal from the jump. No, not from, not from the jump. No. And because we were looking at, it was a defensive move in many regards. It was both offensive and defensive, but a lot of it was defensive. We didn't want him to go to WCW. We felt that that, that was a hit that would have hurt us much more so than, than the other ones. The other ones were hurting us. You know, it seemed like every other day that people were heading over to WCW. So we didn't want one of our biggest stars, you know, a homegrown star to, to go there as well. And the math the math worked. Um, Neville Meyer, who was the CEO at the time, is the one who who kind of orchestrated this whole thing as far as a way to to structure the deal, and it made sense at the time. One of the things I found interesting is uh, the way Meltzer reported this story once it was signed. He would say that Titan sources said McMahon didn't come anywhere close to that three million dollar WCW offer. But WCW sources say not only did he match it, he upped it. And sources close to heart basically confirmed the WCW story and claim McMahon offered just under $4 million per year for a four-year deal, which is more than one would think the company could even afford given the revenue it takes in. Allegedly, the $4 million per year number is not all in cash, but with a series of goodies that all added up, if liquidated, would come to $4 million a year. Um... He goes on and on about how nobody besides Hulk Hogan has ever even earned that amount of money in their career, much less over a three or four year period. When you guys hear about this $4 million number, which is clearly inaccurate, but Brett's people are confirming it and WCW is confirming it, which is good for business. I get it. I mean, is this just passed around the office and everybody's laughing $4 million a year? There's no chance. No, there's no chance. It's just complete fabrication. But, but again, that's the kind of stuff that Dave Meltzer reports as fact and thing. Yeah. I'll give you a fact. You want me to talk numbers? I'll give you numbers. You know what my budget was that year to, for the entire roster? What? $9 million. So that was my budget. Your 1996 budget was 9 million. Right. So yeah, you're not going to give, uh, almost half of that to one guy. Right. Uh, we should mention here because we're going to talk about this later in a different way. Brett's old deal was signed in September of 1992, and it gave him the option to leave at any time he wanted with a 90 day notice. He negotiated that when he learned the hard way in 92, when he tried to leave for WCW while still the intercontinental champion. Let me say that again in 1992, nobody talks about this. Brett is the intercontinental champion and tries to leave the world wrestling federation for WCW while he's the intercontinental champion. But apparently those contracts were automatically renewable and only allowed the 90 day notice during a certain window each year. So when Brett discovers this and resigns is forced to resign, he says, okay, but now I can leave anytime I want with a 90 day notice. Smarten everybody up who might not be on the loop about the time that Brett tried to jump to WCW in 1992. Well, uh, my name is Tony Schiavone and I wasn't there. I wasn't there when he did that. Well, but you heard about it. So do what you do every other time I ask you a question. Make some shit up. 
Okay. Well, he, he wanted to go and he said, I'm leaving. No. Um, the, the issue is, is like on the auto auto renewal is you had by the, you had 90 days before your contract renews to, to give your notice one way or another. And obviously Brett didn't know that clause exists in his contract. Otherwise it just, it just renews. Um, so I, I had heard the rumblings, but nobody, nobody really took it seriously because he was under contract and, and on the WWF side, they just felt that, that was a bunch of rumor and innuendo and bullshit because he couldn't go anywhere. So they, they were protected. So he agreed to this contract just a little while before the, the Fort Wayne, Indiana raw on October 21st, 1996. And in this promo, he does a live interview where he acknowledges the offer from a rival wrestling company, which he praised and said they handled him honestly and with integrity. And, um, you know, they were good guys, but Vince wanted him in the middle of this to tear up the WCW contract on live TV. And of course, this is supposedly the idea for retaliation after Medusa threw the women's belt in a trash can. Do you remember asking Brett to tear up the WCW contract on TV? I hadn't heard that before. No, no. And it was, it was as simple as, you know, Brett coming out and give us your decision. Now, you know, Vince K faved everybody on what his decision was. I know that Vince knew and I knew, but there was still that that tinge of we're live. He had played games with us all the way up into this point. Is he going to get out there on live TV and, and, and go the other way? So there was that tinge, that unknown and that uneasy feeling, um, with everybody. Oh my God. Cornette was going nuts. Oh damn. What's he going to do? So I guess we'll find out. It's worth mentioning when WCW was offering him 2.8 million a year, only 800,000 of that was supposed to be for wrestling. And that's for 180 dates. Uh, the other $2 million came from two movies per year at $1 million per movie. And that was going to be through Turner, Tom Warner. And they were trying to structure a deal that was similar to Hulk Hogan, where WCW wouldn't have all the expense on their books. So it would still look like they were running a profitable company. Uh, and allegedly this whole contract with Brett gets everybody fired up in WCW because according to the rumor and innuendo hall and Nash have a clause in their contract that says they have to be the highest paid behind Hogan. So if somebody comes in and gets a bump, well, they get a bump too. So allegedly they're making around seven eighty a year. So if it's just 800,000 for wrestling and it's structured that way, then they only get a $20,000 bump. But if those movies aren't stipulated. Now it's a $2.8 million contract. And those guys are getting an extra 2 million a year. Has anyone in wrestling ever negotiated such a clause like that before or after that, you know, of not that I know of, that was the first time I'd ever heard it. And the last time that I know of anybody ever getting something like that. I just find, um, that whole signing thing really fascinating. Uh, we should mention here that the WCW contract was in his back pocket, according to the rumor and innuendo when he did that promo. Um, and before he does the promo, Brett went to Sean and asked permission. Can I say something about your playgirl magazine spread? And Sean said, say whatever you want. 
So they start to do a little bit of planting the seeds with Brett and Sean, but right now we're trying to set up the, the confrontation with Austin and Brett. So they do the split screen on October 28th. And this of course leads to the visit to Brian Pillman's house with the gun. You can hear all about that in our Pillman episode. The week before Survivor Series, Austin flies up to meet Brett at his home in Calgary, and they work out the entire match at Brett's house. He says they're standing by the ring in Brett's pool room, and Steve said something to Brett like, I don't feel like Sean's the right guy to lead the company. So Brett is starting to feel like some of the boys are not really feeling Sean as their leader. This takes us to Survivor Series, November 17th, Madison Square Garden, Brett gets the pin over Austin in 28 and a half minutes, a classic match that Meltzer gave four and a half stars. Um, one of my favorite matches, Austin on the map. And, uh, this is probably the type of match that would have made Austin to Vince McMahon, right? Uh, wholeheartedly. It was, you know, that you get the, you get the opportunity. So now here's your chance and you can either, you know, uh, make it or break it. And Steve made it all the Steve's, you know, I, I can't remember Steve disappointing any time that he was ever given the ball, but this was a big one. It's one of my favorite matches. The finish is awesome. It's very similar to the finish of Brett's match with Roddy Piper at WrestleMania eight. Uh, and the stipulation of the match here is that the winner is going to get a world title shot the next month and in your house. Um, of course, in the main event of survivor series, Sid would beat Sean to become the world champion. So your main event is going to be Sid versus Bret Hart for in your house. It's time without Vader in the main event. Uh, I found it interesting to note in my research here that Brett said that in the match, he felt like both Vince and Jr. were taking subtle cheap shots at him during commentary. I didn't remember that at the time, but the paranoia is deep with Bret Hart by this point. Is it not? It, it really was. And it, and it just was, you know, it's astonishing. It's a work. It's work. We're telling stories and sometimes guys, guys get upset over things that are said and, and it's to get a rise out of people or it's, it's to tell a story. That's November, all it is. November 27th. They're in London. Brett beats Vader. The next day they're in Birmingham. Brett beats mankind by DQ. They're in Dubai for a one night King of the ring tournament. And we would see Brett beat bulldog. And then he would beat Austin in the finals to win the tournament. And now we're to December 15th in West Palm beach. It's in your house. It's time. We would see Sid get a clean win over Brett with a power bomb after about 17 minutes. And after the match, Brett would attack Sean at ringside who was doing commentary at the time. Uh, Meltzer gave it three stars. How did Brett like working with Sid? We haven't really talked about that dynamic yet. I don't know that he liked it or didn't like it. I, I think Brett always liked to work with workers and mechanics in the ring that he could do a lot with. I don't think that he really disliked Sid, but you know, again, you go back to pivotal moments. Had Brett made those shots when Vince asked him to, uh, for Pittsburgh and wherever else it was when warrior left had Brett made those shots, the chances of Sid coming in wouldn't have happened. Yeah, exactly. Sid wouldn't be champion here. It would have to be somebody else. Right. I mean, we wouldn't, you know, maybe, maybe Sid might, might've made his way back at this point, but Sid wasn't even in the conversation. So and then he comes in and it's like, all of a sudden, well, now I got a big monster and Sean beating a big monster versus doing another baby face match and 
goddamn Steve and uh, well, Brett have good chemistry. Keep going. The person who got fucked the most out of that is Vader. Because had Brett made the shots, Sid wouldn't have been back. Vader there you go. may have actually main evented a pay-per-view named after him in your house. You it's go. time. Um, December 17th, Daytona beach. Brett would beat the Sultan. This is the WWF folks. A week later on the 23rd, Brett would beat razor Ramon by submission. That's right. The fake razor, Brett and fake razor. What did he think of wrestling fake razor? Well, fake razor was a Canadian, so he liked it. Oh my gosh. Uh, on well, the, a Canadian hero beating a, a fake Canadian that it works on the December 30th raw. Uh, we would see an in-ring with Brett and Sean face-to-face, and Brett's mic kept going out. Uh, Sean was great, as he sarcastically said he wasn't worthy of going first ahead of the almighty Brett. And Brett starts to rip on Sean, saying he's promised to carry the title with prestige and class, but never came close. He says that if you're not 14 years old and female, you don't get into Sean, and referred to his gimmick by attempting to portray Sean as a man's man by saying, well, whose man is he? Uh, just as Sean started his comeback, of course, Sid shows up and points out that he beat both of those guys and asked for competition. So the lights go out and out comes the undertaker before you know it, Vader's out there. Uh, we've got a pier six brawl. Uh, it's kind of fun to me to see Vader sneak back in here because that's technically his spot. Uh, January 6th on raw, we see Vader get a, a win over Bret Hart. And then on January 10th in San Jose, Triple H would defend the Intercontinental title in a triple threat match, beating both Brett and Austin, which I don't think a lot of people would have guessed would have happened early in 97. Let's fast forward to the Royal Rumble. Uh, it goes down January 19th. We've covered this in long form in the archives, but we'll briefly mention here. Brett comes into the Rumble match number 21 and eliminates Lawler and Diesel. He also eliminates Austin, but the refs didn't see it. So Austin snakes back in and he throws Brett out. Uh, at the end of the match, Brett goes over to the commentator's table and starts yelling at Vince. So this is the first time it's really been done by a wrestler. And this feels like the seeds are starting to be planted for a Brett heel turn. Uh, is that the only reason that that would have happened or what's the thinking at the time? Well, we're experimenting with it at this point and it, it, it was a natural, it, it just, it just worked. And the, you know, the other funny thing was you and I just watched this match not long ago and watching the, the build of stone cold, Steve Austin and, and how over he was getting. And in those matches with Steve and Brett, the audience, they were leaning towards Steve. They, they loved Steve's uh, promos. They liked his work and Brett was kind he was coming off whiny and bitchy being Brett. Brett was turning himself heel in his promos. So you go with it. Of course, the original plan was for Brett to win the Royal rumble, but Vince Russo spoiled that we covered that on our Russo episode and in our rumble 97. If you'd like to check that out the next night in uh, Beaumont, Texas, Vince tells Brett what he wants him to do. And Brett thinks he's going to be killed off with the fans if he does it, but he does it anyway. He does a promo where he says, I was screwed out of my title match with Sid by Shawn Michaels. I got screwed at the rumble by stone cold. I got screwed by the WWF. And then he points at Vince and says, I got screwed by you. And then he quits and walks through the crowd later in the show. Gorilla monsoon is making a match for the next in your house to have a final four match with the winner wrestling Sean at WrestleMania. And he invites Brett to take part. Uh, of course, Brett comes back through the crowd and accepts and then starts to fight with Austin. 
Uh, this feels like you guys are, are experimenting in a big way here because this has never really been done before. Uh, let's kind of run you through what's going on at the end of January. They're all over the place, Oklahoma, New York, Philadelphia, uh, and Sean is getting wins over Brett and Sid in triple threat matches. And on January 25th in New York, they do a shotgun Saturday night taping. And this is where Brett beat mankind by DQ. And I believe this might be when we had a fun one-liner from Terry Funk. Well, I, I, no, I wasn't your mother's a whore. Um, but you know, I, I go back to, and these are, these are the little things that, that the audience and the fans don't, don't know and don't understand too, was Brett had reached a point where you ask everybody to be at the building at one o'clock. So you can do pre-tapes and promos. You've got everyone there and it's just, that's what time you show up for work. This Saturday night's main event, we were in Webster hall. I believe that's where it was. And we're waiting on Brett to get there. It's his first shotgun Saturday night. We go live at uh, 1130 or whatever it is. And, and Brett shows up at 11 o'clock for a live show. And it, it was little things like that, that, that he constantly did and, and would show up to the buildings. Everybody else would have to be at the building uh, for a seven o'clock show. You need to be there by uh, six o'clock and he would show up at seven 30. So there were just different instances like that that were continually happening that, that made it more difficult to deal with Brett than everybody else in some instances. Yeah, that's going to be a, a subject we cover here in just a minute. Brett's showing up late. Uh, on January 31st, they do a Sky Dome Raw taping, and Meltzer wrote, the best part of the show was the Brett hart Shawn Michaels confrontation. It was acknowledged that this was in Brett's hometown because the entire country of Canada is one town. Uh, and they did this on commentary to explain why Sean was being booed uh, in the match. Sean would pin Brett after Austin interfered. Uh, the next couple of days they did double shots in Montreal during the day and in Ottawa at night. It was again, a triple threat match with triple H getting a win over Brett and Austin. Of course, both of these shows have Brett working in the main event in this triple threat match. So Brett would say he's set to go on last and he shows up about two hours before he needs to be there. According to Brett's testimony, he says the first match is just now in the ring. So I'm two hours ahead of time, but he says when he gets there, Austin catches him by his arm and tells him that Sean and triple H were making a big deal about Brett being late. And he also says that Sean has been trying to drive a wedge between he and he and Brett and Steve says the way Sean was doing this was to say that Brett had been asked to put Steve over a few days ago in Toronto, but Brett refused. Well, Brett tells Steve that's just not true. Later on, Pat came to Brett and told him that Vince would like to put Hunter over just to show the boys. Brett said he didn't mind doing it one bit. And then he said, but when the boys you're talking about happened to only be Sean and Hunter, it does bother me. So Bruce, the way this is presented, it feels like Austin's a straight up dude. Brett thinks the rules don't apply to him and he can show up whenever and Hunter and Sean are shit disturbers. Do I have this about right? <laughs> no, it, it wasn't just Brett and Sean. It was everybody because everybody had to be there ahead of time and everybody had to be there. Like I said, if you're supposed to be at work at nine o'clock in the morning and you show up because, well, I don't have an appointment until, um, 
my my important work isn't until noon, so I'll show up at noon. But you want people there at nine o'clock for other things, and they need to do personal appearances. They need to do meet and greets. They need to go over their matches. Everybody needs to be there. And if those are the rules, then everyone should abide by them. Well, just to be clear, I said Brett doesn't think the rules apply to him. I and you understand. said no. And then you no, no, exactly no. You said, right. is that, is that clear that Sean and, and Hunter were the only shit disturbers and, and that they were the only ones unhappy that he didn't apply by the rules. And I said, no, everybody was upset. It wasn't just Sean and Hunter, everyone, including the agents okay. who Here's, were frustrated looking for Brett. Maybe you missed the part where Hunter and Sean have said that they told Austin, Hey, Brett refused to put you over the other day in Toronto. Okay. And is that in Austin's book or something? It's in Brett's book. That's what okay. Austin it's in, it's in, it's in Brett's book. So again, it, it's hearsay rumor and innuendo. I have no idea if that happened or not. When we're talking about Brett's professionalism and timeliness and showing up late, that was something that, that perturbed everybody, especially on TV days when you're trying to do pre-tapes and you're trying to do a million other things and the talent doesn't show up till 30 minutes before the show. Are we allowed to say anything critical of triple H on this show? Or is that? No, you absolutely. You can. Okay. It's just going to be hard when your lips are glued to his asshole. That's all. Well, my lips aren't fucking glued to his asshole. Well, I just said he's a shit disturber because they're putting it in his head. No, you're saying that, that fucking Brett said something. I don't know if that's true or not. I have no idea. Did he say it to me? No, you made the implication that they were the only two that were upset about Brett being late. And that wasn't the case. I didn't make the implication. I'm saying that Austin said they were making a big deal out of it and that they said he refused to put him over. Okay. The Brett said that Austin said that that's my point. I don't know because I didn't hear Steve Austin's conversation with Brett Hart saying that. Okay. Thanks, Tony. So the next day Brett calls Vince and asks him, where are you going with me? And Vince says, you'll probably think this is crazy, but you'll screw Sean this Thursday at Lowell TV. So Sid wins the belt. Then in the final four and in your house, Sean will screw you out of winning. And from there, Taker will work with Sid at mania for the belt. And Sean will put his hair up in a ladder match and you'll cut it all off. Brett said he was a bit stumped as to how casual Vince was. And he says, so it's not me and Sean at WrestleMania for the belt. And Vince says it's too predictable. Now I'm changing it. Brett said he could see this for what it was. Sean had refused to work with him or put him over and it changed everything. Uh, Bruce, I'm a little confused here. I kind of assume that everything I just laid out was the plan in reaction to Sean just losing his smile and forfeiting the belt, which we're about to talk about, but what the fuck happened here? This was the plan before that. Well, no, it, it was Vince sitting there looking at and, and Vince loves Sid. God damn. Look at that big bastard. And thinking of, you know, there's the guy, you know, we can go with and, and make him a champion. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, shit, he's a heel. And yeah. And Sean losing his friggin' smile in the middle of all this shit. And I've got a, I've got a bad knee and I've, I've got to go home and go do the promo. I can't work. I can't go out and drop the title tonight. Uh, cause I've got a bad knee. So I get in the ring. I'm going to say that doctor won't let me, but I talk about losing my smile. Yeah. It fucked up shit royally. February 7th in Pittsburgh, we see Brett and Sid beat Austin and Michaels. And then six days later on Thursday, raw Thursday, we see Sean forfeit the title in the ring to Vince and gorilla. We've talked about this a few times on the show, but 
usually from Vince's reaction. What was Brett's reaction to the teary eyed? I've lost my smile speech. Livid. Just absolutely pissed because they all felt he was just dogging it and, and full of shit. And then to go out and then to go out there and throw in the, I lost my smile comment, which just baffled everyone. Do you think that Sean believed he would be working at WrestleMania against Brett for the title at that point? I don't know. Um, I think this is what I think. I think that, that Sean saw Vince leaning towards Sid and the big man, because Vince always likes, you know, the big guys and, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend to get in Shawn Michaels head, but, uh, do I believe his knee was hurt? Sure. His knee was hurt. Do I believe that he could have gone out and had a match with Sid? Absolutely. And it just was a, a shitty deal and, uh, not the best fucking deal to do. On that same show, we would see Brett beat Vader in about seven minutes. Meltzer gave the match two and a half stars. A couple of days later in St. Paul, Undertaker would beat Brett, Austin, and Vader in a four corner match. And this is the night when Vince told Brett he's going to win the title at the pay per view and then drop it the next night to Sid. And then he'd be wrestling Austin at WrestleMania. So they had made this pivot inside of 48 hours from losing my smile to here's the new plan. Uh, and Brett seems to like this idea. Who do you remember came up with this whole, all right, now that we've kind of had to reshuffle the deck, we'll do Brett, Sid, and then we'll set up Austin Brett at WrestleMania. Uh, that was me, Vince and Cornette at that time. Uh, you, you're just kind of, you know, you're stuck and we went, you know, we go into that TV thinking we've got Sean to do this and, and we've got to completely revamp everything. In your house, final four goes down on February 16th. This is where we see Brett win his fourth world title in the final four battle Royal match, which also had Austin undertaker and Vader, uh, Brett wins by clotheslining taker over the top rope and Meltzer gave it four and a quarter stars. I've always enjoyed this final four from Chattanooga. Uh, Vader bled a gusher. what did you think of this? I thought it was excellent. And this is where Leon got the, got the whole eye thing. And he, he did, he just was absolutely disgusting all over the place, but it was a great, great match. And everybody was concerned about that with all four guys in the ring. And I thought it came out tremendous. The next night on raw from Nashville, Sid would beat Brett to win the world title after Austin hit Brett with a chair and then Sid power bombed him for the pin. Uh, and then they head to Germany and we would see Brett beat triple H over there. And then Brett wrestled Owen in Hamburg for what Brett said was a wonderful match on the 25th. And the next day in Berlin, triple H will beat Brett by DQ and it aired on the March 3rd raw. The observer that same day would be clear to point out that most within the company acknowledged that Sean's leave of absence was really having to do with him being burned out from all the travel and pressure and just needing a break combined with the timing of having to put over Sid for the WWF title on February 13th, and then knowing he was going to follow it up with having to put over Brett at WrestleMania. Um, was that the common belief that everybody thought Sean was just burnt out more so than injured and maybe just didn't want to put over Brett at WrestleMania? Yeah, that was a general belief because nobody bought the injury. And when you, when you go through and say, okay, my, my knees screwed, I can't wrestle. And then you jump up 
uh, taking stairs three at a time, going up the stairs like, okay. March 7th in Buffalo, Sid would beat Brett to retain, and they continue that. Uh, even doing double shots here uh, in Cleveland and then Detroit the same day, same day, uh, the next night in Springfield, Sid would beat Brett and that would go down in a cage match. And Brett says when he got to the building that day, he sat with Vince and outlined a year and a half long program in which Austin would turn babyface at WrestleMania. And the way Vince sold him on this, I thought was genius. Allegedly Vince hands, Brett, two lists of names and the list were people Brett could work with as a face. And who he could work with as a heel. Brett said the heel list appealed to him much more. Uh, that babyface list would have included Sean, Undertaker, Austin, and Brett wasn't sold on turning heel until he saw the list. Whose idea was it to present Brett with the two lists? Because this is fucking genius. Well, it, it wasn't necessarily. Too, it was the roster. It was like, here you go, Brett. Here's the roster. Guys on the right are your heels guys on the left are your baby faces. So there are your opponents. And you know, I go back to when way back when, when the first time that Brett became the WWF champion and we were getting him over and he beat everybody. And it got to the point where Vince, you know, looked at it and said, you know, we, we've got to do something different here. Um, cause Brett just didn't want to work with anybody. And Vince had done that. Then he ended in the roster and said, Brett, who's left to work with? Who haven't you beat? And he went down the, he went down the roster and, and it was Papa Shango. He goes, I hadn't, I hadn't beat him yet. And Vince just threw up his hands. Okay. God damn it, Brett, go out and put the sharpshooter, make, make him tap out tonight for TV. And it was the same thing. It was here. Here's, here's the guys. What side do you see yourself on? Here are your opponents. And on the, to me, the only logical side for him to be on was the heel side, working with the baby faces. Cause then it was all fresh matchups. Uh, Brett says that he was expecting to put Austin over at mania, but Vince tells him, no, he wants Brett to go over. And Vince explains to him how he wants him to turn heel only in the United States. And he'd still be a baby face around the rest of the world. Brett said he had no idea how to make that work since everyone around the world watches the same show. And Vince said, everyone around the world loves to hate Americans. We come across like we're better than everyone else. This won't affect your merchandise sales because you'll be loved abroad for standing up to us Americans. Brett says he thought about it for the rest of the day. And then the following day, he called Vince and said, as long as it's done smartly and I have my hands on the controls of what I say and do, I'm in. And Vince says, you won't regret it. And then he told Brett to keep quiet about this upcoming heel turn. And he agreed. So who realized you could do this? Maybe be a heel in America, but a baby face everywhere else. Is this a Russo idea? No, it was, it was just what was happening already. They were already booing Brett domestically. They, they loved him internationally. They loved him in Canada and it, it was already just organically happening. So we were fighting that on television. So you, you, you continue to fight it, but yet those reactions are what they're going to be. And you have to go with it at some point. Uh, on the March 10th raw, uh, JR did an in-ring interview with Ken Shamrock about being the guest ref at WrestleMania and Shamrock saying the normal things like, uh, Brett and Austin don't like it. Well, that's too bad. 
And then Austin appeared on the Titan Tron and said he hopes Brett wins next week so he can have the world title on the line at WrestleMania. And he trash talks Brett a little bit, who then comes out. And then Brett starts to complain about losing the title to Sid. And he says people say he's crying. And he said he's sorry about crying, but he's tired of the injustice. He talks about the cage match next week on Raw. And now we've got one of the more fun Raws set for the following week. But I'm curious. When and why was the decision made to add Shamrock to that WrestleMania 13 match? We were looking to try and bring Shamrock in, in a little bit different way, not just bring him in as a competitor. And he was billed as the, uh, world's most dangerous, dangerous athlete, I believe. And so instead of just bringing him right in as a worker in that UFC world, Kenny had a really good following just looking at a different way to bring somebody in and you bring him in as an outsider, put him in our ring as an enforcer and introduce him in a different way. So here we go. March 16th, Madison square garden. Uh, we see Sid beat Brett in a cage to retain. Uh, and the next week on raw, we see Brett wrestle Sid in the steel cage for the title. This is a big deal because Austin is going to interfere here to help Brett. And then the undertaker comes out and fights Austin off. And all four are on top of the cage at the same time. Taker knocks Austin off the cage and then Brett superplex Sid back into the ring. But Austin hits Taker with a chair and Brett tries to walk out of the cage. But the Undertaker slams the door on him so Sid can climb out of the cage to win the match. Uh, here's where business starts to pick up. After the match, Brett snaps. McMahon comes in the ring and says he must be frustrated. And Brett pushes him down and says something like, Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. And then he talks about being screwed and no one's doing anything about it. No one in the building cares. No one in the dressing room cares. And everyone in the dressing room knows that he's the best there is, the best there was, so the best there ever will be. And if the crowd doesn't like it, tough shit. One of the more memorable moments of my fandom right here, Bruce, it blurred the lines of reality for me because we're pushing down the owner. We're cursing into a microphone. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, I know all that's bullshit, but this is real. This is real. I believed it. And, uh, I'm curious, many of you've never talked about this. Did you guys have to give USA a heads up about the language or is this a forgiveness, not permission situation? No, we gave him a heads up. Definitely gave him a heads up. That was during a time that you, you wanted to, we were, we were playing nice. So (laughs) yeah, we had to. Was Brett nervous about talking like that, given he had sort of positioned himself as a role model for so long? Brett, you know, it's funny because Brett would do his promos and come across whiny. And then when you would write a whiny promo for him, he would read it as, now I sound like I'm bitching. Now I sound like I'm whiny and crying. Because when you go into business for yourself, that's what you do. Austin then appeared on screen and said, conspiracy, my ass, Brett, all you want to do is cry like a baby. And you threw it away because you're a loser. It could have been us for the world title at WrestleMania, but you blew the whole thing. Cause you're a loser. And then Brett challenges him to come down, but says, you don't have the guts to come out. So Sid comes out and as he's walking to the ring, uh, Brett says, you know, that belt is mine. And Sid replies, I don't know shit. Cry baby. <laughs> <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken. Can we make that? I don't know shit. Can we can we make that a shirt? I feel like that should be a shirt over at BrucePritchard.com. I don't know shit, crybaby. 
Uh, this is maybe one of the best go home editions of Raw in history up to this point. We go off the air with Sid in the ring, the Undertaker's here, Brett's diving through the ropes, Austin's out, everybody's fighting. Was everybody just tickled with this? This is probably the best go home edition of Raw in history at that point. God, I thought it was excellent. And, and you know, you, you bring up the little thing like Brett diving through the ropes and stuff. Brett Hart is responsible for so many firsts. Um, you know, going through the table and just the innovative things that Brett would do. Brett always looked for a different way to get into the sharpshooter. He, he would sit there for hours sometimes and just be, you know, uh, him and Owen or, or, uh, whoever he would have people in the ring and always look for innovative ways to get in and out of holds. And it just always astonished me, you know, and, and I'll give you another reason why Brett never wanted to go to WCW in the early days. Brett was an artist. And he, he liked to draw and he liked to do things. And, and he always considered the ring, his canvas. And he just didn't like the way that the WCW ring looked and he didn't like their logo on the mat. And he felt that, uh, he couldn't paint a pretty picture in their ring. So little sidebar. Interesting. All right, let's go to WrestleMania 13. It goes down March 23rd, 1997, Rosemont Horizon. We've talked about this long form in the archives. We'll hit the high notes here, though. Brett says he got to the arena about 10 a.m., and Vince had just told Austin about Brett's heel turn that day. And uh, Austin and Brett just sat on the ring apron, sort of blankly staring at each other, and then they just started to put the match together. Brett told Steve, what would really make this a great match would be for you to get a little juice. And Steve said something like, I've never done that before, but would be willing to give it a try. And Brett said, I'd be the first guy to tell you, never let someone cut you. But in this situation, you're going to have to trust me. I'll do it right. And Steve agreed. This is all directly out of Brett's book. But what I found interesting about this, Bruce, is I just watched WrestleWar 92 and Austin is bleeding a gusher. Do you remember Austin being nervous about bleeding here? Well, no. And, and no one knew that they were getting color in this match and it was not something that was approved by the office or anything else. It's interesting to note that the next day on raw, when they showed up, uh, of course they meet with, with Vince in his office and he asked them both if they purposely got juice, they both denied it. And Vince says, Brett never asked or, or Vince never asked Brett about it again, at least according to Brett. Um, how much of, of this would have gotten discussion in the office? I mean, are guys fired up about this or is the match good enough where people just sort of give it a pass? Well, it, obviously it was given a pass, but yes, we, we did look at the tape and we did look at the ISO tapes and, and saw where, where Brett got it and where Brett gigged him. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was even really hidden well from the cameras. And that was just kind of Vince again, being a little disappointed that they lied to him. He gave him the opportunity to come clean. Just tell me if you did. Of course, Brett made Austin pass out in the sharpshooter and the referee Ken Shamrock stopped the match after about 22 minutes, an amazing match, five stars, um, really something else. Here's what Meltzer wrote. Austin began choking Hart with an extension cord, but Hart got the ring bell and clocked Austin with it. Hart finally got the sharpshooter on and held it for a long time. At one time it appeared that Austin broke it, but Hart maneuvered back into position and eventually Austin passed out from the pain and Shamrock called the match. Hart still got a largely babyface pop for winning, but the crowd began to turn on him as he attacked Austin's knee after the match, which cemented Brett's heel turn. Shamrock then got behind him and suplexed him. Hart and Shamrock squared off, and then Hart backed off and left the ring. 
And this was the coup de gras in heel turn and the crowd booed him heavily. Austin eventually revived selling the knee big time, but still gave another ref a stone cold stunner and left the ring limping with the crowd chanting his name. This is one we'll remember for a long time. Five stars. Uh, when Brett got to the back, he walked past taker who smiled and said something like hell of a match, man, no chance in hell. Me and Sid are ever going to be able to top that. And we covered this match in our WrestleMania 13 episode, but I'm glad we got to talk about it again, Bruce, because this is my favorite WrestleMania match in history. And I think you could make the argument that it's top three all time. Wouldn't you? Yes, I would. And it is a textbook version of how a double turn, but just, you know, working your character, staying in character and that being enough to take people on this wonderful ride that they did, uh, off the charts, kudos to both guys, all three guys, shamrock. I'll throw shamrock in there too, who did a great job. Uh, first time in that big stage. I know Austin has said in his book, this is probably his favorite match he's ever had, but what was the reaction backstage? Are the, is everybody sort of in awe for this? Or is everybody pissed off about the blood instead? No, I, I tell you what, when it first happened, everybody thought that the blood was a hard way. Um, you know, cause we did, we didn't see, you know, the bump on the outside where Brett got it and everything. So when Brett hit him with the, uh, bell, we thought that, oh, Hey, it's a hard way, but God, what drama It's beautiful, man. This, this story that they're telling, I think everybody was more into the great story that they told and that roller coaster ride that they went on through that whole match. It got, it's just, you know, I'm gushing because that is one of my favorite matches of all time. I think it's everybody's favorite. Uh, Brett made another appearance that same night in the undertaker Sid match. He comes out and starts yelling at Michael saying he's a pussy and a faker. And he's yelling at the undertaker saying that he slammed the door on him last Monday and he slammed the door on their friendship. And he told Sid, he knows he's the real champion. Of course, Sid wound up power bombing Brett and they take him out. Uh, I'm curious at this point, WrestleMania 13, Sean's out here for commentary for the main event. What was the real life situation like with Brett and Sean at this point? I think this, see, to me, this is where the strain was coming and it really, I mean, it really, uh, blossomed when Sean lost his smile, uh, where I think it became real. You know, up until then, I think they were working. Well, I know that they were working before that so that everybody thought that there was real animosity there. But here, I think that at this time, man, there was animosity there. The next night on raw is something you need to go out of your way to see it's March 24th, 1997. And the interview Brett does here is probably the longest in the history of raw. At this point, it's 22 minutes long. Brett apologizes to his fans all over the world for his foul mouth rant the week before. Uh, and then he says, he wrote in his book, then I took a deep breath thinking, here we go. This is it. And Brett delivered, I mean, an amazing promo here. Uh, he says he felt that it's the best one he's ever done. And Sean comes out during it and they have a very intense shoot style promo that people would talk about for months. Uh, and then Brett attacked his knee and put the figure four on him around the ring post, which is a pretty innovative spot at the time. Is this the first time you remember seeing the figure four around the ring post? Yep. And that's all Bret Hart, man. It was sitting out there and wondering about what he could do. And, and we were thinking about if you do it on the floor, he wanted to do something with the chair on the floor or around the steps. And I said, man, you know, for TV, great. We, we can cover it, but the audience is not going to be able to see it. And what you wanted to see was Sean sitting up, you know, writhing in pain. 
Brett put that on and, and he, I mean, Brett came up with it. That was all 100% him. And, and that's what I mean about the innovative. He would always do something different and unique. Go check this out. March 24th, 1997. It's worth your time to go watch it. It's the start of Brett's legendary heel turn. You know, probably one of the best runs in the history of the business. And, and we're basically in April here and we're only going through the very beginning of November and we're still talking about it 20 years later. So a handful of months, but what an impact, uh, the next night on the 25th in Piero in Peoria, they taped her off for the following week. And this is the one and only singles match between Brett and Rocky Maivia, which we talked about on our rock show. Uh, and then we get a heads up that Owen was wrestling bulldog for the European title. When suddenly Brett comes to the ring and breaks him up. He gets on the mic and cuts another amazing promo, putting back the heart foundation, sort of recreating it. Uh, he's looking at Owen and says, look at what they've done to me and you. And then he talks about walking him to school and he says, I love you. And then all these guys are hugging. It's a really cool moment. And, uh, the heart foundation is on the way. Uh, whose idea was it to involve Owen and bulldog in this? This feels like something that, that Brett would have pushed for. Well, it, it was a way, obviously their family, they were already, you know, kind of, you had the heel thing going on. It was natural and everybody can relate to it. Like you said, we're talking about it now and you remember that moment all these many, many years later because you could relate to it. And I think people that, that have family, man, you fight, you make up, you break up, you make up and it was heartfelt and it, it added you know, that, that whole Canadian thing, but this was Brett going out and reconciling with family and it, and it was real to people. They could relate to it. The next raw that was to air on April 7th was taped actually April 6th in Muncie and, uh, Owen and Davey told Brett that Sean was so over the line that they were both livid. Some of the things that Sean talked about in his promo were like, uh, we don't really like each other in wrestling and in real life. Uh, he didn't just turn bad guy. He's always been the bad guy. He used his parents, his sister and his kids to get on TV so he could make money. And if he could make a buck, he'd sell his own mother. And he says that six years ago when he got the intercontinental title and Brett got the WWF title, he was happy playing second fiddle to Brett. But when it was Brett's turn to play second fiddle, he kicked and scratched every inch of the way. He said, Brett took some time off because he thought the WWF and Shawn Michaels would collapse while he was gone. But instead they had the best business they'd had in six years, six years and asked McMahon if that was true. And McMahon agreed. Of course, as we talked about earlier, that's not true. Uh, every metric by June of 96 was Sean as champion showed business down by rates, syndication, house shows, but that's more to do with the NWO than Brett or Sean in fairness, but it was a very intense shoot promo from Sean. Uh, that's April 7th, 97. If you'd like to check that out. Brett was so offended by this. He called Vince about it and said that Sean's behavior was inexcusable and it had to be dealt with. And Brett said, looking back, he shouldn't have believed Vince when Vince said he would handle it. Do you remember seeing the promo and what the backstage feeling was? Cause it certainly blurred the lines and things are starting to get a little personal between the two. It was meant to blur the lines. And I go back to WrestleMania 12 with Brett working the guys so that they all believe this animosity and that they would do these real, you know, half work, half shoot promos. 
so that you would think, oh, he wasn't supposed to say that. And like you say, you know, the rest of that stuff may be phony, but that, that was a shoot. That was real. Boy, I felt that one. And that was what Sean was trying to pull off. That's what, what, what Brett was trying to pull off, but Brett was taking it personally and taking it to heart and forgetting that, Hey, this is, this is a work and we're going out there and these promos are to draw money. Brett said when he returned home from the trip to South Africa and Kuwait, and he went to see his doctor who told him he needed to have surgery on his knee done. He needed a scope and to shave the bone down, which was going to have him out of the ring for like six months. So when Brett calls Vince to tell him about it, Vince says he really needs him to work with Austin at the next in your house or the pay-per-view might bomb. So Brett agrees to do it. And very quickly, they come up with a new storyline to take place on the next draw where they're going to be in a street fight and Steve is going to injure his knee. And that would put him out of action. Then he would do the surgery and try to be back by King of the ring. Vince told Brett that if he came back in time, he promised him that Sean would put him over at King of the ring. And Vince said he was grateful for Brett's dedication. And he was also tired of Sean, but was reluctant to discipline him. Maybe out of fear that Sean would go to WCW. Two things I've got to take away from here, Bruce. How often did Vince ask guys to work hurt to save a pay-per-view like this? He wouldn't do it these days. I don't think, but he certainly did back then quite often. Yeah, we did. We, we would ask guys, Hey, can you make it through? And we would uh, also orchestrate the match so that it would protect the talent, protect whatever injury that they did have. But we, we would always want to get that match in the ring. So yeah, and it was a, a practice that was more common than not. Back in the day, if you will, it wouldn't happen today. If guys have injuries, they're, they're pulled and they don't go out there, but no, we would, we would try and get that match in the ring and do whatever we could to salvage the attraction. Uh, do you remember Vince expressing some sort of concern that he had to go easy on Sean for fear of Sean going to WCW? Got it. That time Sean was ironclad under contract. So that, that wasn't a, but there was, there's always been this, this weird attraction with Vince and Sean that I think Vince kind of looked at Sean like a, like a second son. And there was a love hate relationship that was very strong there. And it was weird. Uh, April 6th, they're working in South Africa and undertaker and Brett go to a double count out April 12th in Kuwait. Brett beats Billy Gunn. Uh, and this takes us to the April 12th in your house. We would see Brett and Austin wrestle in the main event and Austin wins by DQ after about 21 minutes. Meltzer said it was a very good match, but not at the level of the last two pay-per-view matches. And of course we know why because of Brett's knee, but he still gave it three and three quarter stars. And Brett said when he got to raw the next day, uh, the first thing he did was find Sean. Brett told him that he wanted peace. Sean told Brett that the morale was better among the boys when Sean was champion instead of when Brett was. And Brett said, I almost felt sad for him. He didn't seem to have a clue as to how wrong he was. And Sean told him about his animosity towards Brett and said that it was because of Brett's comments about his knee, which Sean said was really hurt. And then they agreed that they'd clear any negative comments with each other before putting them out there. And they agreed to work professionally with each other as they always had aiming for the king of the ring in June. So the guys shake hands and Brett says that he felt good and like they were back in sync. Do you remember this sort of peace offering and meeting in the minds and how they sort of patch things up a little bit? I do. And it was, and it was Brett. And I think that it was Brett who realized a lot of this was, 
was kind of Brett's fault because Brett wanted to create that animosity backstage and they worked themselves into a shoot is what happened to where both guys started taking everything personal and both guys, you know, would stick each stick the other one with a stick to, to they knew what to do to aggravate the other person. And that's what they were doing. And they, they got together and said, okay, you know, peace. And I do remember that kind of being the, and I heard it bo- from both Brett and Sean. How loudly prior to this was Brett sort of questioning Sean's knee? Was it something that was a whisper campaign or was Brett pretty open about, oh, we know it's all bullshit. I think everybody was saying it was all bullshit. That wasn't, that wasn't a, that wasn't a whisper. When, when Sean lost his smile and all that crap, that wasn't a whisper. That night on Raw, Brett and Austin had their famous street fight match, and Meltzer wrote the highlight of it was Steve Austin injuring Bret Hart, who was taken away in an ambulance. In a twist, Austin was actually in the ambulance waiting and got some more licks in with Owen and Davey Boy and Shawn Michaels and Brian Pillman all winding up involved in the angle before the show was over. It's probably one of the best Raws in history. Uh, at the end of the match, you would see Brett start to get put into an ambulance with Owen and Davey beside him. And Austin was secretly in the driver's seat. So he came into the back and starts to beat on Brett some more. Um, it was a last minute decision to do this because Brett had re-injured himself, uh, over in Kuwait. Um, this is good stuff, man. I'm a big fan of this era. I think this is, uh, you know, some of the, the time that I really became a huge stone cold fan was his feud with Brett here with the heart foundation. Some of the greatest, stuff. and, and again, go back, you, you know, cause you got to take your hat off to Bret Hart. When you, you talk about all this time and even Meltzer would say how great that the match was with Steve when Brett's knee was shit. It really, it truly was. And Brett needed surgery and Brett probably hindsight shouldn't have been in the ring. He taped up, he went and he did what he needed to do and get out there and still hurt. Bret Hart was 10 times better than most guys lacing their boots today. It's just a testament to how good that son of a gun is. It's amazing to me that he had this surgery on April 23rd in Calgary and spends the night in the hospital, but he goes home the next day. And as soon as he does, Vince calls and says, Hey, need you at raw Monday. And Brent tells him, well, the doctor says I can't do anything. And Vince says, you'll come out in a wheelchair and no one will touch you. That tells you how hot this angle is where it feels like you know, Vince can't miss a week without Brett here. And, and Vince is really leaning on Brett a lot right here. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, he, he was. And again, you know, as we, we find out, you know, many years later, Vince wasn't asking Brett to do anything Vince wouldn't do. On April 28th, Brett would come out in a wheelchair with Owen and Davey at his side. And he cuts another great promo, shows some video of his knee surgery and he's crapping on America. And he's saying, look, who you see as your heroes. Guys like Shawn Michaels and that hyena, Steve Austin, just great stuff. Um, at the end of the show, we see Davey challenge the undertaker for the world title and Owen quickly interferes for the DQ. Well, at the end of the match, Austin comes down and fights them and stuns the undertaker. Uh, taker then chokeslams him and Austin finally recovers and went after Brett in the wheelchair, but he's attacked by the returning Jim Neidhart. So Brett hits Austin with his crutch and then Austin does the stretcher job and that's the end of the episode. Uh, Bruce, this is where you get to do your Stu Hart impression of Stu trying to sell Vince on hiring the anvil again. Yeah, the big bastard, uh, the, the big rhino, uh, 
Uh, damn, Vince, he'd be good here. Uh, you put him in and in place of uh, Brett uh, and, uh, you know, he, he'll help you out. I, uh, he, he'll be all right. Uh, yeah. The next week on May 5th, uh, Anvil wheels Brett down the ramp and Owen holds all the belts in the Slammy Awards. And Brett thanks all of his international fans, especially his Canadian fans, for their support. But when he addresses the American fans, they actually mute him. Um, so Brett thanks his, his fellow heart foundation members for their contributions one by one. And then he says something like stone cold, Steve Austin, isn't going to be here tonight because he doesn't have the jam. Uh, I don't know why, but that still makes me laugh all these years later. How would Jim Cornette use jam in a sentence? I put jam out of my fucking toes, but sometimes I put it on my toes with hot melted butter and a little strawberry jam. I don't think that's motherfucker. I don't think that's the same kind of jam that he was talking about. It is where I come from Uh, right now. Motherfucker. Um, so Brett is saying, you know, Hey, do you hate me to the crowd? And of course the crowd says, yes. Uh, and then Brett says, cool. Well, we hate you too. And it's just because everyone's jealous that the heart foundation has all the gold. And, um, he makes mention of Brian Pillman. So Brian Pillman is now here and the Hart Foundation is in full effect and they've set their sights on destroying another American hero besides Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's now just a broken pile of bones. Their new target is Shawn Michaels. So we've got Bret Hart, Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, Brian Pillman, and Jim Neidhart here in the Hart Foundation. Of course, we covered Brian Pillman in long form, but how does Pillman get involved here? Well, Brian had the history with the the hearts from Calgary and being in the stampede, uh, yeah, being in the stampede territory years ago. And Brian trained up in the dungeon with the hearts. And in reality, Brian was kind of considered a member of the family. In reality, so it was something to get Brian involved with and make that group even stronger. So now we're at the May 11th pay-per-view a cold day in hell. None of the heart foundation is working this night, but they do show up ringside for undertaker Austin's main event for the world title. Undertaker gets a pin on Austin after a tombstone, uh, where the hearts actually attack the undertaker after, and that allows Austin to knock Brett out of his wheelchair and chase everyone away with crutches. So the following night on May 12th, the heart foundation opened up the show and Brett's doing a strong promo about the heart foundation. And of course, the end of the show is the famous confrontation with Sean confronting Brett, who's in a wheelchair and Brett had shooed away the rest of the heart foundation. Cause he needed to go this alone. And Brett lets Sean know how he feels by saying he hates his guts because he's the epitome of America, arrogant, cocky, thinks he's better than everybody. And at one point, Sean takes his jacket off and Brett says that actually describes your career. One minute you're hot and the next minute you're not. And Brett continues to berate him saying he screwed me out of the title at WrestleMania 12. He didn't have the guts to face me in a rematch at 13. And he brings up the girly magazine, but I don't know many girls that read it. Blah, blah, blah. Talks about getting his navel pierced. Either way, the show goes off the air with JR saying we've run out of time. What we didn't see was that Sean was supposed to super show was supposed to go off the air with Brett being super kicked out of the wheelchair. And on their rivalry DVD, they talk about this incident and headset and he couldn't remember the line that he was supposed to end it with. So raw goes off the air with Brett still talking. 
Sean still gets the super kick in, but fans have to wait five days to see it because the show's already off the air. They've went too long. And Sean is adamant that he feels like Brett did that on purpose. And Sean says that's when he lost all trust in Brett, but Brett would swear he didn't do it on purpose, but he understands why Sean would feel that way afterwards. Uh, what was the fallout when they walked back through the curtain with Vince, Brett and Sean? Well, let me, let me get something straight. First of all, there was a handheld cameraman telling them go home. There was Sean hitting the cue over and over and over again, even to the point of saying, you know, say it, say it. Um, you had Marky, there were so many cues being thrown at him. There is, it would have been, he would have had to have been blind and deaf not to have gotten the cue, but it is possible. He, he forgot the line. They're giving him the line. I mean, it's, it's so Brett's a liar. Uh, that he didn't get the cue. Yeah. He had to be, again, he had to be just, just blind and and deaf. And we're like, we're counting them down. We counted them down. I think we even got maybe an extra 30 seconds or something like, Oh my God, just do it. Um, I'm shitting bricks at, at gorilla. And of course I'm the one getting yelled at at gorilla. Because they're not doing it. And I'm like, Brett's got to do it. Give him the cue. They're giving him the cue. And I can see on my cameras, I can see the cameraman and everybody. And like, they're, they're hitting the mat and Brett's looking at them and stuff. And they're telling him, go home, go home. Um, and, and that just was a, a complete disaster. And we had never, ever had had that happen before. And I, I remember one of the things that the boys would get so pissed off at me about guys would come back and they would screw up a finish or they'd screw up a spot in the match. And I'd always go, Hey guys, we know they don't know. Okay. So it, it's okay. I had nothing for this when Sean came back. Cause I was pissed. I was pissed that Brett blew the cue. I was pissed that we went off the air without what we were supposed to go to. And, and Brett came back and, and was like, what, what, what's wrong? And he and Vince went off and they went and had their chat. But, you know, Vince was, Vince was, of course, he's not going to blame talent. He's always going to blame us. We didn't prepare him enough. We didn't get him the cue the right way. We, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, Vince. Uh, other than going in and sitting in the chair and doing it for him, I don't know what else I could have done. You don't have to get hot about it. I was 20. Years I was ago. hot. I know. Um, backstage. Sean is livid. Extremely. Very livid. What's because again, everybody's screaming at him in the ring and he's not doing anything. Is Brett, um, respectful or is he just dismissive? He was kind of dismissive. Like, you know, like he didn't make a mistake. It's almost like, it's okay. You kicked me, but he kicked you a minute after we were off the air. It, it's no good, Brett. We missed it. We, we didn't get it on tonight. Well, you, you, we can replay it next week. It, it just was the, the nonchalantness of it. And it's just very frustrating that that was frustrating. I think that's where Sean kind of felt that, okay, you know, can fuck, I trust this guy? Fuck the truce. We're back on. Yeah. 
Sean was getting upset at Brett's personal attacks. One in particular was something about when Brett said, how could Sean's parents be proud of a son like him? And that really set Sean off. And when Sean was told they were going to do Brett and Sean at mania, Sean said he was so mad about all that Brett was saying that he didn't want to work with him anymore. It seems like a somewhat silly thing to be upset about, isn't it? That I think it's extremely silly on both parts. Yeah. Yeah. Because Sean had, uh, okay. Think about that. Sean had said all that stuff about Brett and his kids and his family. Right. You know, prior to that. So, so Brett, okay. Work, shoot, you know, ribbon on the square, whatever says the same stuff back getting heat. Yeah. And now Sean's taking it personal and having boo-boo face. Brett has said that he felt like all the stuff that he was saying was laying the groundwork for future big business between them. And Sean was saying that really all he ever wanted was Brett's affirmation, a pat on the back and some respect for being able to carry the ball. And when Brett didn't give it to him, it just pissed Sean off even more. Uh, but Brett felt like this whole time they were in sync and working together, uh, because he wasn't really talking about Michael Hickenbottom. He was talking about Sean Michaels, but Brett felt like Sean wasn't attacking the Brett Hart character. He was attacking the real Brett. So these guys have exactly what you said, worked themselves into a shoot. Um, and think of how silly that comment is that you just made. Yeah. It's both guys are saying the same thing about one another and they're both doing the same things to each other. It's sort of like when you have a fight with your wife and you're like, I'm not doing this because you did that. Right. And so now nobody wins. Everybody's pissed off and everybody really wants the same thing, but nobody's willing to give an inch. Exactly. And, and, and everybody's pointing fingers at the other guy. Uh, Brett said that he would tell Michaels beforehand what he was going to say, but Brett would go out and say it with such seriousness that when he came to the back, he'd ask everyone, how was it? And they'd all say it was great. But Brett knew when he looked at Sean, that Sean wasn't happy about it. Even though he got the okay ahead of time, Sean felt like Brett would talk about him bringing kids in the ring and dancing with him and the playgirl comments that Brett would make and other things that just made Sean feel like Brett was sort of insinuating he was gay or that he wasn't much of a, there wasn't much difference between the Sean Michaels character and him in real life. So he took that stuff very personally, but it still feels like to me, the office would have tried to side with Brett on most of this stuff. I mean, you guys are working, right? Which by the way, all of that stuff is being fed to Brett and the other stuff's being fed to Sean. Sure. So yes, Vince knows what they're going to say. And, and most of the time, you know, we're all talking about it ahead of time. Let me just ask this, you know, one of the things we've heard for a long time is that when the click was sort of running roughshod in the WWF, Vince really liked a locker room that was on edge. He liked contention. He felt like it made for a competitive environment. I know it does in sales, you know, in a sales environment, you know, if you've got two top producers, you can get more out of them by saying, Hey, you know, so-and-so is going to beat you this month. He's got one more. Well, that motivates the other guy to go out there and do more. And so that exists in every workplace where there's some sort of production, but I feel like Vince doesn't necessarily shy away from this. He encourages it, right? Vince encourages competition without a doubt. Uh, Vince will, will tell you, I like a happy dressing room. Gotta have a happy dressing room, pal. And we'll weed out, you know, a lot of times the troublemakers. However, at the same time, he does want guys legitimately competing for the spot. When Brett got to raw the next week for the May 19th raw from mobile, Vince gave him the idea that if Brett didn't beat Sean in less than 10 minutes, at King of the ring, he'd never wrestle in America again. 
and we'd have a heart foundation member be handcuffed to each post outside of the ring. And one would free himself to ensure that Brett would win the match. So Brett goes down to the promo and, uh, in the ring and brings the heart foundation with him. And he says that a real hero is going to return to action at King of the ring. And that hero is Brett himself. And he says, if I can't beat Sean in less than 10 minutes, I'll never wrestle in the U S again. Sean responds by Titan Tron and says, man, you couldn't beat me in 60 minutes, much less 10. Uh, and then, you know, these guys get going, but one of the comments that kind of takes everybody off guard is when Sean says, Brett couldn't even go 10 minutes in any situation, even though lately he's had some sunny days, he still can't get the job done. And if you look at the heart foundation, when Sean makes that sunny days comment, you can see Owen kind of put his head down and say something and bulldog looks at him. And then Brett has said the comment didn't sink in with him at the time, but that Owen was instantly upset about it. What was the reaction when Sean said that backstage? Ooh, because there were rumors that, that Sonny and Brett were, you know, that they had hooked up. Well, I guess we should mention here. It's pretty well known that Sean had a romantic relationship with Sonny. Sure. And Sonny has always maintained. She was just friends with Brett, but she did cause a scene at an autograph signing a few years ago. And just in the last couple of years, she's admitted to sleeping with Davy boy. And that's just sort of come out. So Bruce, in your opinion, did Brett get them draws? I have absolutely no idea, but I will say this, you know, again, just kind of code of code of brothers, wrestler code, whatever the hell you want to say about man code, just man code. I don't think that that's cool. I don't think that's cool to do to somebody on live television when they have a family, a wife and a family at home. Well, when Brett got home, his wife, Julie, and of course, Stu were upset about the sunny days comment, but he didn't really think much of it until his son, Dallas, and some of his friends were asking if he was doing things with Sonny. And that's when he realized that Sean had hurt his family. So in your opinion, you think Sean went too far. What's a guy like Vince or a guy like the undertaker think about a comment like this? I think, I think everybody felt it was too far and, and that was not scripted for him. Nobody knew that he was going to do that. It was, it was too far and kind of over the line. And I, I believe Vince, you know, sat him down, talked to him and like, you know, damn it. I know you like, you guys like to stick each other and you guys are getting personal in that but that's just not cool. Brett said he thought he would beat the hell out of Sean for real during their match at King of the ring. But if he hurt his knee any further, it could be costly to the company. So he decides to tell Vince he needs to pull out of the pay-per-view because his knee's not ready. In your opinion, would the match have been canceled without this sunny days comment? I think I could suggest that maybe Brett would have tried to limp along, but that certainly leveled up the animosity to where, you know what? I don't need to risk this shit and there was somebody I don't trust. I, I, th- I think that it was, and again, this is just me personally, and I'm not saying that this, this is what it was. I'm just saying that it could have been Brett's way of losing his smile. Not going to have this match. My knee's not ready. Um, can't do it. Yeah. The original plan, according to the observer was for Brett to return around SummerSlam and put Sean over in a series of ladder matches. And the plan was to build the entire company around Sean and that Brett was going to be one in a long list of challengers to headline a classic series of main events. And Brett always felt like this ladder match was his gimmick since he is the person who sort of brought it to the company. 
and Brett vetoed the idea of putting Michaels over again and then lengthened his time off. So when he returned, it was with the provision that he'd be getting the title from Michaels at WrestleMania. Of course, a lot changed before that and it never happened. Uh, and then on raw on May 12th, Brett babbled on and on at the end of the show, which left Michael standing there looking like an idiot, which we just talked about. Uh, the week after this is all break down from the observer, the whole thing in mobile happens. Now here's a wrinkle that's not been reported outside of the observer. When Sean showed up and made this sunny days comment, Meltzer would say he was slurring his words badly and in no condition to perform. I've never heard that before the observer report here. It wasn't any books or shoot interviews set the record straight. Well, Sean fucked up when he did the sunny days comment. No, not that I know. No, absolutely not. I can tell you one time Sean was screwed up when we did a, uh, a, uh, remote at Jose Lothario's house one time. And then he and Austin were screwed up and been drinking all day and, and slurring on their promos there, but not no. Meltzer wrote the enigma of being arguably the most talented performer in American rings and seemingly being ill-equipped emotionally to handle the spot. His talent has gotten him came out once again in recent weeks. Would you feel like that's an accurate description of Sean? I mean, at this time, he's (laughs) got to be the top guy, but I thought being ill-equipped emotionally to handle the spot that his talent has gotten him. Wow. That's a pretty, uh, pretty apropos deal there. He was. He he really was. Now, he wasn't he wasn't re- he wasn't ready uh, emotionally. I don't know. You know he was dependent on drugs and having a real hard time. Hang on, hang on. Just now you said he's dependent on drugs and you sniffed. Now I know that's not what you meant, but our listeners will take that differently. No, no, no. Yeah, I I just sniffed. No, I, I'm just saying that he. You he's know, taking had, prescription had, pills and he's drinking. taking prescription he's pills. He's, he's overcompensating. Yes. <laughs> and he's overcompensating and that's what everybody's worried about him doing. But yeah, I just don't think that mentally he was ready for it. You're right. Um, Meltzer would write Michaels became at odds with Vince McMahon by demanding a new contract. One that would put his pay at the same level as his rival who fell into a bidding war and came out with it with the most lucrative guaranteed money contract in WWF history. Men McMahon turned down his demands. He gave his notice wanting to join his quote, real friends in WCW. He had four years remaining on his contract. So McMahon refused. And the general attitude during the week was they had no idea where Michael's head was and contingency plans were being made both for television and pay-per-views along with house shows in case Michael's decided not to show up. And there were reports that Michaels had a contract in his clause that was to guarantee him the status of being the highest paid wrestler in the company. Of course, that rumor is out there because that's what Hall and Nash got. But to the best of my understanding, that was not the case. Um, the feeling during the week seemed to be that if Michaels were to quit the promotion, that they would do everything they could to enforce the contract and make him sit out the next four years rather than go to WCW. He had signed a five-year contract shortly after winning the title at WrestleMania 12 And he had a downside guarantee believed to be in the $750,000 range, which guaranteed him the top spot during a period when house shows were doing well and merchandising that goes along with the top spot. He could be figured in to earn significantly more than that. So chat me up here. Do you remember him demanding a new contract? And to the best of your recollection, was he about 750 at the time before he asked for that? 
Sean was doing well, and I'm not going to give you numbers, but I, I do remember Sean. Sean's whole thing was, I want to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. You've got Brett. You know, go, go, go take Brett. And he was kind of like a petulant child. He goes, my friends are, are down south, and, and I just want to go down. I want to be with my friends. They're willing to pay me what I'm worth, and they're willing to pay me. If they were willing to pay Bret Hart all that money, imagine what they, they'll pay me. And I, and I do, God, I remember specifically, just let me go be with my friends. Now, Meltzer would write that when his friends first signed this deal with WCW, he was sort of puffing his chest out because he felt like this made him the long-term king of the promotion. And he's even bragging that the opposition couldn't afford to pay him what he was making. So he felt like he's in the catbird seat, but now just a few months later, or I guess a year later, uh, not so much. So Brett says he had a long talk on June 2nd in Huntington, West Virginia with Vince. And this is when Vince says the company is in financial peril. They're just barely hanging on and he has no choice, but to restructure the contract. He promises to still get Brett all the money that's owed to him, but there's just going to be more at the back end. And Brett winds up calling his lawyer to see what his options were. If Vince were to try and do that, but Brett didn't think he really would. I'm curious because this feels like a big conversation for Vince. Do you and Pat have a heads up on these types of conversations and that they're going to happen? And does Vince sort of talk you through it before he does it? Maybe like getting talking points or practicing his speech or something like that. Well, at, the, at this time, Pat wasn't, you know, a part really of anything. Pat had retired and, and Pat was more part-time coming in and out. I did have a heads up on it and knew that he was going to go in and Vince was the one that made the deal with Brett and Vince felt that he was the one that needed to go in and talk to Brett, uh, as well about what, what can we do to work this thing out? This takes us to, uh. King of the ring, June 8th in Providence and the heart foundation here do an in-ring pay-per-view promo talking about the next pay-per-view. So they're on a pay-per-view talking about the next pay-per-view. Uh, they're of course promoting Canadian stampede and they're saying they'll take on any five wrestlers to face them in a 10 man tag. And the next day at raw, Brett says that earlier in the day, he told Neidhart as soon as he saw Sean, he was going to straighten him out, but Neidhart begged him not to, because he just returned. So Brett decided not to confront him. Instead, Brett's in the bathroom, getting ready to do a promo, putting gel in his hair. And while he's in there, he sees Sean's reflection behind him in the mirror. And Brett said he could tell Sean was uptight. So he smiled and said, Hey, Sean. And Sean responded, fuck you. You haven't talked to me in over a fucking month. What makes you think I want to talk to you now? And then stomped away. So later these guys see each other in the dressing room. Uh, and at this point, Sean has been over fixing his boots and Brett pushes him up to his feet and says, you got something to say to me. And that's when Sean swings at him, but misses and Brett punched him in the chin. Sean came at him. Brett grabs him by the hair. And Brett says, I pretended I was doing a hammer throw in the Olympics. I was dragging him around the room when a hysterical Pat and a frantic Lawler ran in and jumped on top of me. Unable to pry me off, Pat shouted for other wrestlers to help, but Davey and Crush had no intention of helping Sean. So Brett kind of plays it off like it was really nothing, but he does come away with clumps of Sean's precious hair in his hands. He says, I blasted him. Don't fuck with my family, you little fucker. Sean looked ready to burst into tears as he stomped across the hall to Vince's office, shouting loudly for everyone to hear that I quit. It's an unsafe working environment. 
and Cornette has said that he was in the office when Sean came in and, uh, Sean had found the clumps of his hair and he slammed it down on the desk and quit. And when he walked out, Vince followed. So Cornette took the hair and put it in a bag and took it home. And now somewhere his ex-wife has a bag of Sean Michaels hair. Uh, Brett motherfucker. Wrote, Brett wrote Vince looked like a jilted lover whose boy toy had up and left him, but he told Brett that this had not, this had been inevitable, but it was long overdue. He told Brett to take the night off. And Brett said before raw was over, Vince was hyping the fight on the 900 number. So that's what Brett says happened. Meltzer had a slightly different report. He says that, uh, most of the eyewitness accounts he heard where the heart was screaming about how Michaels had affected his real life with some of his comments and Michaels was a smart ass back. And then they went at it uh, with everybody saying that Bret Hart started it, but that Sean was every bit as guilty and, you know, kind of the lead up here, but it was largely a one-sided short tussle with a few punches thrown and a large clump of hair pulled out of Sean's head where he had now a major bald spot. His face is all puffy from the punches and he had a bloody elbow from being drug around on the floor. Um, and Hart had no major injuries besides re-injuring the knee a little bit, but mostly, uh, it just gave Jerry Briscoe and Pat Patterson and some other wrestlers an opportunity to separate these guys. Sean was out of the building by seven 57 before the show ever went on air and Brett left around eight 30. Uh, had Sean stuck around, he was supposed to wrestle Brian Pillman in the main event. Uh, and Michaels was going crazy after this in the arena, in the parking lot, on the phone saying he's never coming back. He's never working here. It's an unsafe working environment. So probably the most famous backstage fight in WWF history, certainly up there. I mean, two main eventers. What can you tell us about this? You were here. I was in the office with Cornette and Vince. Um, I, I was there when Sean walked in with the clumps of hair in his hand and slammed his hair down on, uh, the, the desk in there and Vince's are on the table in Vince's office. And the only thing that I remember the, the key phrase out of the whole thing was unsafe working conditions. And I think everybody's ears kind of perked up with that, that I'll go, Oh boy, here's a lawsuit. But from there, Pat came in <laughs> and Pat was just so blown up. Oh my God, it was terrible. And they got locked in and the Brett, the Brett had the hair and he just pulling his hair out and he reached it down and the big plant and the hairs everywhere. And they went through a, uh, an acoustical wall that had the acoustical foam on it. They went through one of those walls into the shower, into the bathroom and, it was more of a, um, probably a couple punches thrown and then Brett kind of locked in on the hair. They went down and then they got pulled apart. But yeah, Sean was just absolutely going insane. Now we're in the office and we have no idea that this is happening. And so when Sean comes in, it's like, you know, you're looking at him and, and his face is a little red and everything. And he's standing there with his hair and it's all frizzy and all out. And he's just going absolutely batshit. And we're thinking, what the hell happened? And then, you know, he's leaving, he stormed out. And then Vince, we all kind of walked out to go find out what happened. And then Pat came up to us and he was all out of breath. And we were like hoping Pat wasn't having a heart attack and, and then found Brett and Brett and Vince talk, but Brett was more, and I, I heard more of, you know, that Brett was kind of the instigator, but yet 
Sean bowed up and jumped back in his face and that they both were, in my opinion, from hearing everything, both guys were equally at fault. Um, but Brett was just so, uh, I don't, I don't want calm. Isn't the word, but just even keel afterwards. On June 10th, McMahon sent an internal memo out to WWF executives saying last night in Hartford, Shawn Michaels breached his contract by refusing to perform. We're hopeful Sean will reconsider his position and return to work. Sean has four years to go on his five-year contract. The door is open for Sean to return under the terms of his contract. Of course, Smeltzer published this and says it becomes clear to him that Michaels isn't going to be on any future house shows or TV shows, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, this is kind of funny to me. I don't know why, but he sends a memo out the next day. And it's an internal memo and he's referring to Shawn Michaels and a real life contract by using his kayfabe name. What an interesting business pro wrestling is. What did an internal memo look like back then? Did Vince just type the letter and have it printed and sign them all. And then his secretary brings them around and slides them under everybody's door. What's that process look like? Mm, I'm trying to think if we were in the computer age at that point, I think we were actually in the computer age at that point. So he would email so it to everybody. It was probably an email at that point. Yeah. So his, his assistant probably would have typed up the email and sent it out or it came from McDivitt or, or one of the legal folks. I don't know why, but you had, we had to do that. It, it, you know, so it's a CYA, you know, you cover your ass again, that key phrase that made everybody perk up unsafe working conditions. No, I get it. I get that you have a legal thing you have to respond to, but you're responding to a legal thing with a kayfabe name. It would be like if Netflix, when they fired Kevin Spacey said, Frank Underwood is no longer going to like, dude, say Kevin Spacey. What are you talking about? Um, well, half the people in the office probably wouldn't have known who Michael Hickenbottom <laughs> was. I go, who's the, is this a new guy? It's just hilarious to me to think about, you know, like what if, what if Sylvester Stallone walked off a movie? Rocky Balboa has to return to work. Uh, Brett said that Sean came back on July 3rd because Vince had threatened to stop his $15,000 a week checks. Meltzer wrote of it. Michael's attorney sent the WWF a letter saying that he hadn't breached his contract. He was injured in the fight with Hart, claiming both knee and neck injuries, and he's unable to wrestle for four to six weeks. He requested a meeting with McMahon in San Antonio on June 19th for both sides to settle the differences. And the WWF was now making plans as if Michaels will return back to work in the latter part of July. It seems like from a storyline standpoint to keep Michaels and Hart apart. So it isn't likely they're going to turn this into an angle for SummerSlam just due to the match and these guys having problems in real life. Um, how did Vince handle getting Sean to come around when he gets this letter? Does he just take a, a, a big sigh of relief and say, okay, let me just go kiss his ass a little and we'll get everybody back together. Vince was pissed and, and it was Vince and Jim Ross that went down and, and met with Sean and, and it was Sean and his lawyer and his dad that met. Um, I remember Vince telling me, he goes, I'm going to bring Jr. He'll make a better witness than you. <laughs> I was like, great. Um, I don't have to be involved in it. But the, you know, they went down and, and Vince was at the point where he was getting fed up with Sean's antics. On the 23rd of June, uh, they do a raw here and we get an appearance from Thomas Hearns, 
who Bret Hart is saying stole his moniker, the Hitman. Bret starts calling him the Chicken Man. So Hearn jumps the rail and goes nose to nose with Bret, and Anvil stands between them and gets punched by Hearns. And then the agents and Hearns people are all in the ring, keeping everybody separated. And JR says this is another Sports Center highlight for Monday Night Raw. How did you guys get Hitman Hearns involved? The way I remember it was uh, he was in Detroit. He's from there. He always used to show up. He showed up. We're hanging out and go, hey, would you like to do something? <laughs> you know, some things just fall in your lap. And by God, you, you try to come up with that sports center moment. Sometimes guys don't want to do shit. Next up, we've got in your house, Canadian stampede full show is available for you on that pay-per-view in the archives. Uh, but we will touch on this wrestling with shadows shows us a lot about this match and that documentary. Uh, Brett said that Austin and undertaker asked not to be filmed out of character. And Brett said that Paul J gave him his word that he could ask for anything that hurt the business to be cut out of the film. Uh, did you have any dealings with Paul J or anyone else from this filming that night of Canadian stampede? Uh, no, not really one-on-one. -on -one. They were around and we were asked to just cooperate and conduct business as usual. That if we either felt that there was something sensitive that they were taping, ask them not to tape and they wouldn't tape. Uh, other than that, just to conduct business as usual and ignore the cameras. Well, it feels like they, you know, based on what we could see, tried to just stay out of the way and shoot everything they could. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, pretty much, like I said, that they, you know, they were there, but backstage at, at TV, there are so many cameras doing so many things that you just, you become immune to cameras everywhere. Lots of stories in here about the Hart family. And we see a lot about Stu and Helen, uh, including, you know, the, the famous stories of Stu stretching guys. Did you ever let Stu stretch you? Didn't let him. But Stu liked to shake your hand and go, yeah, sometimes the Luther Lindsay, big bastard, uh, he would, uh, he would come in and I'd, uh, to God, he's strong. And, and the whole time he's maneuvering your hand and, and taking your knuckles and, and coming around and grabbing your elbow and then putting your elbow up. If you get your left elbow, he'll put it up behind your right ear and you're like, okay, hey, great Sue. Yeah, no, I'm and just begging him to find somebody else. But if there was a big guy, like a really big muscular guy, he loved them to just try and make them scream. We don't talk about Helen much here on the show. What can you tell us about Helen Hart? Pure class. Just the, uh, Helen was basically a New York socialite. And she was as far from what you would expect a wrestling wife to be. Um, and I, I, the only way I can describe her is pure class and sweet as could be. One of the, my favorite things about wrestling with shadows is they show the electric chair thing that Bret Hart has in his house or used to have. What's up with that? Did you ever see this thing? Oh, I saw, I saw it in, in the, uh, wrestling with shadows, but yeah, he, Brett had, you know, this is funny thing too. Brett had all of his belts that he had ever won, um, all the way go going back. He had replicas made and things, had them up in his office and all around his house. And his house was basically a sh shrine to Brett. And everybody used to make fun of that. I personally used to think that all this stuff he had was cool as shit. 
I mean, he had reason to be proud of his career and the different things. I always just loved his displays and I'd never been to his house, but all the pictures that I'd seen through the years, I always just thought it was cool as shit. Brett had an indoor pool and he's shown swimming in his pool and talking about all the money that WCW had offered him in this movie. And he says he always thought of Vince like a second dad. And if he left, it would be like leaving his dad because besides working for his dad, he never wrestled for anybody else. I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic that Vince sort of develops with a lot of his, his characters that he develops and his top stars that he, you know, he performs with. What's up with the dad dynamic that Vince kind of develops with all these guys? Vince is very hands-on in the development of talent, you know, especially upon inception. And if it's, if it's a gimmick that he created or that he is truly behind, uh, he's constantly working with those talents and he becomes that coach mentor kind of father-like figure to them in trying to get them to be the very best that they can. And by doing that, you know, it, it gives you the feeling of if you screw up that, you've let him down. It's kind of like letting your dad down and it's, it's just his way. I mean, he, he comes across as a great coach and a father-like figure. Uh, one hell of a pay-per-view here, Canadian stampede. You should go out of your way to watch it. Probably one of the best pay-per-views of all time. Uh, certainly my favorite in your house, uh, as far as a main event, I think it's up there with mind games and bad blood is the best three. Would you agree with that, Bruce? The place was rocking. I mean, absolutely insane. And yes, one of my favorite pay-per-views ever as far as atmosphere. So the night after we're here in Edmonton and, uh, Brett comes out to a hero's welcome. Of course, there's underneath and he's cutting a promo saying, you know, people say America, love it or leave it, but he loves leaving it. Uh, he puts over how awesome Canada is and then starts to set up SummerSlam. He talks about how the award-winning intercontinental champion Owen Hart is going to destroy Steve Austin at SummerSlam. Uh, the British bulldog is down next. Uh, and then of course, Austin comes in, clears them all out with a chair. Uh, the next week we've got another opportunity uh, to talk about the Hart foundation and what we're doing at SummerSlam. And one by one, we're building with Pillman cutting a promo on Goldust, saying some really uh, ballsy stuff about the Goldust character and Dusty Rhodes and Marlena. Uh, Owen is out here with a, a tube of Blistex telling Austin to pucker up because he's going to make him kiss his ass at SummerSlam. And uh, Bulldog says if he doesn't beat Shamrock, he'll eat a can of dog food. And Jim Neidhart says that if he doesn't win or if anybody uh, from the Hart Foundation doesn't win, he's going to shave off his goatee. But the big stipulation, of course, is if Brett doesn't win the world title at SummerSlam, he says he'll never wrestle in America again. Uh, you guys were really doing a lot here to put stipulations on every single match for the Hart Foundation. It's clear this is the top angle in the company at the time, right? <laughs> yes, and, it, and it's funny because Undertaker and I go back to... The- you just said stipulation, and we always would would laugh about there was this guy named Perry Jackson who did this promo about and he goes, you know, when I get you in the ring, Iceman King Parsons, we're gonna have a special stimulation. And we always used to joke about that, and Vin, and Vince would go, God damn, we need a stimulation for this match. So yeah, he would get into a lot of stipulations sometimes. On July 21st in Nova Scotia, it's announced that uh, Shawn Michaels is going to be doing 
the guest referee duties for the Brett Undertaker match at SummerSlam. And if he shows any favoritism towards Undertaker, Sean can't wrestle in America ever again. So a fun little twat, uh, pl- twat plus. A fun little plot. <laughs> That's the shirt now, boys and girls. Twat a plot, a twat plus. Twat plus. I've I've actually had one of those before. Chat me up. Who thinks of this? Shawn Michaels being the guest referee, and if he shows any favoritism, he can't wrestle in the U.S. anymore. It's pretty smartly done. It guarantees you a finish, and by doing that, it, now the the outcome is less predictable because right. you're thinking, you know, is Sean obviously is going to screw Brett. Sure. But now if you, you add that he can't screw Brett, well, hell is what, what happens here? So it just makes it, and they're forced, you know, everybody's forced to have to play their role in, in, in character that way. Later that night during the Patriot triple H match, a lot of the heart foundation come down to confront Vince about this decision to put Sean in as the special guest referee. Vince stands up to Brett and, uh, Brett knocks the headset off of his head. They grab each other and Vince tightly pulls Brett's shirt over his head and the Patriot comes out to help. Uh, this looks kind of stiff from Brett and Vince. How do these guys feel about it afterwards? It's one of the first times we see some physicality with Vince and, uh, it's kind of fitting given what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. It was a hockey fight. It was the, and it was, you know, Brett's whole thing was I knock your headset off and then grab me, pull my Jersey over my head. Like they do in, in hockey and then just like start going underneath me. That way he was pretty well protected in everything. Um, Vince, especially at that time, he hadn't done anything. So, for the physicality, man, you, you either got to lay them in or it's going to look like crap. So they, yeah, it was stiff, but that's the way they liked it. They're kind of flip-flopping here with raw in America, raw in Canada. This is well done. The next week they're in Pittsburgh and you know where we're going here. Um, Bret Hart is out on the mic and he's talking about how ridiculous American justice has become. He cites the OJ Simpson case as a prime example. And he guarantees if he doesn't win, he's never coming back. But as he's criticizing, he says, America is really shaped like a giant toilet bowl. And if you could stick the hose in America to give it an enema, you'd put it right here in Pittsburgh. Then he challenges the Patriot to a match. So later in the show, we've got Brett wrestling the Patriot in the main event. And Sean is doing commentary. Of course, he ends up distracting Brett and the Patriot rolls him up for the pin. And this feels like right time, right place for the Patriot. Does it not? I mean, you're main eventing raw. You're kind of uh, relatively unknown. It's not like you're a very established character to this audience. I mean, we know that Dell Wilkes knows what he's doing, but this is right place, right time for this Patriot gimmick. Is it not? Timing is everything. And without a doubt. Yeah. Dell was in the right place, right time. Wish it could have lasted longer. So here we are. SummerSlam, August 3rd, 1997 from the Meadowlands. Uh, I guess we should take a break here to ask how long would it take you to get your degree in computer graphics, Bruce? Five minutes. Um, of course the reminder here is it's Brett and undertaker in the world title match for the main event. And Sean is the special guest referee. The steps again, are if Brett loses, he can't wrestle in the United States again. And if Sean shows any favoritism to the undertaker, he can't wrestle in the United States again. And on wrestling with shadows, we see Brett and Pat Patterson talking in the ring about how Sean is going to cost the undertaker the match. 
and Sean is essentially going to be turning heel here. And, uh, Brett said, it feels like Sean is taking all of his heat. What do you think about that in hindsight? Do you think that that's accurate that Sean sort of takes Brett's heat away here? I thought it put heat on Brett, frankly, because here, you know, Brett, Brett's winning with the help of Sean. And to me, I look at it exactly the opposite way. Phenomenal finish here at the end. Um, Sean is pissed off and he's going to hit Brett with a chair after Brett spit on him, but Brett ducks. So Sean winds up hitting the undertaker with a chair and Brett covers him very reluctantly. Sean makes the count. Meltzer gave it three stars. And for your fifth time, Brett is your world champion. One hell of a chair shot, but one phenomenal finish that I remember all these days later. what did you think about this main event, SummerSlam 97? I thought it was excellent because everybody played their role to perfection. As I said before, it was something that you couldn't call. It wasn't predictable. And everybody got just got in the right places moving forward. Uh, on Wrestling with Shadows, they show Brett and his son in the dressing room after the match, and you see Brett taking some promo photos with the belt. Uh, so that's kind of a, a nice little look behind the curtain. The next night on Raw, of course, the Hart Foundation starts the show, and he tells everybody, you know, we reminded you why we're the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. But Brett also claims that Sean was not an impartial ref because he tried to hit him with a chair, so he should not be allowed to wrestle in the United States. But he says Shamrock won't be getting another European shot. He runs through everything else that's happened with Austin and Owen and all that. Owen actually calls Austin a crippled freak and orders him to forfeit the Intercontinental title or take another butt kicking. And this brings out the new commissioner, Sergeant Slaughter. And Sarge tells Brett that he's the new sheriff in town and that he's demanding Brett defend the belt against the Patriot. He orders Pillman to come out wearing a dress or says he'll be suspended. And then Austin comes out and says he doesn't need a doctor's approval to beat up Owen. And he calls Owen a loser just for being a part of the Hart family. Uh, later in the show, Brett's doing commentary for the Owen dude love match. And at one point, Brett throws dude into the post and back into the ring. And Owen puts the sharpshooter on him. This brings Austin out and he hits Owen with a slammy and dude pins him. Uh, they start working house shows and Undertaker is working with Brett on, in Miami. But the next night, Shamrock is working with Brett. Uh, the baby faces are getting wins by DQ here on August 11th. The Patriot comes down and calls out Brett and Brett comes down with the heart foundation and they attack him and cover him with the Canadian flag. So you know where we're heading here on the August 18th raw, the Patriots wrestling Vader and Brett comes down and waves that Canadian flag to distract the Patriot and the Patriot winds up pinning Vader, but then Vader attacks him and Brett lays the Canadian flag over him. Vader takes it off and breaks the flagpole over his knee. So then Vader and Brett start to fight and Owen and Bulldog come down and uh, get the advantage over Vader on Friday night's main event, August 29th, Brett wrestles Vader and Owen and Bulldog end up doing a run in to cause the DQ and Brett would write that he suffered a minor concussion during this match. And, uh, I love reading about stuff like this because I think we, as fans just take this for granted because he gets a concussion here and. The two nights later in Saskatoon, he's working again against the Patriot. And the day after that, he's working the Patriot again. Uh, the following Friday night's main event on September 5th, Brett's doing an in-ring interview with JR. And he says, America treats their heroes like crap. He calls the Patriots win cheap. And he says, when he gets to ground zero, he'll see America itself across the ring from him. And he's going to beat the Patriot up so bad that the Patriot will be the only person wheeling around heaven in a wheelchair. 
Uh, and he promises that whether we like it or not, Patriots career ends at ground zero. So of course, here we are September 7th, 1997 and Brett pins the Patriot in about 19 minutes. Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars. And Brett said of the match, we had a red hot American versus Canadian angle for the WWF lost its heat. When that champion had to fight a cartoon, a hokey masked Marvel in red, white, and blue that the fans couldn't relate to because with the mask on, he couldn't express pain or anything. I asked Pat about the matchup and he quipped the whole business is a fucking cartoon. I had nothing but respect for Dale. We did all we could, but it was a tough haul in hindsight. It does feel like the Patriots sort of brought this thing to a little bit of a halt. You know, it's so hot. It gets hotter every month, May, June, July, August. And then it just falls off a cliff in September. How much of this is the Patriots fault? And how much do you blame on the mask? I just think that it, it was, it had run its course. Um, I don't think that the Patriot in particular, that that character or anything brought it to a halt. I just think that it had run its course and without Brett being against, you know, the top guys and, and Dell wasn't the top guy at that time. Um, probably got that feeling. But I just think the whole angle had almost run its course. Brett was very sick with the flu heading into September 11th, but he manages to pull through and, uh, he crawls out of bed and gets into the ring and Amarillo to wrestle Terry Funk and Terry Funk's 917th retirement match in Amarillo. Uh, they fought each other over who was going to be the one to put the other one over. And ultimately Brett ends up getting the win after about 25 minutes. Meltzer gave the match four stars and, uh, it's kind of a cool deal. This wrestle fest from 1997, we would also see mankind work with Sabu on this show. How eager was Vince to let some of his talent go do the favor for Terry Funk here? He was fine with it. Again, uh, Terry Funk is Terry Funk by God. So Brett was the first one to ask. And then Mick asked and knowing how their personal relationship was with Funk's and Vince frankly has a soft spot for Terry Funk. He had no problem with it. Right, let's get to the, uh, one night only pay-per-view in Birmingham, England. It's the first ever UK only pay-per-view. It was released in America on VHS. Brett would retain over the undertaker by DQ going about 28 minutes. Both guys were cheered when they got there, but the crowds were generally going to root for the challenger to win the title. And as the match progressed, the undertaker received a total face reaction. Hart was getting about 50, 50. Uh, interestingly enough though, this match is not included on the VHS release of the event. Uh, Brett has said that he and undertaker weren't even on the posters in England for the event. What's up with that? You know, it, it's probably most known for Shawn Michaels beating the bulldog for the European title. Of course, a lot of people thought bulldog was going over, but the day of the show, allegedly Shawn got Vince to change the outcome. And Brett said that Davey was devastated and, uh, Sean and triple H are obviously there to clean up, pick up the pieces. What did you think of this pay-per-view and the decision to not include Brett and undertaker as a big part of the promotion? The promotion was all, it was a built around bulldog and it was built around the European championship being in the UK. And that's what they felt that they needed to present it. Um, I don't think it was a wise move because the, the talent that is over in the, in the United States, it's the same TV they're watching. And this, this is the shit that used to get me sometimes that we would change promotions 
for example, in, in the UK, well, Bulldog's English, so let's build the, the promotion around him. Or in Quebec, well, let's, let's build the promotion or, or this promotion, this match around Jacques Rougeau or whatever. Um, they're getting the same TV. <laughs> you should be, be building your promotion around what the hell you're selling. The next Raw is September 22nd from Madison Square Garden. And of course, this is the famous Raw where Austin stuns Vince for the first time. Cactus Jack makes his debut. I'm sure we'll cover it long form sometime because this is probably one of the most critical Raws in history. And not just for what you saw on camera. Because earlier in the day, Vince calls Brett into his office and tells Brett he's going to have to breach Brett's contract. He tells him he's not going to be able to pay his full salary because of the problems with Ted Turner. And he says that Brett was the Cal Ripken of the WWF and he fully intended to pay him what he owed him on the back end of his 20 year contract. But then he said, I have no problem. If you want to see if WCW will make you that same deal as before, I hear Hogan is finishing up soon there. Your timing couldn't be more perfect. Vince then told Brett, if he left, he'd actually be doing Vince a favor because he was about to downsize to a Northeastern United States promotion. He told Brett because of his 14 years of loyal service, he wanted to give Brett the opportunity to approach WCW before everyone else did, since he'd be letting a lot of wrestlers go. Vince then told him, you don't even have to drop the belt if you don't want to. You hold all the cards. So then Vince said he'd even secretly set Brett up to negotiate with WCW if Brett wanted him to. And he says he wants to find a way to pay Brett, but ask Brett for now to keep this to himself. And, uh, Vince says if word got out that he was in trouble, it would hurt Brett's chances with Bischoff and actually cost Brett some leverage. Of course, Brett's kind of shocked by all this. And, uh, he's stunned by the number of promises that have been broken in a single conversation. And he doesn't even know how to reply. Did Vince talk to you about this particular meeting with Brett? Of course, some of this is coming from Meltzer. Some of this is coming from Brett's book. Were you in the room? What do you remember? The only people in the room were Vince and, uh, Bret Hart. So, you know, they're, they're the only two people that really know what was said. Uh, I would find it extremely hard to believe that Vince would say, Brett, you can even keep the belt. I don't see him saying that. I could see Brett saying, well, what about the belt? And Vince saying, Brett, you hold all the cards. I could see that happening, but I don't see Vince saying you can keep the belt. Um, it was, it was a tough decision. Yeah. He, he did not want to cost Brett. If Brett could go and make truly make $3 million at WCW and it was true to help him out. It would, it would cut that cost a big chunk right off the top of the budget for us. If we didn't have to pay that contract to Brett, but Vince was like, I'm not going to hold you to this. I, I could keep you here and I could pay you that. And it's going to financially hurt us. Um, if you could do less here and I'll pay you on the back end, all that's true. Um, but at the same time, he said, you know, go, if, if it's about the money, then go and get the money, go and use us as leverage and go get the money. I don't want to hold you back. Brett said later that day, he was approached by Sean and Hunter and they asked if he would call them gay like a true homophobe in the main event, he wrestled gold dust and Brett won with a sharpshooter in about nine minutes. And then Sean would attack Brett and they start to fight, but it winds up turning into DX versus the heart foundation until the undertaker comes in and chokeslams both Brett and Sean. 
After Raw goes off the air, of course, there's a three-way match here with Brett getting a win over The Undertaker and Sean. Um, Got to be a weird time for Bret Hart. He's going to work several days in a row here, uh, and he's working with The Undertaker every time. Toledo, Fort Wayne, Rockford, Champaign, Green Bay, uh, and even into Winnipeg and St. Paul. This takes us to the Bad Blood pay-per-view on October 5th. Of course, this is the day where Brian Pillman tragically passed away, or we at least learn about it. You can hear all about that on our Bad Blood episode, which is filmed in the archives. On that same show, though, we would see Brett and Bulldog beat Vader in the Patriot. It's originally supposed to be a flag match, but it was changed at the very last minute because no one knew what the fuck they were doing. Uh, so Brett pins the Patriot at the 23-minute mark. The next night on Raw, the wrestlers come out on top of the ramp for a 10-bell salute to Brian Pillman. And Brett said the only two that didn't come out were Sean and Hunter. Chat me up. Why don't you think Sean and Hunter came out for the 10 bell salute to Brian Pillman? I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. Didn't know they didn't. Earlier in the day, Sean again told Brett he wanted Brett to call him and Hunter homos. Uh, Brett said he was uncomfortable doing it because of the tension between them. And Brett admits he really just didn't want these guys saying that about him. So later in the show, during a uh, in-ring promo with Vince, DX is there and Brett interrupts it and calls them degenerates and calls them homos. And Triple H responds by saying, I'm no queer. Later in the show, Brett wrestled Hunter and Hunter would win by count out after Sean would super kick Brett out of the ring. Do you remember there being some sort of discourse backstage about whether or not these guys should refer to one another as homos on TV? I don't remember that at all. I definitely do remember the, the whole, uh, degeneration thing because that was something that Vince wanted to do and that Vince wanted to, to get out with Sean and Hunter. And it was, you know, just call them there. They're degenerates. And that line specifically came from Vince McMahon, the whole degenerate stuff. And then later on, it just evolved into the DX. Brett says a few days later, he goes to LA to do a mad TV appearance and he has a meeting with Eric Bischoff. Uh, Eric tells him they're still interested, but he couldn't negotiate until the WWF gave him permission to do so. Bischoff says there's a lot of legal battles between the two companies, mainly with Medusa, uh, on nitro a few years prior, since the belt still had the WWF logos on it. Brett said that Vince had WCW by the balls. Vince also sued them for torturous interference over the Hall and Nash contracts, accusing Bischoff of encouraging them to sign with him. So Brett told Eric he could leave any way he wanted, even as champion. And Eric allegedly says he didn't care about that, and he advised Brett to leave on good terms. Is that the way you remember it, that Bischoff wanted Brett to handle business the right way? That's what I've been told by Eric, that he said yes. Brett's working a series of matches here, uh, all over Topeka, Kansas on the seventh. He's in Anaheim on the 11th, San Jose on the 12th. He gets a win in San Jose over Shamrock and triple H in a triple threat match. And Brett would say later that night, Brett and Sean would finally talk. And by this time they know they're going to wrestle each other at survivor series. And Brett says something like, I just want you to know that despite any differences that we may have had this past year, I have no problem working with you. You can trust me in every way to be a professional. What you need to know, Sean, is that you're not in any danger. I also want you to know I have no problem dropping the belt to you if that's what Vince wants. Brett said Sean said back to him, I appreciate that, but I want you to know I'm not willing to do the same thing for you and walked away. 
And according to Brett, Neidhart standing there sees the whole thing and says, I can't believe he just said that. And Brett said that this conversation is the reason he decided to not put over Sean at Survivor Series because he felt totally disrespected. In hindsight, that conversation between them on October 12th is probably the catalyst for the screw job. Have you heard about this conversation and when do you hear about it and from whom? Uh, I heard about the conversation, heard about it from Brett. And I don't doubt for one second that Sean said that because it sounds like something that Sean would have said at the time and probably just to, just to dig and stick that in Brett's craw. He knew that Brett was leaving. And so to him, I probably didn't really matter. I don't know what his motivation was for saying that. I can imagine it was just to stir things up and rile them up. Brett's working house shows again through the middle of the month, San Diego on the 13th, Fort Worth on the 18th, Wichita on the 19th, uh, and somewhere around here, WCW, WCW's offer finally comes through. It's 1.8 million a year for three years. Uh, so Brett tells Eric, if you can't get me to 2.8, just forget about it. And Eric says, I'll try to get you an answer by the middle of the week. And on October 20th at raw backstage, Michael Cole is standing in the nation of dominations locker room where it's been vandalized. There's Canadian flags and Canada rules and other insults spray painted on the walls. Later in the show, Brett would wrestle Farouk and Brett pins him after Austin comes in and stuns Farouk. And now Brett says it feels like he's been portrayed by the company as both a homophobe and a racist. Uh, is this intentional or is this Brett? I mean, obviously you guys are trying to get a little edgy, but now Brett said homo and he's attacking a militant black group spray painting. Brett feels like you guys are intentionally disparaging him. That's not me jumping to conclusions. This is Brett's own writings. I think it's paranoid and silly. Well, um, it is what Brett thinks the next day, Vince tells Brett, he wants him to drop the title to Sean at survivor series, but he says, Brett can win it back at the December 7th pay-per-view. If you're still with me and Brett says, that doesn't make any sense. If I wind up staying, why would I lose in Canada and then win in the States? And then he tells Vince about the story, the conversation where Sean admitted he would not put over Brett. Brett said Vince's face got tense and red and he asked on in front of him. And Brett said, I'd be happy to later that night. Vince finally got them both in his office. And he said to Sean, Sean, I'm putting the belt back on you. And Brett said, Sean began to cry and started to tell Brett how much he respected him. And Brett replied, Sean, you just told me four days ago in San Jose, you'd never put me over. And Sean said something like, sometimes I say the stupidest things. I always put my foot in my mouth. And Brett realized he just needed to get out of there. He said, I don't know what's going to happen at survivor series, but I'm not agreeing to anything yet. We'll see where all of this is going. And Vince, you know what I'm talking about? So chat me up here. I got to tell you, Bruce, if you're a conspiracy theorist, this feels like something that Vince was sort of plotting out. He realized the only way to make these puzzle pieces fit together is if Vince just makes a statement and Sean goes over the top selling in order to get the win. And it sort of removes the opportunity for Sean to be cocky. Was that a calculated move by Vince or tell me how you remember this going down? No, oh, I'm sure it was without a doubt. That's why I got them together. Um, put them together and, and Sean, damn it. 
you know, apologize, do what you need to do to, to get this match in the ring. We've got to get this match here and we've got to make sure that Brett's going to do business. So Brett tries to call Bischoff a few times over the next few days, but he hasn't heard anything back. When Brett gets to the Nassau Coliseum on October 24th, Vince tells him he now could pay him and that money wasn't a problem. But Brett says, until I hear back from Eric, I'm going to keep my options open. On the October 27th Raw, the nation comes out and challenges the Hart Foundation to a battle of the factions, and Brett came out and accepted the challenge. He said, unlike America, Canadians don't hate black people. And he says DX is trying to drive a wedge between the hearts and the nation. This of course brings DX on the Tron and Sean calls Brett the grand wizard and racist to the core and calls the rest of the heart foundation, Brett's KKK buddies. Triple H tells the NOD that the heart foundation was using the N word while they spray painted their locker room. And then the NOD and the heart foundation start to fight until agents and refs break them up. And Brett starts limping out on his right ankle. Um, how do you, I mean, this in hindsight does not age. Well, was there, huh, any, you think was there horribly, any, was there any sort of controversy in booking this or is everybody just like, yeah, sounds good boss. No, there, there's a lot of controversy in it and it was, it's what's reflected in real life. And we're, we're a mirror of society and, and all this other crap and just because you're a mirror of society, uh, doesn't replace, you know, good taste and just right and wrong. And obviously it was wrong. Not a, not a good decision. Yeah. Not a good decision. Uh, it was a good decision in the main event to have Brett wrestle shamrock for the world title. Uh, of course, Brett had been injured, um, limping around in the fight with the nation of domination. So of course, since he's got a bad ankle, Shamrock puts Brett in the ankle lock and Brett taps out, but the ref doesn't see it. So Brett winds up hitting him with a chair and getting him in the sharpshooter. Sean comes out and they start to fight and now rolls off the air. But you're certainly even here trying to elevate Shamrock to that top spot. Well, exactly. And by the way, the ankle was a work. No, of course. I'm just saying, yeah, come on. Uh, on October 31st, Eric calls with an offer of two and a half million for 125 days a year. To be clear, the previous offer was 2.8 million for 180 days. So this is going to be a little over 10 days a month for two and a half million. And Eric says something like, what else is it going to take to get you down here? Brad immediately called his lawyer and the lawyer kept repeating. We have a sweetie of a deal. And so we see on wrestling with shadows at some point during this, they're filming in Brett's house. And he says, he's just talked to Vince and he's talking to Julie and Julie doesn't believe it and says this happened just a year after they were asked to stay. He says he needs to think and he asked for them to stop filming. Um, did you have any conversations with Julie before the screw job about any of this contract stuff or what was her relationship like with the office? had no relationship with her at all okay. in any way, shape or form other than seeing her and saying hello. One of the things I really enjoyed about the documentary is Brett says something like I was the number one good guy and he quit that to be the number one bad guy, but Sean wound up giving or Vince wound up giving that job to Sean. So at this point, Brett feels like Vince has all but sabotaged his career because he's no longer the number one good guy or the bad guy. And Brett calls Vince the next morning and tells Vince what WCW's offered. And then Brett says something like, I want to stay with you. 
and my contract is just fine the way it is, but I need you to tell me where I'm going and what I'm doing. What's the rest of my story going to be? Vince said he'd think about that and call him back. And when Brett didn't hear anything back, he called Vince who was getting his hair cut. And Brett told him, Vince, I've only got until midnight. Vince said not to worry about the deadline and to call him on Sunday. Brett then had another, another conversation with Eric and Eric asked him what else, whatever it is that you want, better say it now. And Brett said, I can be late. Sometimes I've never missed a show in 14 years or heard another wrestler. I'll always be on time for my match. And with Vince, I'm allowed to get there at showtime. And Eric says, what else? And Brett said, injury insurance with Vince. I'm totally covered for everything. Eric says, okay, we'll get you insurance. Anything else after a pause, Brett says, that's it. And they both agreed that the deal was done and a deal was officially made. Vince ended up calling Brett around midnight and told him to think with his head and not his heart. And Brett then asked, what do you have in mind for me? And Vince says, first, you'll put Sean over at survivor series. And then you'll put him over at the December pay-per-view. And then we'll have a ladder match at the Royal rumble and you'll put Sean over there. And then Brett would challenge him one more time on raw with the stipulation that if Brett didn't win, he quit forever. And then Vince said, everyone will think you're going to lose, but we'll fuck him and you'll get your hand raised. And Brett laughed and says, you've got to be kidding me. I thought you'd come up with something to make me want to stay. And Vince allegedly says, I don't know. You tell me what do you want to do? Uh, Brett's pretty pissed at this point and says, you're the genius. You made me turn heel, made me say all the things about Americans. They all hate me. Now you turned off my heat and gave it all to Sean. And now all I am is a lukewarm heel. I don't even know what you want to do with me. And Vince says, think with your head and not your heart. Take the WCW offer. So Brett hangs up, checks his fax machine. There's the WCW contract. And with tears in his eyes, put the contract back in the feeder, dialed the number and pushed send. And he recited the Lord's prayer as his 14 year career in the WWF passed before his eyes. What do you think about this back and forth? of Brett's real internal struggle with what to do and seemingly willing to walk away from the big money. If the creative was right and Vince just really being sort of dismissive about the whole thing. You know, I, I, I see both sides because I was on the other side and I truly believe Brett did not want to leave. I truly believe that Brett wanted to stay but I also believe that Brett would not be would not have been happy if he had stayed, if everything wasn't centered around Brett. So you, you have to weigh that against in every conversation when it's being thrown up. I've got a three million dollar offer over here. You're only paying me half of that here and so on and so forth. After a while, when you, you hear that every time you start to think, wow, man, he, he really wants that $3 million. And by the way, who wouldn't, if you, if you had gone through the different, uh, back and forth that he's going through, you're going to sit there and wonder, well, what the hell, man? He's, you know, Vince is telling me to go. Vince is telling me I should take this. Um, how do you turn your back on it? How do you go look at your wife and kids and, and you turn down $3 million for all that, all that time. And Vince is trying to tell him, you know what, go get that money while you can. 
and you can always come back. You can always come back, Brett, when, when that run's done and you get the money, come on back. Um, it, it was hard. It was hard on both sides. And I c- couldn't even begin to imagine the turmoil internally that Brett was going through. He, he didn't want, Brett didn't want to leave. So here's where we are. Brett calls Vince the next day and Vince says he wants him to put Sean over at the survivor series. But Brett says, I'm sorry, Vince. I've always done everything you've asked, but I can't do that. I'll put it over anybody you want, but I will not under any circumstances put over Sean Michaels. And Vince said, where do you get this stuff? Brett said, come on, Vince. I've made myself clear to both you and Sean and Tulsa. I'll drop it to Austin or take her. Hell, I'll even drop it to Lombardi at the garden. As a reminder, the Brooklyn brawler had won a battle Royal at Madison square garden that earned the rights to get a world title shot. The next time they were at Madison square garden. He even says, Vince, you told me I could leave any way I wanted. Remember Vince said, I'll have to sue you. And Brett said in my contract, I have creative control for my last 30 days. And Vince said, we could tie our assholes up in court for years over this. And then Brett just demands he's not doing it. He says, everything's been geared toward the Canadian hero winning this match. And it would kill him off to lose to Sean in Montreal. After everything he's done, he's picked his nose on. And just what he said about Stu being dead on international TV, he said he would lose all self-respect if he lost. He's just not going to do it. And Brett said for the rest of the week, they went back and forth. Vince would tell Brett he could win. And then he'd come back and say he couldn't. And Brett stood his ground and says, this is the first and only time he refused to lose in his career. Um, when do you first hear that they're at an impasse? I guess, first of all, that Brett's gone. How does Vince call and communicate that to you? And then, you know, what's the conversation like about the survivor series finish? Well, Vince told us the next day and said, you know, we'll take the title off of him at survivor series. And from that point forward, I was probably on maybe 75% of the phone calls between Brett and Vince and never in any of those phone calls that I witnessed, um, did Vince ever say, yeah, Brett, you can take the, (laughs) you don't have to lose the belt. Um, it was always how, how do we do this? I've got to get, I've got to get the championship on Deshaun, and we have an advertised championship match for the pay-per-view at survivor series in Montreal. Help me, give me a finish, get, you know, get me there. And he was just abstinent. Didn't want to do it. Um, everything that we threw at him, he, he just didn't want to do it. So and Vince and Vince didn't want to do it any other way. Sean said that he was told Brett wanted to come to raw the day after survivor series and just hand the belt over and leave that way. Sean said to Vince that I'll do whatever you want. And Hunter said, fuck that. If he doesn't want to do business, you do it for him. Now, the other thing that's been suggested is that Jim Cornette says he was there at the house with Brett and Sean going back and forth on the phone with Vince and Russo's there. And there's some other folks there. And then I guess Cornette suggests that he's the one who says, let's just double cross him. And he says, Russo's eyes got big because he wasn't really familiar with what that even meant, but he knew it wasn't good. And your recollection is Cornette, the one who suggested it. Or Hunter, we all suggested it, and and we suggested it there at the house. 
Uh, Hunter suggested it uh, when he was talking with them. So that suggestion was thrown out there by a lot of people. So it was more, it was more than one that Vince and Vince didn't want to do that. He, he wanted to convince Brett to do the right thing and to do business. He, he really wanted to do right by Brett. So Brett suggested they do the match at survivor series as he wanted, but then he would drop the belt the next night, but Vince declined the idea and ultimately now you didn't want to drop the belt the next night. Just wanted to hand it over. Vince told Sean, he'd take all the heat if they did the screw job thing. And Sean told him that all of it would fall on him because everybody knew he wasn't very well liked anyway, but Brett felt if this thing turned into a real fight between them, he'd have been able to take care of himself and defend himself, but he didn't think it would ever come down to that. Brett said he'll never understand why Sean couldn't simply just put him over and return the favor with Brett immediately dropping the belt to him the next night on raw where a much bigger audience would see it. Brett said he would have his respect and Sean would have the belt. Uh, Meltzer wrote in the observer that the 40 year old Brett Hart had finally come to terms to go to world championship wrestling on a two year deal, abandoning his 20 year WWF contract. Um, it's kind of an interesting deal because on that November 3rd nitro Bischoff was teasing a big surprise on next week's show, which would be the announcement of Hart coming to the NWO. Um, and at this point, the internet is really starting to pick up steam. Is this really the first thing that you remember being sort of all over the internet? Because the internet was a buzz about what's going on. So even that week of survivor series, when Bret Hart is doing Michael Landsberg, People know what's coming, don't they? Wow. Um, well, de- definitely Bret Hart, uh, I think, as far as the internet stuff. I-, I would have to go back to the first time, you know, when Bret was gone and coming back and he-, he signed the 20-year deal or whatever it was. That was the first time I remember everybody talking about contract negotiations and all this shit. But yeah, this was, this was crazy, man. Everybody was giving their what if scenarios. It gets out on November 3rd and before these plans are out, uh, and everybody knows, um, the original plan, at least according to what Dave Meltzer had been told was that Hart was going to continue working for the WWF through all the scheduled house shows through the end of November and then have one final show which would be the December 7th pay-per-view from Springfield, Massachusetts. Hypothetically speaking, if you guys would have been able to come up with a solution for the survivor series, do you think that the December 7th pay-per-view would have been Brett's last show? That wasn't in the cards in, in our mind, his last show was survivor series. No matter what, what we, that's what we were told the lot. Yeah. He was finishing up at survivor series. That was it. Vince didn't see, cause the thing was, what do you do with him for that month? Right. And Vince didn't want to get into another scenario where, oh, you made me look bad on TV or you did that or you, and, and more negotiation back and forth. So you ended at survivor series. He loses the championship. He goes on and does his thing at WCW. Heading into the pay-per-view Meltzer wrote exactly what is going to happen in Montreal is unclear with Hart leaving. Everyone will expect him to lose to Michaels for logical, common sense business reasons with wrestling. The way it is today, the title switch shouldn't be taken as a lock. Although obviously he will be dropping the title at some point very quickly. The next obvious question concerns the futures of Owen Hart and Davy boy Smith. 
The belief is that both who signed five-year contracts over the past 14 months will remain in similar roles as they have at the present with the WWF and the situation with Brett has nothing to do with them. So when you guys first pitch the screw job, is there like a, a second line item where people say, Hey, well, what about, what about Owen? What about Davey? Is that even considered? We, yeah, we considered what, you know, what they were going to do, but we were also pretty much assured that by them, that they were fine and that they were, but, but also keep in mind, we didn't discuss the screw job other than, well, you know, we could just, just screw him. And Vince didn't want to discuss that. Like, no, I want to figure out a way to get this done. You know? Okay. Yeah. We can always screw him. Okay, great. But it wasn't like we sat down and, and said, here's how we'll do it. That wasn't discussed. That didn't happen. And frankly, the, uh, how it happened didn't take place until that day when they were going over the match and Brett suggested the spot that Sean get him in the sharpshooter. You know, it's so, kind of I'm, interesting that, um, so much of this doesn't age. Well, Brett wrote this column in the Calgary sign just a few days prior to the survivor series, Sean Michaels, you're a disgrace to professional wrestling. It amazes me that there was a time where I actually thought you'd be the guy who would come up behind me and carry the ball when my time comes to retire. Now, when you're behind me, I have to make sure I don't bend over. I'm a second generation wrestler. Like a lot of second generation wrestlers, I've paid my dues. The way you're degrading the business makes me sick and breaks my heart. That's not what heartbreak kid was supposed to mean. I told you, and I told Vince to leave our families out of this. So you got on raw and said, my father is dead. This time you're so far over the line that there's no coming back. Every so often you shoot your mouth off. You come to the backstage with a lame apology and a limp handshake. Oh, Brett, my mouth always gets me in trouble when I'm going out there. You know, I don't mean nothing by it. Don't bother this time. I'm not buying it. I would not embarrass my father. Who's not only very much alive, but still tougher today at 83 and more of a man than you will ever be. As you have embarrassed your father with your degenerate behavior. How humiliating for your poor father to explain your lewd gestures to her friends. You don't respect anybody, do you? And he says that Sean's a whore for the business and he goes on and on and on. Um, but it's some interesting stuff here, uh, where he's sort of blurring the line and he's talking about WCW and the WWF and the belt not being 10 and, you know, making sorts of, I don't know, rumor and innuendo. Who, I mean, is this. What do you make of Brett writing this in a newspaper? Well, that was the Brett Hart column. Uh, he had a, he had a column in the Calgary sun, I guess, whatever it was that he actually really did write every week. And that was his way of expressing himself. Well, we all thought, what the hell, you know, he, he writes in his book, Hey, you, you guys made me look like, you know, I was homophobic, but then he writes in his column here. So you and your boyfriend right. Hunter think I'm told, um, think I'm old. Hunter said he's bigger than me in more ways than one. And you pointed at Hunter's crotch and said, you could put an eye out with that thing. Thanks for admitting that, you know, what Hunter has in his pants. So how come I have four kids and all you two have is each other. I'm not the one shooting blanks. By the way, you both look very comfortable eating bananas together on raw, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know, man. Feels yeah, kind of weird. I, it, it's coming out of both sides. So it, it is. Well, um, you know, 
Kevin Nash is somebody we haven't talked about much in this, but Kevin Nash was allegedly one of the guys pushing for Brett to come in, maybe because he's friends with Brett and he knows he can help the company, maybe because he wants a pay raise, but he played a role in, in, in Brett coming to WCW. And I find that interesting because Kevin Nash is also really good friends with Shawn Michaels. Did you ever have any conversations with Kevin Nash about Montreal? No. Never had an occasion to at all in any way. Allegedly, Brett was going to earn roughly one and a half million dollars uh, on his WWF contract. So it is quite a bump to go from 1.5 to 2.8. Are we in the ballpark? Not the downside guarantee, but with everything all in, you think one and a half is close? I know you're not going to give me the real deal. Just help me. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, so here's kind of the timeline of where we are now. You know, we've kind of ran through everything so far, but now it's the week of, um, and he just officially signs on November 1st, 1997. I feel like everybody needs to keep that in mind and word gets out fairly quickly because by the third, everybody knows, um, they've been making legal threats all day. The second, um, and they're, they're making suggestions like there can be a final four match in Springfield and Michaels will win the title there. And then, uh, Brett will get a chance to go out in Portland on raw and do a farewell interview and babyface the company as much as possible and leave like Babe Ruth. Was there ever any serious consideration of that? Or is that just to pacify Brett in your opinion? Um, you know, we listened but there was, there was no way. I mean, Vince wanted to get it done on the pay-per-view as advertised, wanted to get that match in the ring and give the public what we had advertised. Um, didn't want to do it in a house show. Didn't want to do it in a screwy way and may have been discussed, well, but not seriously. It's, it's serious enough to Brett that he actually makes a call to Bischoff and says, listen, I don't want you to announce that I'm coming over just yet. I need you to hold off because I've got to get through this show on the 8th of December. And I know my contract technically is supposed to start on December 1st, but let me finish up, uh, through December 8th and they go back and forth and they agree. Um, on November 4th, McMahon calls Brett and says he's changed his mind. And now he says that Michael should lose clean in Montreal and then he'd steal the title in a controversial finish in Springfield. And then Hart can do that farewell in Portland. So by this point, everything's already signed and done with WCW and all the hotlines like the observer and the torch, everybody knows on the fifth, the internet now has it everywhere. It's even got stories in the Montreal Gazette, the Toronto sun, the Calgary sun, uh, this is the big, big story in wrestling at this point. And it looks like Bischoff's going to be on TV on the 10th announcing that Brett's coming over, but Bischoff is asked not to do that by Brett Hart and postpone the announcement. And allegedly Bischoff agrees, but this is going to be what McMahon sort of uses as an excuse for the screw job. He doesn't want. Eric to make that announcement the day after the survivor series, right? 
Of course not. We didn't want Brett showing up there. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Eventually they come to a different idea, um, because they can't get Bischoff on the phone because Bischoff is on a hunting trip in Wyoming, not the best sales service there. So to sort of hedge their bets, McMahon asked Brett to drop the title at a house show in Detroit the day before survivor series on November 8th, but Brett refuses saying the way everything's been built up. He wanted the match with Michaels, which in the wake of all the insider publicity was building a life of its own where this match now had a lot of buzz. Do you remember Vince pitching? Just drop it at a house show the night before in Detroit. That was, that was pitched by, it was pitched by Brett. It was, it was pitched by a lot of people. Just, just get the championship off of him. So you got to understand, man, this was uh, a week with so much. So when you say whose idea was that, or who came up, man, there were so many people involved. There were so many ideas back and forth and thrown out there. And yes, no, no, yes, maybe. How about this? that after a while it it all ran together. And I think in Vince's head, he just wanted to, he just wanted to get to the pay-per-view and he felt if he could get Brett there, he could talk him into it. I just find it interesting that here we are on the 5th of November and McMahon is saying, Hey, just drop it on the eighth of the house show. And Brett is the one who refuses and Brett offers to do it on the 12th in Youngstown, uh, (laughs) on uh, the 13th. Uh, on in Pittsburgh, even at Madison square garden, if they wanted to do it, you know, before December 7th. So he's offering everything, but the day before survivor series or survivor series, he's offering everything, but what we suggest. Yeah. Which feels really weird. Well, that's my point. He wasn't willing to drop it. Right. He, he, if I think if we'd said, okay, you know what? Drop it to the brawler in the garden. Really? You want me to drop it to the Brooklyn brawler? Who's going to believe that? Why am I dropping the title to the Brooklyn brawler? That's stupid. I'm not going to do that. On November 6th, the Toronto sun has a story where they quote tiger Ali Singh, who's actually promoting a house show uh, in Toronto. And he says of Brett's leaving, it's very disheartening. He's not only been a mentor, but he's been, I've been a great admirer of him since I was a kid. If he leaves, you're going to see a whole bunch of other people leaving. And I'm not going to mention any names, but WCW has been approaching a lot of people. He's doing this in an effort to promote a house show. Uh, is it, is there any wonder why tiger all these things no longer in the business? Fucking idiot. Well, I know who they weren't approaching. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. November 7th. Um, there's no question that the power of online services when it comes to the influence of pro wrestling was established this past week. It was generally portrayed that there was a power struggle between Hart and Michaels and that Michaels had won out and to a lesser extent, Hart was leaving over the direction of the product. While there was some truth to all of this, the greatest truth was that it was simply a manipulation by McMahon to get out of a contract that in hindsight, he wished he'd never offered whether Michaels, who the wrestlers feel has McMahon's ear right now has convinced him of what he's turned WCW into is Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and not Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper is that he and the company should do what they did to get WCW over. There's also the feeling among the boys that that Michaels had pushed McMahon to get rid of his biggest rival in the company. They did have a lot of problems over the creative Bruce. This is the week we really start to hear about how unhappy that, um, Brett has been with the creative. Obviously we talked a little bit about the nation of domination thing. We talked about the homos thing. 
Uh, but he really had a problem with the entire presentation. Is that something you had conversations with Brett about the, the company getting a little more edgy? We, we all did during that time because uh, Brett would express his opinion to everybody that he was, uh, not satisfied and he didn't like the edgier things. Um, he was taking everything personally. So yeah, I, I definitely did. And I would constantly go back to remind him, Brett, you've done the same things. It's, I, I don't you guys, again, you've worked yourself into a shoot. Uh, let it go. And his whole life was about this business. And if anybody should understand, I would have thought Brett would have, would have understood. It's kind of interesting that the WWF's own website, uh, had Vince McMahon publish a letter of his own stating over the past few days, I've read certain comments on the internet concerning Bret Hart and his alleged reasons for wanting to pursue other avenues in the world wrestling federation to earn his livelihood. While I respect the opinions of others as owner of the world wrestling federation, I felt it was time to set the record straight as it has been reportedly recently online. Part of Bret Hart's decision to pursue other options is allegedly due to his concern with the direction of the world wrestling federation, whereby each and every individual is entitled to his or her opinion. I take great offense when the issue of the direction of the world wrestling federation is raised in this age of sports entertainment, the WWF refuses to insult its audience in terms of baby faces and heels in 1997, how many people do you truly know who are good guys or bad guys? The world wrestling federation programming reflects more of a reality based product in which life as well as the world wrestling federation superstars are portrayed as who they truly are in shades of gray, not black or white. From what I'm reading, it has been reported that Brett may be concerned about morality issues within the world wrestling federation. Questionable language, questionable gestures, questionable sexuality, questionable racial issues, questionable. All of these issues mentioned are issues that every human being must deal with every day of their lives. Also with that in mind, please be aware that Bret Hart had been cautioned on numerous occasions to alter his language by not using expletives or God's name in vain. He was also told on numerous occasions to not use certain hand gestures that people might find offensive. My point is, regardless of what some are reporting, Brett's decision to pursue other career options is not genuinely a Shawn Michaels direction issue as they would like you to believe. In the personification of Degeneration X, Shawn Michaels' character is expected to be living on the edge, which I might add, Mr. Michaels portrays extremely well. All the issue here is the direction of not determined by Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart for that matter. It is determined by you, the fans of the World Wrestling Federation. You demand a more sophisticated approach. You demand to be intellectually challenged. You demand a product with attitude. And as owner of this company, it is my responsibility to give you exactly what it is you want. Personally, I regret the animosity that is built up between Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, but in the end, it is the World Wrestling Federation that is solely responsible for the content of this product, not Bret Hart, not Shawn Michaels, not Vince McMahon for that matter. And may the best man win at Survivor Series. Um, what do you think of this? This, in hindsight, feels kind of weird for Vince to put this out. It was a different time. Who was for it? Who was against it? Well, I think Vince felt that he had to defend himself, and it, it was always 
remarkable, at least to me, when Vince would choose to wear the owner cap and when he would choose to wear the I'm just a play-by-play guy. Um, but we there was just so much out there. And like you said, it was a new era with the Internet and information being shared so instantaneously that – and I thought, oh, this this damn new internet stuff. We got to get our message out there. So, um, I don't know. I think for the most part, everybody was happy that he was at least saying something and defending himself. Brett goes on off the record with Michael Landsberg, and they just talk about WCW. And Brett is noncommittal. Says he's put in his thirty day notice. He's interview. He's reviewing offers from both companies. Um, and he talks about the direction of the company and says some things he's not so happy with. Is that a program that the office would have watched? Did you and Vince and Pat and anybody else in the company, Cornette, Russo, does anybody sit down and watch that interview or are you getting a report about what's said? No, we definitely got a report of what was said and it was, we're the ones that booked it originally, you know, it was booked to be on off the record to promote survivor series. November 8th, 1997, uh, the WWF's running a house show in Detroit at the Cobo arena. It would turn out to be Bret Hart's final match in the United States as a wrestler for the world wrestling federation. Tensions are obviously super high and there were prospects of a double cross looming. Uh, there were some paranoid types according to Meltzer, at least in the locker room. Did you have any sort of inclination to think that any of the boys may have wondered about this? Show me a few holds. What if they do this? You know, here's the old telephone, telegram, telewrestler. Do you think anybody had any sort of idea that this might be a possibility? In Detroit? I think that, I think Brett definitely had it in his mind that, uh, you know, is the fix in? Are they going to try and screw me that he was trying to cover all of his bases? Um, it wasn't. It wasn't really discussed at this point. We, we all, at least I'm, I'm giving you my perspective. Um, Vince was going to talk to Brett in person day of the day of the show. And Vince was going to sprinkle, you know, Vince dust on him and, and work everything out. And it was going to work and everything be fine. Hunky dory here in Detroit. Uh, Brett says he's used his influence to get Hebner to referee the match because he wanted someone in the ring he could trust. Hebner said he understood the situation and told Brett, I swear on my kids' lives that I'd quit my job before double-crossing you. While this show is going on, Vince McMahon is holding a meeting at a hotel in Montreal with Jim Ross, Jim Cornette, Pat Patterson, and Shawn Michaels. Do you remember what all is happening in that meeting? It doesn't say you're there. Are you there? But he's having a meeting with who? Jim Ross, Jim Cornette, Pat Patterson, and Shawn Michaels. Um, we had a production meeting with everybody that's in a production meeting normally, which would be producers and agents. And then we all went to the bar and Jerry Briscoe and... Sean Michaels went and had a meeting in Sean's room. What happened? I have no idea. I wasn't there, but, uh, you know, the rumor and innuendo was that Jerry showed Sean 
uh, if Sean got into trouble, uh, how to protect himself more than anything in the match. Um, they had no idea if, if it comes down to it, if we can't get Brett to agree to a finish and we have to take the title off of him somehow, some way we have to figure out a way so that Sean leaves as the champion. Now, again, this, the only people that know about this at this point, as far as, uh, I know this is hindsight. I had knew nothing about it that day or until after was Jerry Vince and Sean. And that was it. Um, there's rumor and innuendo that Jim Ross and Pat Patterson were not comfortable with this decision. Do you know Jim Ross and Pat Patterson knew nothing about the decision ahead of time at all. There's a clip in wrestling with shadows where we see uh, a lot of guys piled into a limo honky tonk man is here too. And they're talking about the tension going on between Vince and Sean is the other person in the, in, in the uh, limo. Is that Carl DeMarco that we see? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, they wrapped Big up filming this movie in September. But Brett suggested to Paul J who produced it, that they should come fil- film this match at survivor series. Allegedly it's uh, Paul J who suggests that Brett should wear his mic, but just keep it hidden whenever he's doing his private meetings with Vince earlier in the day. Did you guys have any inclination that Brett was mic'd up for these meetings? No, we did. We didn't. And, and again, it's like. Anybody that's ever done a reality show, a documentary or anything like that, I think they just got lucky because you wear a mic, you keep it on, you forget it's on. I've done it a million times. Um, I think they just got lucky is, is all. I don't think that Brett went in and go, I'm going to be mic'd. I, I don't think that, I think that once they got there and they went back and listened, go, oh my God, we, we were uh, recording during that and we got the, your conversation. In the documentary, Brett says something like, I can't lose to Sean. I'd rather blow my brains out. And Brett said that he watched this movie with Owen and Owen was upset when he heard Brett say that and said, nothing in wrestling is worth dying for. That's some pretty heartbreaking stuff to think about. Really is. Um, allegedly. Vince spots the bright red poppy pinned to his shirt, which we assume is the mic. And Brett explains that it is a remembrance day tradition. And he says to Vince, this Canadian angle has really painted me into a corner. It would be so hard for me to come up short as a hero today. What do you want to do? And Vince replied, what do you want me to do? And Brett knew that word had leaked out about him leaving. So he suggested some sort of schmoz. and Vince, he tells Vince, I'd like to win the night and then forfeit the belt on raw in Ottawa the next day. And, uh, Brett says it's a suggestion, not a demand. And then Brett said that he and Vince both had a conversation about both of them felt betrayed. Uh, Brett said to him, no, one was supposed to know he was leaving, but Vince is already smearing his reputation. And Vince said he was determined to see this come out the right way, which Brett felt relieved at because he thought maybe this meant he could have a dignified exit. And then Vince says something like, All we're talking about is Ted Turner. That's what's coming between you and me. You can actually hear that on the documentary. That's all. I can't tell you how appreciative I am. And I always will be for everything you've done for this company. 
I'll be damned. Even if it is Ted Turner's money and all that kind of shit, there's no reason two people who spend as much time as we have together work closely all these years. It's no reason to have any problems. And Brett responds, I couldn't agree more. Um, it feels like these guys are, you know, in this conversation moving towards a resolution and Brett even says to Vince, you never know. You might have me back someday. And Vince laughs and says, love to, and then they get down to business. What it is you want to do today. And they start coming up with ideas and then they just agree on a big schmoz, um, with Brett hitting Hunter or even China. And Vince says the marks out there are going to be thinking this is a shoot. So I'm going to capitalize on that. I won't be out there commentating and there'll be a, a slew of, uh, uniform security at ringside. I'm open to anything. And so then they say, all right, and shake hands. And then Brett goes to find Sean and they go over the match. And Vince says, whatever you want, I'll put you with Pat. He's the master to work it through. And we see short, we see shots in wrestling with shadows of Brett talking with Pat. And then he does find Sean who is visibly nervous. And Sean says he doesn't want any problems and that he's willing to do anything. And Pat then told Brett that he would be a hell of a spot to let Sean put the sharpshooter on Brett, but then Brett reverses it onto him. And that would set up a fantastic second half of the match. And then Brett asked Pat, who's the ref. And Pat said, Earl, this wasn't in wrestling with shadows. This is what Brett said. Well, here's what I'm saying. Cause in, in that's your, not how it went down. All right. That's what I wanted you to correct. Because a minute ago you said that Pat wasn't in on it. No. How did the sharpshooter aspect get worked into the match? They had a spot and Pat wasn't in on it. Pat laid out the match with the schmas, And then Brett had a suggestion of reversing something and Sean putting him in the sharpshooter. And then they worked from there into another spot. And when Sean went back, I mean, Sean went back and talked to, I guess, Jerry Briscoe and Vince and said, there's a spot in there where I get him in the sharpshooter and was like, oh my God, perfect. Get him in the sharpshooter, ring the bell. He gave up. But Pat had no idea of the, of the screw job. Pat had no idea. He had the schmas. We had all the talent there ready to do the run in. I say all the talent bulldog. Well, I, and did, I didn't Owen. Just say that Pat knew there. I'm just saying that. Pat suggested, but you said he was in on it. No, I didn't. He wasn't. I said he was helping with the match. He was, he was the agent of the match. Yeah, but he didn't know. I got you. He did not know. Um, Brett would say that he and Sean tried to patch things up in their conversation that day. And Brett felt really good going to the ring. Very comfortable after they just had this mutual respect conversation. And it sort of felt like they were going to let bygones be bygones. And obviously the entire time they're having that conversation, Sean knows he's going to fuck him. And Sean has said that. You know, thinking about that would still make him emotional. And then Brett ran it by everybody. Owen Hart, Earl Hebner, Davey Boy, Rick Rude. And then, of course, Hunter and China are there nodding their heads in approval, too. Brett says that Vader pulls him to the side and warns him, be careful out there, brother. Vince is known for fucking people in these kinds of situations. And Brett thought he had it covered. Um, anything else you want to mention? Before we talk about the match itself. Um, no, not really. I mean, it, it just, it, it was, um, it was what it was. And again, I had no idea what was going on. I, I was clued in from Pat, what the finish was. The finish was a schmoz. I had the cue to send Owen and bulldog out and we were doing full entrances all the way from the back. 
uh, we call championship, you know, the boxing entrance, following everybody from the dressing room all the way to the ring. And that was it. I mean, that, that was all, that was all I knew. That was all anybody knew. Of course, when Sean makes his entrance, he, uh, pretends to, um, wipe his ass with the Canadian flag and have sex with it. And as Brett is about to walk to the ring, he says, Rick rude, who was a part of DX comes over to Brett and says, I'll watch your back in case they try to jump you or pull anything funny on you out there. So they're ready for it during Brett's entrance. JR says that Brett is a 24 year veteran who started at the age of 19, seemingly to point out Brett's age. And he makes some sort of comment that this match took 18 months to make and smart money says you'll never see it again. Uh, of course it's an interesting finish here where they have an okay match. They're brawling all around the arena. It was supposed to go twice as long as it actually did. And Sean puts the sharpshooter on Brett and just a few seconds in immediately Hebner starts looking at the timekeeper and screaming, ring the bell. And at that same moment, McMahon, who's sitting next to the timekeeper elbowed him hard and screamed, ring the fucking bell. And it rang about the same time that Brett grabbed for the leg to reverse it. And Michaels fell down on the mat. Sean's music plays and he is immediately announced as the winner and new champion. Even though it's a screw job, Meltzer gave it three and three quarter stars. Brett has said of the match, he felt like they had a rhythm and they were really getting going. And he thought it was going to be one of their better matches, but obviously that wasn't to be. Hebner sprints out of the ring to the other side, into the dressing room, through the dressing room, into a waiting car in the parking lot that already had the motor running and was going to take him back to the hotel. And he was going to fly home instead of working the raw tapings. Michaels and Hart both jumped to their feet, both looking pissed off, cursing in McMahon's direction. And Hart just spits right in Vince's face. And the cameras pull away and focus on Michaels. Vince is screaming at Michaels to pick up the fucking belt and get the fuck out of here. Michaels is looking pissed off, stomping around. And uh, Jerry Briscoe is telling him to go to the back and hold the belt high uh, and to get to the back. And the show goes off the air a few minutes early. And, uh, obviously Brett said he couldn't believe that Earl fucked him and he felt like all the blood in his veins had evaporated and, um, Earl's brother, Dave and Jack Lanza were in the car waiting. And, uh, Jim Cornette said, as soon as the bell rang, he wanted to leave the building too, because he didn't want to be there for whatever was about to happen. Sean is cussing up a storm. Triple H and China are uh, running down to the ring and getting Sean as they walk out. And, um, Brett said he saw Vince on the floor and he thought about jumping on him and going crazy on him. But then he looked at Mark Eaton, whose mouth was open and he had tears in his eyes. And Brett said, I leaned over the top rope, carefully aimed and spit right at Vince, hitting him right between the eyes. And I just looked at a stunned crowd and fought back the tears that were swimming in my eyes and thought, don't you dare give those backstabbers the satisfaction of seeing you cry over any of this. So he cut the ring mic, uh, obviously, but the cameras were still rolling and Brett wrote out the letters WCW in front of the hard camera and then started slamming television monitors all over the floor. Uh, Owen and Brett were out there and kind of a weird deal we see in the wrestling with shadows documentary sean and brett are in the same dressing room and brett just point blank asks him sean were you in on that 
And Sean said, I swear to fucking God, I had nothing to do with it. And Brett again asks, you weren't in on it. And Sean replies, so help me God, I didn't know anything about it. And then Sean threw the belt on the floor and refused to wear it. And Brett wanted to rip Sean to shreds, but he didn't want to lose his cool in front of his son, Blade, who was there, who was leaving the company because he felt like all these guys were his friends. And then Brett said to Sean, Sean, I'll judge you by what you do tomorrow on TV. And then he said to the other wrestlers who were sitting in the dressing room that if they can do this to me, they can do this to anyone. Remember that. An undertaker allegedly says, fuck, I'm going to bring his ass down here. I want Vince to explain himself to me, you, and everyone else. An undertaker kicks the dressing room door open. And Brett says, as Taker walked down the hall, that Brett could hear other wrestlers telling Taker where Vince was at. So undertaker finds Vince and rounds up the crew. Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> Briscoe and his son Shane and Brett said he had his friends there Taker, Shamrock, Foley, Vader, Rude, Crush, Savio and of course Owen, Davey and Jim Brett's in the shower when Vince comes in and Rick Rude yells to Brett he says he wants to talk to you and Brett says allegedly tell Vince to get the hell out of here before he gets hurt and where are you getting this account from this is Brett's book Brett's book and the Wrestling Observer oh okay because it's just it's fucking fiction Correct on, 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 on a lot of it, but go ahead. No, no, correct it. Well, okay. First of all, you know, when Sean came back, Sean threw the belt and they made a big shit storm backstage and everything. Um, I went, I went over and went back to Vince's office. Uh, Taker was there and that that's a whole nother story that I think we told in the Montreal screw job, but you know, I went back to Vince's office. I was pissed off because I didn't know. And I was a sitting duck at gorilla. We went, we went back. Uh, the only people in the office were me, Shane, Jerry Briscoe and Vince. Jerry went out and got Jr. put Jr. in the back of the office. And Briscoe went over to the, to the other dressing room, went over to Brett's dressing room and Briscoe came back and told Vince, you need to face him. And Vince said, I plan on it. He goes, he goes, we, we got to go over there. You know, you need to face him. And Vince was like, you know, okay. And he says, gets physical. Um, I'm going to give him a shot. He gets one. And Jerry said, he only gets one. That's it. And we went and it was me, Shane, Jerry Briscoe and Vince that left his office and made that long ass walk. When we came down, we met Undertaker in the hallway. Okay, Undertaker did not come down there and get us. We met him in the hallway, uh, down midway to Brett's locker room. We met, it was Undertaker, Bulldog, and Owen. And we had to walk by the, the Hart family, and the hearts are spitting on us as we're walking by. I mean, it, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. Uh, Sarge was down there. Gurria was down there. We walked into the dressing room and I remember Ken Shamrock coming out and, and asking Taker because Taker went in and basically Taker cleared everybody out of the dressing room, except for those people that were involved in the match. And Shamrock asked to stay and Taker told Shamrock to leave. So everybody involved in the match, plus the people I mentioned, Sarge was there. Gurria was there. And going in and telling, uh, Brett, Brett was in the shower. When we got in there, it was bulldog that went in and said, Hey, Brett, Vince is here. 
And, you know, Brett was fuck him and tell him to get the fuck out of here and so on and so forth. And then I'll, I'll never forget it, man. Brett coming out and basically telling Vince, I'm going to uh, finish drying off. I'm going to put my clothes on. I'm going to knock you out. And then he went over, sat down, dried off, uh, put his shorts on, put his shoes on, tied his shoes, uh, picked up his knee brace, threw it in his bag, <laughs> and went up and lunged. And there was a lot of fuck you, fuck you posturing uh, beforehand. Uh, it wasn't not fuck you on Vince's part, but on Brett's part. And he was hot. And Vince just kept telling him, you know, I, I, I did what I had to do. I, I did what I had to do that was right for business, Brett. Allegedly, Brett comes out of the shower sopping wet with no towel because Davy had used Brett's towel earlier in the night. And Brett said that Vince said something like, it's the first time I ever had to lie to one of my talent. And Brett is trying to call him on that and says, who are you kidding? You lying piece of shit. And this entire time, Sean allegedly is in the corner crying. Can you confirm any of that? Oh, there was a lot, there was a lot of shit back and forth between Vince and, and Brett. Definitely. And yeah, Sean, Sean was in the corner and it was, it was Sean and Hunter and rude that were all in the corner. Um, allegedly Owen starts to leave and Davey grabs him by the arm and says, don't leave. Remember what happened to bruiser Brody and Owen stays. Do you, do you remember hearing that? God, no, that's silly. Who said that? Uh, either an urban legend or, uh, I, uh, no, you know, it, it was, it was Neidhart and Owen and bulldog that were there over there getting dressed around Brett and, and Davey was talking to Brett in the shower and, um, it was tense, man. It, it, it was, it was tense. It was extremely tense and, um, didn't want to be there. I sure as hell didn't want to be there. Brett wrote 14 fucking years. I launched a rocket launcher uppercut that connected with Vince's jaw. My right fist down and he collapsed unconscious to the carpet. His cavalry jumped in, but they were too late. I found myself jostling with Jerry Briscoe, who I would find out later was the one who had designed the whole screw job for Vince. I told him if he so much as touched me again, he'd have exactly what I'd given Vince and the lying little coward backed away with his hands up. For the next 40 seconds, we all stared at Vince unconscious, splayed like an X out on the floor. I calmly took my seat again and noticed that my hand was throbbing. I thought it might be broken. Shane pulled Vince into a sitting, sitting position and pleaded with me to let his father get his bearings. Vince was blowing like a horse, still out of it, and I couldn't help but think that maybe Paul should capture some of this. I angrily shouted, get him out. Slaughter and Briscoe dragged him backward by the armpits and plopped him on the bench across from me. I stood up and snatched my, my knee brace with a wild mad look on my face. And I think I meant, I shouted, get him the fuck out right now or I'll finish him with this. When I came towards him, Shane and his helpers propped Vince up to his feet and walked him limping out of the door. I would find out later that my punch lifted him high enough off the ground that when he came down, he rolled his ankle and nearly broke it. <laughs> So what do you say? Well, well, I say that, um, he hit him in the eye because he hit him in the jaw. Like he says, then he, he probably would have broke his jaw, but you, uh, everybody could see and Vince did the interview with his eye all ballooned up and swelt up and black and blue and all that other good stuff. And when he went down, he went down on his knees and as legend has it, 
someone stepped on Vince's ankle while he was down on the floor because everybody jumped in to break it all up. And, uh, you know, Davy boy, Neidhart were, you know, everybody was in there and, and he got the one shot and that was it. And it was broken up and then it was, yeah, it was tense afterwards, man, with, you know, Brett, tell him, get the fuck out of here. And, and Shane, like, let him get his bearings. And then Brett basically, you know, yeah. Threatened everybody else in the room. Did you, and, uh, are you the guy who stepped on Vince? No. Who stepped on him? Uh, that would be a Briscoe allegedly. No one really knows, but we like to blame Jerry just because it's funny that way. But uh, no, no one really knows. We see, um, on the documentary, Brett's wife, Julie talking to Hunter and accusing him of being in on it. And she even tells him what goes around comes around. And, um, as they're walking, Owen tells the cameraman, he doesn't want to be filmed. Uh, Brett would write the dressing room was now quiet. Except for Sean sniffling. I walked towards him thinking I should kick the shit out of him too while I had the chance. But instead I held out my hand. Thanks for the match, Sean. He shook my broken hand and started crying even harder. Uh, of course, in the documentary, we see what happens after punching Vince. Brett tells the director that Vince ran into his hand and then talked about knocking him out. And we see Vince limping down the hall, dazed and maybe confused. And Shane and Briscoe were behind you, but so were you. Uh, you can barely make you out. I think a lot of people forgot that you were in that little parade there. Um, as they show Brett and Julie sitting on the plane, leaving, we hear Brett's voice saying he felt like it was the right thing to do to punch Vince and let it go. But then we see highlights of why Brett, why the interview that Jr. did with Vince on raw and Brett then talks about the wrestling business and how it leaves you with nothing and how they just use you up. And, um, we finished the documentary with Brett and Stu outside walking up towards the heart house. And we hear in Brett's voice that they murdered the Hitman character. And that's the end of wrestling with shadows. what did you think of the documentary? Um, when did Vince watch it? What did he think? God, I have no idea when he watched it. I think Carl DeMarco sent him an advanced copy of it, but, um, you know, it, it was a, it was a good documentary as far as documentaries go. But, um, you know, they obviously told one side, they told Brett's side. And, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wrong and a lot of right and all this stuff. Um, maybe not as much right, but there's two sides to every story. And when you, you get into it, people have narratives that have lasted all these, all these years. And there were those of us on the other side that just never talked about it. Never, never gave an alternative view. So that narrative is carried and people think that that's, that's just the fact because no one ever challenged it. Um, I don't blame, I don't blame Brett Hart for being upset. I don't blame, uh, Brett for punching Vince, any of that. What I do, uh, is, is I feel that Brett, especially being a second generation wrestler, I felt that he could have done business and I thought that he shouldn't have taken things so personally. Um, I, I consider Brett one of the greatest of all times, really and truly one of the greatest of all times. And I think that he just worked himself into a shoot and got upset over things that maybe he wouldn't ordinarily get upset over. And Sean knew what buttons to push on him and they did it. And they, they worked each other. 
Brett years later would say that he had 275 days on his contract for 1997 and he had already worked 310. So he didn't even have to show up. Uh, but he thought he was being a good soldier. And obviously one of the things that hurt him the most was being screwed by the Hebners. He said that a few weeks after survivor series, he actually ran into the Hebners at the Charlotte airport and Earl came up to him and offered him his hand, but Brett refused to shake it and said, don't talk to me. And, uh, they had a shouting match back and forth. And Brett said he's been more forgiving of Earl. He said if the boss would have come to him right before he went out and said, this is what we're going to do, then Brett said he would have shit his pants too. And he realizes in hindsight, that's exactly what Earl did. Um, Hebner was at the hotel and on his way out of town that night and was confronted by one of the wrestlers who asked him how he could do that to one of his best friends. Of course, Hebner claimed ignorance and said he knew nothing about it and he was going to quit. Jack Lanza, who was likely a part of the facade, according to the observer, was begging him not to. Of course, publicly, um, this is from the observer, Patterson, Michaels, and Pritchard all denied any knowledge to the boys. Everyone denied it, but it was clear everyone had to know for the production truck to go off the air several minutes early uh, for the perfect shot of the sharpshooter where you couldn't see Brett's face not quit, to Hebner in particular, to the ring announcer, to get the announcement so early, to get the music played so early, et cetera, et cetera. Set the record straight here, Bruce. Pat didn't know. You've said you didn't know. It doesn't seem like Eaton knew. Who else do you think knew? Jerry Briscoe knew. Shawn Michaels knew. Earl Hebner found out right before he went out. Literally right before he went out to the ring and was scared to death. That's when he knew. Um, Shane McMahon knew and Shane McMahon was the one in the truck. And when it happened, Shane told him what to do. So, but as far as the ringing out of the timekeeper didn't know Vince McMahon is sitting right next to the timekeeper. If Vince needed to, Vince was going to ring that bell. Vince is sitting right next to the ring announcer, telling the ring announcer what to say. So, you know, uh, your conspiracy theorist, if everybody had known, trust me, it would have gotten out. Um, so no, I, I didn't know. Pat didn't know. Pat was heartbroken and felt that he had been put in a very bad situation because he was the agent of the match. Pat went in to Brett that night and told Brett, Hey, here I am. You want to punch me, punch me. I didn't know. Um, I love you and, and I hate to see you go and I'm sorry for what happened. Um, but I had no idea. Uh, Pat was pissed. Pat was pissed off at Vince that he felt Vince put him in a bad position. I felt Vince put me in a bad position and I was pissed off at Vince. Let's remember. Go ahead. Well, no. And, and, and I confronted him about it and I, you know, not, not there that night, but when I didn't talk, I did not talk to Vince about it and my feelings and, and everything else until we got back to Stanford. And it was about eight o'clock at night. It was dark in my office and I was, I was still in there. I was the only one, uh, in the office that night. I remember Vince leaving and saw my light on and came in and sat down and, and we talked about it and he just looked at me. He said, cause I did it to protect you. He says, no one can ever say that you knew and that you lied to someone and that you, uh, withheld information or that you knew and you were a part of that. I did it to protect you. He says, I did it to protect everyone. That was it. 
not everybody was buying this. Of course, a lot of the boys felt like it was a double cross, but let's remember we're in the same era of the Brian Pillman, Kevin Sullivan, weird work, shoot, working the boys bullshit. So the next day there's conspiracy theories everywhere, but most of the people inside the company, the boys, especially realize what's happened and Hart becomes a little bit of a cult hero and McMahon's image takes a little bit of a tumble. Uh, allegedly there's lots of people who are saying they don't even want to work here anymore. Owen Hart, Davey boy Smith, Jim Neidhart and Mick Foley were so upset. They all flew home missing the tapings and Mick Foley has been pretty vocal saying that, you know, he was super angry and tried to confront Pat about it. And Pat had tears in his eyes and, you know, was not happy about it either. And Mick told Pat to tell Vince, I'm not coming to work through. So and said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And of course, later he would learn that Russo didn't know, but Russo said that Mick telling him that was one of the most hurtful things he'd heard. And Mick told anybody who would listen, I'm not going to work for this damn company anymore and left a message on JR's machine. Tell Vince, I'm not coming to work. I'm sick to my stomach. I don't feel like I can work here anymore. If you have any questions, you can call me at the quality Inn. So JR does call and explain to Mick why Vince did what he did. But Mick still ended the convo by saying, tell Vince, I'm not coming tomorrow. Uh, Jim Cornette tries to talk him into coming back and he's just not doing it. Cornette says that every finish they could think of had been discussed, including Cornette suggesting maybe just put him in there with Shamrock. Rick Rude is fit to be tied here and allegedly calls Eric Bischoff and tells him about this. He hadn't seen it himself live, Bischoff hadn't. But the next day, they make the most of it. They open Nitro with the Canadian national anthem, O Canada. And they're all waving little Canadian flags and teasing the 900 number. Uh, Raw, though, drew a really strong rating because people want to see what's going on. They did a 3.39, but Nitro beat it, doing a 4.33. What was the fallout amongst any of the boys? You know, we know that Rude wasn't happy. We know that Shamrock wasn't happy. We know none of the Hart clan was. Um... Who else had a real issue with this? There's rumor that Hawk wasn't happy. God, I think everybody was unhappy and and just on edge in general because they figured if they'll do it to Bret Hart, you know, they'll do it to anybody. Um, After everything that Bret had been a part of the company and had been the stalwart for so many years that, you know, it was the ultimate betrayal. So, um, it was really important. Uh, I felt that Vince addressed the talent and that we, you know, you don't just let this go and don't do business as usual. And one of the big, you know, key, key elements to that was undertaker, frankly. Um, and he showed up late. And again, we talk about that in the Montreal screw job, but, uh, trying to get, taker to understand. And if everybody sees that takers on board, but you know, Vince just had to address the locker room and let him know, uh, he did it for them. He did it so that 
he could protect them in the future and that we could have a company that can continue to go on. That's how strongly he felt about it. Um, and that's what he did. He addressed the talent the next day and, and then it was on, you know what, if you want to go home, go home. But that was it. The next day on raw Rick Rude introduces Sean Michaels and, um, Sean gets in the ring and says that, uh, he beat Brett in his home country with his own finishing hold. And he's the new world wrestling federation champion. And, uh, he said he put the sharpshooter on him in Montreal and listened to him squeal and give up and quote, I ran his ass down South with the rest of those dinosaurs. The next week on raw the 17th, uh, it's a tape draw of course, but this is where they do the infamous why Brett, why interview with Vince McMahon, that Jr. aired. Uh, and Jr. says, let's cut to the chase seven days ago at survivor series. Did you, or did you not screw Bret Hart? And of course, Vince says, some would say I screwed Bret Hart. The referee didn't screw Bret Hart. Sean Michael certainly didn't screw Bret Hart, nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart and he can look in the mirror and know that. So Jr. presses on this. But Vince continues to defend it. Uh, is this the beginning of the Mr. McMahon character? Yeah, we didn't know it at the time, but without a doubt, it was great. There's a huge contingent of wrestling fans and even some boys. I know a former WWF champion who still says all these years later, it was a work. And they look, they cite the fact that. WCW went out of business. Vince got paid a boatload of money with this Mr. McMahon character that just set the territory on fire. Brett made more money in the process and they think it is still the most well-orchestrated tight-lipped best kept secret work in the history of the business. Your response. Uh, well, if it is, then they're working me. Uh, I think that's just your conspiracy theorists that don't believe anything they see no matter what. So to those people yet, yeah, no explanation will do. It's an interesting interview because we do see the Mr. McMahon character when JR is asking if he has sympathy for this man, the human being, his former friend and Vince says sympathy. I have no sympathy for Brett whatsoever. None. I have no sympathy for someone who is supposed to do who's supposed to be a wrestling traditionalist, not doing the right thing for the business that made him. Um, he continued, Brett screwed Brett. I have no sympathy whatsoever for Brett. It's a weird deal, of course. And I think a lot of people, when this happened, would have imagined that there would be no scenario where Brett would ever come back, but he does. How shocked were you to see that Bret Hart would come back to the company? Nothing shocks me anymore. And, uh, we were actually in Florida in, uh, Boca Raton when Brett came down to meet with Vince and it was the first time that they met. So, um, yeah, nothing, nothing surprises me in this business at all. It's, it's all just a matter of time before everybody comes back around and they hug and kiss and make up. Did it feel, um, like a cheap shot when they had the little person dress up as Bret Hart to wrestle Shawn Michaels on raw? It was business at that point. 
move forward, capitalize on it and get all you can out of it. What do you think Bret Hart's legacy will be with the uh, world wrestling federation? The best there is, the best there was, and the best that ever will be. I think that Brett, um, people are always going to go back to the Montreal screw job because that's what Brett always goes back to. Um, I don't know if Brett's over it still to this day, but I do think that Brett Hart in my mind, here's what, how I want to remember Brett. I want to remember Brett is the guy that went out and worked every night. And no matter how many people were out there, no matter who he was working with, he was going to have the best match on the card and he was going to get that crowd come hell or high water. And he always would do, he, he never rested on his laurels. He never had just went out and did the same match night after night after night. He, he constantly, you know, worked hard. And I think that, uh, he'll go down as one of the greatest talents and, uh, that ever laced up a pair of boots. I, I got a lot of respect for Brett and I think that that's how people are going to remember him. You know, allegedly Vince said to Brett when he was making, you know, going back and forth in 96 about, should I stay or should I go? He said something like WCW wouldn't know what to do with a Brett Hart. How do you feel WCW did with Bret Hart once they got him? I thought they fumbled horribly. I don't think they did anything with Bret Hart. Do you, um, do you remember any of the dealings with Bulldog, Neidhart or Owen after the Montreal screw job? Um, minimal, you know, I, I remember talking to Owen, but, uh, you know, Bulldog and Neidhart, that, that it was really, I don't want to say it's inconsequential, but I didn't have a lot of those dealings. I did speak to Owen and Owen really wanted to stay. And he just wanted to make sure that the Brett, you know, debacle, if you will, uh, wasn't going to rub off on him and that, that he could be separate from that. And, um, you know, it, it was what it was, but it, it was tough on everybody. I, um, I know we've talked about Owen Hart. I'm sure we'll get to talk about uh, the British Bulldog some other time, but I've always found what happened with those guys after the screw job to be fascinating. And, uh, this episode's about Bret Hart though. And this is, uh, I'm not, I've never been the hugest Bret Hart fan, but I really do believe that his 96, 97, you could put up against anybody in the business. I absolutely loved what he did with stone cold steve austin at survivor series 96 and i feel like his run from survivor series 96 to 97 you could put up against anybody's one year run as far as creative i know that you know you could have different discussions about draws and revenue and blah 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 but as far as every time he was in the ring every time he had a mic every time the bell rang Bret hart was the man for that year was he not yes he was and again, that that's what see that's that's what I hate about the Montreal screw job and how people focus on that. Because the body of work that Bret Hart had in the ring and in front of the camera um is some of the best stuff, especially like I said, ninety six, ninety seven. I thought it was the best work Brett ever did. Let's uh rapid fire some Facebook questions and let's get the hell out of here. Uh, are you ready, Bruce? I'm ready. It's it's Sunday, right? It feels like it. Taylor Griggs like wants it. to know what kind of person was Brett to be around backstage? Uh, before Brett was the champion, Brett was a joy. <laughs> um, you know, Brett overthought things in my opinion and uh, 
sometimes took himself too seriously, but um, he was he could be easy and he could be difficult. So he he was human. Tommy wants to know: Did Brett give away the glasses at house shows too, or was it only for TV? No, Brett gave away glasses every single night. Chris Keller wants to know: Had the screw job not happened and Brett stayed with the company, what programs and storylines could you have seen him being a part of through the Attitude Era? Well, frankly, I think that, that Brett and Steve in the reverse roles, uh, battling over the championship and, and Brett and Sean going forward, I think would have been classics and that you could have gone years and years with those rivalries. Here's a fun question. The rumor and innuendo is that at the time Brett signed in 96, Vince was losing $135,000 a week. Why would he go into an expensive contract that costs 30,000 a week? If he's already losing 135,000 a week, who says, where does he get that figure from? I, I don't even know how to respond to that because I, if we're losing 130,000 a week, that's half million. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to respond to that. Had Brett stayed with the company, would the company have went with Brett at WrestleMania 14 to put Austin over for the title? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Possibly without a doubt. Why not? That that was a great, you know, you go back to the, to the year before the great matches they had, or how many years that that was definitely a possibility. Adam Brown wants to know, was Brett fun to hang out with? He always is presented as very serious. And as someone who takes himself very seriously, did he ever cut loose? Brett Hart, uh, is absolutely a lot of fun. Quite frankly, you get Brett in a bar, have a few beers and just get him to loosen up. He's, he's a blast. Chris wants to know, were any other uh, wrestlers considered for the Hart Foundation? Not that weren't hearts, no. The only heart, non-heart, was uh, really Brian Pillman. Anthony wants to know, if Brett hadn't left the company, do you think Owen would have ever done the Blue Blazer? Um, who knows? I, you know that I have no idea. That that's I don't know. Craig wants to know why did the anvil disappear after SummerSlam after promising to shave his beard if any of the hearts lost? <laughs> because he's the anvil. Yeah, that bastard. Sometimes the fucking rhino just goes off. Tristan wants to know: Did anyone ever rib Brett? Maybe Owen. God, Owen ribbed him all the time. You got a good Owen rib story for us with Brett? Oh man. You know, everybody, whenever anybody asks me for a rib story, I can never come up with that specific, you know, rib story. But I, I know when you go back and listen to Brett telling stories about, uh, Owen, he, he has them, but Owen ribbed everybody. Brett was no exception. Mark Dickey wants to know how much of an influence did Brett have in Jim Neidhart keeping his job with the company? You know, Brett had a little influence, but not nearly as much as Stu. Matt wants to know, did Brett ever refuse to work with a certain talent? No, not that I can recall. I don't remember Brett ever saying that I don't want to work with somebody. He, he would balk at finishes sometimes, but not flat out refuse to work with someone. Fred asks a fun question that we get all the time. I'm just going to ask you, I know this is a super Mark question, but one of the reasons I became a Brett Hart fan is because he had the best hair of all time. My question is, what did he put in his hair to make it so shiny? We get lots of questions about what are the wrestlers putting their hair before they come out through the curtain? Brett used conditioner, but a lot of the guys use water. That's not 
Well, yeah, but but Brett would use conditioner and then spray the water in it, but the conditioner would kind of make it that that oily. Sam says the Mount Rushmore discussion has existed for wrestling fans for a few years now. Do you think Bret Hart would belong on the WWF's Mount Rushmore? That's a tough one. Um, you know, that Mount Rushmore question is, is, is over asked, um, because it's just subjective, but he probably would not be on mine. Jesse wants to know, is it true that Vince took the savings of getting rid of Brett to purchase the WWF jet? We didn't have the jet then. No, that's funny. That's fucking stupid. James wants to know what was some of your favorite feuds Brett had at this time? Well, my all time, I mean, my all time favorite Brett feud was, was obviously, uh, with Sean, but I loved the, the Mr. Perfect Brett Hart series. I thought those were some of the greatest matches, uh, I'd ever seen. I absolutely loved watching Brett with another worker. Tons of questions like this. Of course we addressed that Vince corrected it and said, Hey, I've got the money on October 24th, but Bobby wants to know, my question is how can Vince say he can no longer afford to pay Brett his new contract? And then pay Mike Tyson millions for his role in WrestleMania 14. Well, first of all, it was what? Six months later. And it was another gamble. AJ wants to know when Brett took his leave of absence following WrestleMania 12, just a month or so before Hall and Nash left for WCW, how serious was the concern that Brett was going to do the same? We really didn't. We, we just didn't believe it. Didn't think Brett would do it. Do you know if Brett had a strong opinion or reaction anyway? to the curtain call. Um, yeah, he wasn't happy about it. And I remember a uh, bulldog saying, God, you know, if, if only Brett were here, like Brett would have done something about it, but Brett was not pleased with it. Of all the wrestlers on the current roster, who would you like to see wrestle Brett when the hitman was in his prime? Graham asked that question. Okay. Are you ready to fall out of your chair? I, I have an idea who you're going to say. Finn Balor. Thank you for baby facing after last week. Jim wants to know, how did Brett get that guest spot on the Simpsons in 97? Uh, they just asked for him. <laughs> his, his agent, uh, was just very aggressive and getting out there. Man, Brett was the hottest thing at that time. Julian wants to know, hypothetically, if Brett had left for WCW, meaning being the third member of the NWO, how likely is it that Hogan would have returned to the WWE? Probably very, but also I don't think that, um, I really and truly don't, this will get a lot of heat. I don't think that it would have had the impact. The NWO wouldn't have had the impact if it had been Brett. No, I agree. I don't think there's any heat in that. I mean, Brett had played a heel before Hogan Hatton. Right. Um, Nick wants to know, I would have loved to have seen a Brett Hart mankind feud. I know they had a match on shotgun Saturday night, but I was curious if a long feud was ever discussed. Yeah, we, we talked about it back and forth, but it just never came to fruition because Mick, you know, during a lot of that time was a heel and Brett was, it just, it just didn't, they kind of overlapped and didn't always work with somebody else, but it would have been great. I would have loved to have seen those matches. Frito says the kayfabe weight and height uh, for Brett Hart was always announced at six foot and 234 pounds. How big was Brett in real life? It's about right. Uh, Eric wants to know, did Brett ever go to wrestling court? I have no idea. 
Brad wants to know why didn't Vince just make the Survivor Series match a triple threat, and then Brett wouldn't even have to be involved in the finish and still lose the belt? Because Brett didn't want to do it. Uh, Tom wants to know any stories of fans during this time in America challenging the hearts outside of arenas or trying to jump the guardrails to get at them. We had that all the time. Yeah. I mean, well, how bad was it for the anti-American Canadian stuff though? Um, it, it was kind of obviously, you know, in, in Canada, you had the people going after Austin and those guys and, and over here you had them going after the, the heart. So it, it would depend on the region. Um, I don't know how you say this guy's name. Somebody wants to know if Brett didn't come back at the 96 survivor series, who would Steve Austin face? I, I have no idea. It was always programmed to be Brett. So we, Maybe I mean, Vader. it's like, but, but I mean, that's like asking sure. when you plan for something that, that was the plan that there, there wasn't a B plan. That was what we were doing. Mike long wants to know who cues the wrestlers music. I ask because Sean's music hits so fast after Vince calls for the bill. The, the truck does. And that's where Shane, that's when I said Shane was in the truck. Uh, Joel says, Scott Hall's made a comment in one of his shoot interviews about Brett putting in his contract that he had to win times. Does Bruce know if this was true? That's a hundred percent false. That's just stupid. Uh, Ryan wants to know, I'm curious about WrestleMania 13. If Bret Hart got his rematch against Shawn Michaels for the title, who might Stone Cold have wrestled at 13? Um, you know, again, we, we go back to the Survivor Series of that year and that, that issue, that rivalry just being so good. And we didn't want to do that one off. And as we got into it, it, it just kept getting better and better. So there, there wasn't an alternative. It, it was, we brought Brett back. Vince didn't want to go directly with Sean and the Steve thing worked. Uh, Chris wants to know out of all the mega stars, was Brett the most difficult to work with and why? He wasn't the most difficult. No, he definitely wasn't. Mike Bobble wants to know who came up with the Brett screwed Brett segment. The interview. Yes. Uh, that was Vince. Johnny wants to know, why do you think Brett was so over in Europe? Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, Brett had, you know, those rock star looks, and I think that they appreciated the athleticism. And Brett just was like a, a kind of cool, almost like a grunge rocker type appeal that, man, they just loved him. Well, and I loved this week. And, uh, we're here at the end and we are excited about this episode. We've been tickled to bring it to you. It's meant a lot to us. And we want to tell you what's on tap for next week. As a reminder, we're going to give you a poll on next week's episode, but next week we already know what we're doing. We're doing survivor series 2002. And this one went down on November 17th and uh, let's run through the card ride fast. In the main event, we've got the very first elimination chamber. Shawn Michaels, Booker T, Chris Jericho, Kane, Rob Van Dam, and Triple H. We've also got a triple threat elimination match for the tag team titles with Los Guerreros, Chris Benoit, and Kurt Angle, and of course, Edge and Rey Mysterio. We've got Big Show taking on Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship. Victoria is challenging for a hardcore match for the women's title against Trish Stratus. Billy Kidman is taking on Jamie Noble, and I'm fired up about that one, and you can guess why. The Dudley boys are in an elimination tables match with uh, three minute warning. 
and they've also got Jeff Hardy on their team. Three minute warning has Rico in their corner, but it's also the debut of big Papa pump, Scott Steiner survivor series. Oh, two, go ahead and hit your subscribe button. Look for our post this week on Facebook. We'd love to ask your question. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And don't miss the deuce with Bruce every single morning at 6 a.m. And if you're anywhere near Houston, we encourage you come see us and Josh Reddick. And, uh, it's going to happen the day of survivor series. Pick up your tickets right now at box and Bruce, I've got kind of a special announcement. Can I make that right now? Go for it. We're going to do something different for you. The week after next, we've already told you what we're covering. We're covering survivor series, 1987, the very first survivor series, the very first pay-per-view for the company besides WrestleMania. And it was in fact, I believe, isn't this right? This is your pay-per-view debut. It is. So here's what we're going to do. Back in the day, Survivor Series was a certain tradition. They used to say Survivor Series, a blank tradition. What was it, Bruce? The Thanksgiving night tradition. Usually you see our show every Friday at noon. Survivor Series 1987, we're going to drop as our Thanksgiving tradition. Check it out on Thanksgiving after you're in your turkey coma. You got all your trip to fan. You're wishing that your aunt would stop yakking your ear off and you're tired of putting up with your cousin's ish. Hop on Survivor Series 1987, and we're going to encourage you to do something we've never done here. Watch it along with us. We're going to watch Survivor Series 1987 almost 30 years to the day. Of course, Survivor Series 87 happened on November 26th. You're going to watch it with us on November 23rd. So tune in the night of Thanksgiving for your Thanksgiving night tradition with Bruce and I and relive all the great memories from Survivor Series 1987. It's on the network and you can watch it along with Bruce and I. And I think this is going to be a fun deal, man. We should do this every year. Yeah, what what a great way to tune out the in-laws and everybody else around the Thanksgiving table. Just put your headphones in and listen to us. It's going to be a good time, man. They promoted that show as the biggest event since WrestleMania 3. Of course, it was head-to-head with Starcade. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire about that. But we're going to talk about a lot of the greats and relive some of the old days. Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat, Miss Elizabeth, Dangerous, Annie Davis, The King, Harley Ray, Hercules, The Honky Tonk Man, Ron Bass, Bobby Heenan, Jimmy Hart, The Fabulous Moolah, The Jumping Bomb Angels, Rockin' Robin, Velvet McIntyre, Don Marie, Donna Cristinello, The Glamour Girl, Sensational Sherry, don't forget the British Bulldogs, that's right, Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid, who we've not spent much time talking about, the Killer Bees, the Fabulous Rougeos, Strike Force, the Young Stallions, the Bolsheviks, Demolition, the Dream Team of Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine, the Hart Foundation, the Islanders, and don't forget in the main event, Andre the Giant, Butch Reed, King Kong Bundy, One Man Gang, Rick Crude, and of course, Bobby Heenan and Slick. They're out there with Bam Bam Bigelow, Don Morocco, Hulk Hogan, Ken Patera, and Paul Orndorff, even Oliver Humperdinck. Don't miss it. It's your new Thanksgiving Day tradition. It's going to be Thanksgiving night. Check us out on the 23rd, and we're going to watch Survivor Series 1987 together. So don't watch it before. Watch it with us. And uh, come see us in Houston at this year's Survivor Series, 30 years later. And uh, we want to see you there with Josh Reddick, man. It's next weekend. Get your tickets right now at boxagimmicks.com. Go like us on Facebook. Catch the morning deuce with Bruce. And ask us a question for next week's show. 
Survivor Series 02. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Bruce, anything you want to mention before we get out of here? Well, I, I got to get up tomorrow morning. It's, it'll be Monday tomorrow and, <laughs> and do some work. <laughs> our longest show ever, but our best topic ever, Bret Hart's 96-97. If you enjoyed the show, tag a friend on social media and tag us. Let them know that you're digging what we're doing, and uh, we might have a little prize for you next week. You never know what we're going to do here on The Pritchard Show. We can catch us on Twitter at Pritchard Show. Of course, Facebook again, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.